All right, fellow babies, and now it's time to go to our live remote man on the scene at the Pinedale Shopping Mall for the big WKRP turkey giveaway. So take it away, Les Nessman. This is Les Nessman, your man on the scene here at the Pinedale Shopping Center where the excitement is mounting. We're here to witness the big WKRP hey, turkey Thanksgiving giveaway. Hey, you got permission to be out here? What? You're blocking my store here, buddy. Don't you know who I am? Huh? I'm Les Nesman. I won the Buckeye Newshawk Award last year. <laughs> Good for you, Buckeye. Now get out of my doorway. I'm sorry. Creep. <laughs> so far, so good, huh? I'm here with hundreds of people who have gathered to witness what has been described as perhaps the greatest turkey event in Thanksgiving Day history. All we know for sure is that in a very few moments, there are going to be a lot of happy people out here. Now, the crowd is... The, the crowd is, uh... <laughs> Curious, but well behaved. And I think I hear something now. Uh, the crowd is moving out into the parking area. And oh yes, I can see it now. It's a, it, it's a helicopter. And it's coming this way. A helicopter. It's flying something behind it. I can't quite make it out. It's a large banner, and it says, uh, "Happy." W K R P. What a sight, ladies and gentlemen! What a sight! The copter seems to be circling the parking area now. I guess it's looking for a place to land. No, something just came out of the back of the helicopter. It's a uh, a dark object. Uh, perhaps a skydiver plummeting to, to the earth from only two thousand feet into the air. <laughs> No parachutes yet. Those can't be skydivers. I can't tell just yet what they are, but... Oh, my God, they're talking! Oh, Johnny, can you get this? Oh, they're crashing to the earth right in front of my eyes! just went to the windshield of a parked car! running around pushing each other oh my goodness oh the humanity oh, people are running about uh, the turkeys are hitting the ground like sacks of wet cement i don't know how much longer the, the crowd is running for their lives i think i'm going to step inside i can't stay out here and watch this anymore no i can't go in there children are searching for their mothers and oh not since the hindenburg tragedy has there been anything like this how much longer I can hold my position here, Johnny. The crowd... Les, Les. Les, are you there? Les isn't there. <clears throat> Thanks for that on-the-spot report, Les. Uh, for those of you who just tuned in, the Pinedale Shopping Mall has just been bombed with live turkey. Film at 11. As God is my witness... I thought turkeys could fly. That was WKRP of Cincinnati, the infamous turkey drop episode, which was from the first season. That segment pretty much defined the series. When you think of WKRP in Cincinnati, you probably think of that scene. And when you think of Thanksgiving, often WKRP comes to mind... But there's a lot more to that series than just that one episode. And in fact, that was not even my favorite episode. It was a very good episode, but it wasn't my favorite episode. I rewatched WKRP 
a few years ago from start to finish. And it holds up very well. I mean, you can see there's some dated elements to it, like the clothes and the fact that radio was a lot more relevant in those days. But it, it holds up pretty well for a series that is now more than 40 years old. It went off the air 39 years ago. And it doesn't feel like it when you're watching. You can still relate to it pretty easily, even if you're not old like me. Calwatt, hello. How you doing, Druff? Does the audio level seem a little better this time? Yeah, we're good, at least from what I can hear. Fantastic. I love that show, man. I was a kid. I used to watch that on reruns all the time. I love that. WKRP in Cincinnati? Yeah, and you know what? Uh, for many, many years, all the way through the mid-2010s, you could not see WKRP as it appeared when it was watched the first time around because of music licensing issues. So they actually put very generic and often uh, nonsensical music there in place of hit songs that were being played in the day, which sometimes took away from the quality of the episode because sometimes the music had a lot to do with what was happening. So in uh, the mid-2010s, a company called Shout Factory actually bought not only the rights to sell the DVDs of the series, but actually to get like 90% of the music rights as well. They tried to get 100, but they weren't quite successful. But most of the original music is now restored into the series if you buy that uh, Shout Factory DVD. So if you are a fan of WKRP in Cincinnati, you can go get the entire series from Shout Factory. I think it's like 80 bucks or something, but you will be able to hear once again the original music, which even in like the 80s syndicated reruns was not available. You know, that reminds me of, I also used to watch uh, Barney Miller. Did you ever watch that show, that old like police show? I was aware of it, but I didn't watch it. So, Druff, I I feel like I I have to do some counterbalance. You know how you always have these nightmare customer support things that you deal with? Yes, yes. I I had to call customer service, so we, we... redid our whole roof and in the process we replaced nine skylights with these like fancy solar powered you know they open and close and blinds and all that kind of stuff right yeah and they they all come with remotes and i figured i would just do it all on my phone and i didn't need the remotes so i think i threw out some of the uh mounting hardware for it oh and and i did well i decided <laughs> later on that probably it was a good idea to mount the remote somewhere too you know just in case and Phone doesn't work, sell the house, you know, whatever. It'd be good to have. And I was like, oh, man. After all, uh, you've given me kind of like PTSD. You know what I mean? Like I'm dreading calling customer support. Well, especially these days because you usually get the Philippines. Right. So I was calling Velux, the people that made this stuff. And I'm like, oh, man. I I know I'm going to get someone in. Druff has cursed me. It's going to be the Philippines or Asia or somewhere like that. Call them up and... You know how they say your your hold time is, you know, and how many are in front of you in the queue. I was waiting to hear like thirty five or something like that. Oh, thirty five is good news these days. I'm I'm afraid to hear like <laughs> your estimated hold time is one hundred thirty eight minutes. So it it rang, and it said your estimated hold time is five minutes. I'm like, oh, that's mm. not bad. And and then number of people ahead of you, one. Wow, one. <laughs> like, I guess oh, nobody's calling awesome. them. I, I talked to uh, a woman there. And she was from South Carolina, right? And I thought it was going to be a nightmare, like, to find the part or whatever. She's like, no, we only make one. Yeah, oh, we can get those right out to you. It's only $4 each. Wow. I I was done in less than five minutes. Stuff is being shipped to me. I thought it was going to be, I thought it was going to be, like, a two-hour thing. Like, I was dreading 
even trying. You know what I mean? Just because of the stress. But, you know, I mean, it was a, a nice customer service kind of thing. It, it, it was shocking by contrast with calling some of these other like phone companies and stuff like that, you know? Yeah. Well, uh, that's good news. You know, if you call up a smaller company or a small to medium-sized company, it actually can be an okay experience because if they're not large enough to outsource, then you can sometimes have a decent experience even today. Uh, but then sometimes you have the opposite where they just don't have enough people to answer the phone and they just don't bother to answer the phone. I've seen that a lot too with smaller companies. So at least you well, had Felix a good experience. Felix is pretty big. They're they're pretty deep, at least in in their space or whatever. And actually, I think they're a Danish company. Oh, they just happen to have a also uh, a headquarters here apparently in South Carolina. But I, I was I was pretty shocked, man. I, I thought I was going to have some kind of rant that I was going to have to talk about, but no, it was beautiful. Well, that is good. That is good news. Anyway, I want to talk about the free roll, which starts in five minutes. I did something I did not want to do, and that was reset the free roll it started at nine the free roll and then i noticed the show wasn't going to start until something like nine fifteen. so i'm like ah you know what let's let's just delay it so i i shut down the free roll five minutes in and i got some complaints that some people were doing well and there goes all that progress of course those who busted or a short stack get a full stack again so the free roll now is at nine thirty and has late registration all the way up till nine fifty five pacific time $55 is being given away this week, $50 is from Belly Buster, and $5 from banned Poker Fraud Alert Forum member, but still a friend of mine, still a personal friend of mine, despite the fact that I had to ban him. Desert Runner, he gave $5. Yes, that same Desert Runner gave $5, so we have a $55 free roll this week, 30 for first, 15 for second, 10 for third. And it's on the No Fraud Online Poker Room. Go to PokerFraudAlert.com slash free roll, all lowercase, to understand the rules to win the free money, which I can pay you by Zelle, by Cash App, by bank transfer, by Bitcoin, Bitcoin Cash, Ethereum, if the gas fees aren't too high, which they probably will be, or other methods. If you can think of other methods, people send money to each other on the internet. I can pay you those ways as well. PM me Dan Space Druff on the forum to claim your money, which will be paid in batches only every so often. So it won't come to you quickly, but it will come to you. But a new batch is coming very soon, and then you guys should get your money. And then for a while, you won't get your money, but you'll eventually get the money. It's just a pain in the ass, so I do it in batches. So is this a poker fraud alert? Uh, uh, is this the, the poker tech support line? Uh, yes, yes, my friend. Uh, what would you like to talk about? Yeah, I'm trying to register in this tournament, and and here's the thing: like I've got a particular seat that I need to get in this tournament. I, I know that the standard policy is that you just get whatever seat you get, but there's one specific seat that I need because otherwise, my neighbors are too noisy. They're they're hitting my leg and everything. How do I get this the one hole? That's the seat that I want. Sir, How do I do that? This is this is not. Your Thanksgiving table, where you just pick the seat you want to be sitting at. Okay, this is the tournament where can you, it. Can it, you? I'm sorry. Can you transfer me to a help desk in the United States? Is that something you can do for me, sir? I can help you here. I do not know. We need you to send the United States. No, you it, do not. It, you do it, not want to be listening to me. I, I think Indian people are wonderful. I love curry. I love all that kind of stuff. But I, I just want to talk to someone in support in the United States. Please, can we do that? I can transfer you to the queue, and you can see if you get someone again. That is the most I can do for you. I cannot send you to the United States specifically, or you. There is no way for me to do that. But I, I wish to try to help you, my friend. Okay. 
No, no, and I, I, I don't want your help. Please, just transfer me to the United States. Or do you have a manager there that I can talk to? Is, there, is that possible? Can we do We're, that? I do have a supervisor, but he will tell you the same thing. Okay, right. I, I, this is uh, what I would right. do. I, w- I will put you on hold and get my supervisor. One second. No, one no, mo- no, one no, moment, no, no, please. Don't, don't put me on hold. Uh, goodbye. Sir, there is no supervisor available right now. I, I'm I'm hanging up. I'm done. Thank okay. You. Goodbye, my friend. Goodbye. Good luck. Good luck to you. Now it looks like I outsource my customer support as well. Guess I'm kind of a hypocrite. Anyway, the free roll is going. I would say good luck all, but that means nothing. It absolutely means nothing in a poker tournament. That's why I hate when people say that. I shall say good luck all to everyone I like. That I can say, but I won't say who they are and who they aren't. It's up to you to guess that. All right, so if you want to call the show, the phone number, as always, 775-FRAUD-55, 775-372-8355. If you want to call the Mount Charleston line, which is an old 70s rotary phone, which forwards to me wherever I am, in any place, anytime, 702-430-1808. 702-430-1808 is the Mount Charleston line. The call to listen line is the number you just call up and listen to the show. It can be used to listen to the live show. It can be used to listen to our streaming reruns when we're not live. That phone number is 605-313-0736. 605-313-0736 or the alternate number 641-741-1095. Keep in mind that it is free if you can call within the U.S. for free, except with T-Mobile. They charge you one cent a minute because it is considered a high traffic number which is both complimentary and annoying because I don't get the money. Then it wouldn't be annoying if I got the money. But since I don't get the money, it's annoying. But I do take the compliment from them that they feel it is used so often that they must charge for the call to it. I will give you the agenda after I quickly tell you about our chat room. We have a chat room which you can use during the show. It's open all the time, but there's nobody in it except during the show, during the live show, that is and uh, works with any device. It is very old. It was written in 2007, but that's not my problem. It works, so I don't care if it's 14 years old. It's not using Flash. That makes CalWatt happy. You need a Poker Fraud Alert forum account in good standing to chat in there, which I will take a look at every so often during the show and read anything relevant. You can text me, 775-372-8355, before, after, or during the show, and I may read your texts on the air if... I think they're relevant, or if I just feel like reading them. Unless you ask me at the beginning, do not read on air, then I won't read on air. Okay, so here's the agenda, then we'll get going. We have the final World Series of Poker Week's news to tell you. The World Series went very long this year. It ended up being eight weeks, not seven weeks. They had a bunch of stuff going on after the main. So Usually it's week seven news and that's it this week we have week eight news but then that really will be it the wsop officially announced it's going to be moving to bally's in paris which means that the days of the wsop at the rio are over yes that's the it that's it we're done no more rio there's good and bad about that though and i will break it down when we do that segment as our lead story. The main event is done. A German has won it. 
and a 49-year-old American amateur has finished second. So I'll tell you about uh, both of these guys. Josh Arier was said to have won WSOP Player of the Year, and he was not who they were expecting to see win Player of the Year when the World Series started. Nothing against Josh. He's a very good player. In fact, I had him at my table on day four two years ago of the main event, and I played with him dating all the way back to the early to mid-2000s on Poker Stars. But Josh is just not someone who usually is in the player of the year hunt. But this year he was. It appeared like he won and edged out Phil Helmuth. But hold on. There might be a third person who ends up beating them both, even though he has already been crowned player of the year by the World Series itself, which will be a little bit embarrassing. This will be the second time, if this occurs, that they crown a player of the year and then have to take it back. This also occurred in 2019 involving Robert Campbell and Daniel Negreanu. Speaking of Negreanu, do you know, Calwatt, that Negreanu has really, really bricked it when it comes to winning bracelets at the World Series at the Rio? Do you know about this? I saw something in your, your post about one for 26. He is one for like 26, yes. Yes, since the Rio got the World Series in 05. So they had it from 05 to 21, minus 2020, of course. Daniel Negreanu has made 26 final tables there, which is incredibly impressive, even with the volume he plays. But of those 26, he has won just one time. So we will discuss that. Zach Gensler... I don't know him, but he lives in Vegas. He played 124 hours straight at the Resorts World Poker Room to set a record that is going to be in the Guinness Book. But I do want to tell you that it wasn't a real 124 hours straight. He beat Phil Locke, who also didn't play a real number of hours straight. I think like 110 or whatever he was going for back then. Neither actually played those hours straight, and I'll tell you why. And I'll tell you why I don't like that record for that reason. Elia Lesra was elected to the Poker Hall of Fame, but you might remember two years ago, there was a big controversy involving Elia Lesra. He actually had a book published that he uh, either wrote or spoke in Hebrew, and then Robbie Straczynski, who we had on the show, if you guys remember, nice guy, but Robbie Straczynski translated it from Hebrew to English because he speaks both languages. Anyway, uh, Mason was pretty embarrassed about this book because shortly after that, it came out that Ellie owed a lot of people money. And this was not in the book, and it was kind of embarrassing. So now he's in the Poker Hall of Fame, which arguably could be more embarrassing, but maybe not. Maybe we shouldn't worry about that. So we're going to discuss Ellie Lazara again. We talked about the controversy back in 2019. I will refresh your memory about it, and then we'll discuss whether he deserves to be in, given the situation. There is a planned, large Spanish-speaking casino. Yes, Spanish-speaking, where the employees will speak Spanish. I don't know if they'll also speak English, but it's going to be called a Spanish-speaking casino in Beatty, Nevada. And it would be a big resort, not just a little casino on the side of the road. Kelwatt, I know you're on the East Coast. Do you know where Beatty, Nevada is? B-A-T-T-Y. I've never heard of it, man. Even people in the West don't know Beatty, Nevada, for the most part. It is 113 miles northwest of Las Vegas up U.S. 95. And it is also the first town you pass when you're driving between 
the northern part of Death Valley and Las Vegas. So if you're in the north part of Death Valley, like where Scotty's Castle is, if you want to go to Vegas from there, as I did once, you will pass through Beatty. So I'm going to talk about Beatty, and I'm going to talk about the weird planned casino, which may never come to exist, but there's more to the story, including if you've been driving between L.A. and Vegas in the last few years, you probably saw a weird thing called Eddie World with a giant Sunday as the sign. Like a giant ice cream Sunday is the sign for Eddie World. And you probably just noticed that popping up on the 15 a few years ago. I'll tell you about Eddie World. It, it has to do with this as well. In fact, I didn't know about Eddie World. I've seen it, but I never bothered to look up what it was. And I have learned about Eddie World, and that'll be part of that segment as well. There's a lot of weird, random shit out there in the Southwest. There's a lot of weird, random shit in the desert, really. (laughs) And it seems to attract a lot of odd stuff. A poker player won $900,000 at Caesars on a 30K bet at 30 to 1 for Shohei Otani to win the MVP in the American League, which Otani did, so the guy got paid. And this is an story you see on ESPN right now. You see it in the poker media right now. It keeps talking about a poker player, a poker player, a poker player. It even mentions this poker player was, quote, part of Daniel Negranu's vlog, but it doesn't say who it is. And I scanned every article, and I could not find out who it was. So I go, you know, this is not going to stand. So I'm going to tell you during that segment who that poker player was, at least what I've been told. I can't 100% verify this, but I was told by a reliable source who this person is. And I see no reason to protect their identity. They didn't do anything bad. They won money. In fact, they did something good. I wish I was that guy. So 900K win on a prop bet for the AL MVP, one of the largest wins of its type with uh, betting on who's going to win the MVP in Vegas history. And it was a poker pro. I'm going to give you advice on a very topical subject. In fact, we just kind of reenacted it how to reach local phone reps at las vegas casinos or las vegas caesar's properties because <laughs> i have really really been struggling with this and in fact i just had to deal with this yesterday because i was trying to make a reservation i'll get to the whole story of what happened during that segment but uh i'm going to tell you what i've learned because it's incredibly frustrating to get to the department you need I was driving my wife out to dinner the other night, and I looked at her with a big smile, and I said, I've got a surprise for you. And I put it, I put it right to two hours and 30 minutes in <laughs> to the tomatoes on the side episode, <laughs> and I started playing it, and oh, she looked boy. at me, and she said, pull, she said, pull the car over. <laughs> I'm getting out. <laughs> Calwatch found a new way to torture his wife to play my customer service segments. Not just a customer service segment, but one from 11 years ago. Though I got compliments on that story from those who either didn't know it or kind of knew it. Uh, Some people enjoyed that tomatoes on the side story. In fact, when there were discussions on making Poker Fraud Alert merchandise back in 2012, there was someone who made a mock design for Poker Fraud Alert shirts, which would be a picture of me with uh, tomatoes as ears. I enjoyed it. Yeah. Well, it's... It was a weird story, I'll say that. It was one I did not expect to occur when I walked into Subway. Finally, we're going to talk about the coronavirus boosters. I know we've talked about it before, but they're available to everybody now. 
And I still have discussions with people as to whether or not they should get it. Now, I've gotten it. Cal Watt has gotten it. But some people who've had the two shots don't want to get a third one. And one of their reasons for not doing it is, I don't want to do this every six months. It sucks. I don't want to do it. It's a pain in the ass. I've done my vaccine. I, I hear it keeps me out of the hospital. And that's all true, at least for the moment. So who needs the booster? So I'm going to give you my take on this. Obviously, I'm pro-booster because I got one myself. But I will give you my take on this. And I will also answer the question as well as I can as to whether or not you can expect to have to do this again in six months. Because I agree, as someone who gets pretty bad side effects from it, that doing it every six months sucks. And even I, who am pro-booster, am starting to rethink that. But it may not be necessary. So I'm going to explain to you why it may not be necessary, and I will tell you why I feel you should get the booster. And of course, it's always up to you, but I'm going to do kind of a booster segment so everybody understands the booster better. So that is our agenda this week. This is our Thanksgiving week show, and I figured probably better to just kind of move the show every eight days instead of every six days to get back to Friday. So next week will be on uh, Wednesday, eight days from now on, I would say, November 31st. And I guess we can say that, but it's also December 1st, whichever one you'd like to call it. But December 1st will be our next show. Then after that, December 9th. And then uh, so on and so forth till we get back to Friday. Then we'll do it every week. Andrew, if I know someone that uh, just died from COVID, Mm. I mean, I know we're not going to get into it now, but, you know, even if we did have to do it every six months, (laughs) you know, I I, I would do it, you know, but I'm interested to hear what you got to say. Yeah. We'll we'll get to it later. We will get to it. So let's get to the first topic here, the World Series of Poker Week 8 News. If you're getting tired of hearing the World Series of Poker, well, I'm kind of getting tired of talking about the World Series of Poker. But uh, for completeness, we're going to finish off here, and we do have some interesting stories. The first one, I think, is really going to interest you, especially if you play the World Series of Poker or plan to play it anytime in the next uh, several years. And that is the World Series of Poker is no longer going to be at the Rio. It is moving and is going to be at Bally's and Paris. That was the wrong sound effect, but we'll go with it. So... The World Series of Poker, as you may know, began at Binion's Horseshoe in 1970. And it stayed at Binion's Horseshoe. And of course, this was not run by Harris at the time or Caesars. It was run by Binion's. And it remained there all the way through 2004. I never played the World Series of Poker at Binion's. However, I did visit my now-departed friend, Thyprez who some of you knew from back in the day. He unfortunately passed away a number of years ago of a drug overdose. But uh, Thy Prez, who was a big degenerate, he miraculously won a seat into the Binion's 2004 main event. Uh, I I don't know how he did it because he was a terrible poker player, but he did it. He even admitted to me he was a big fish and he didn't know how he did it, but he did. And... uh, He did not cash in the main event, but uh, I decided to come down there and just kind of uh, be part of the whole scene. I did not live in Vegas yet in the uh, 04 main event. I came down to Binion's. I I saw the whole scene. I I watched a little bit of him playing. I even went to the Poker Stars room where you go there to get your 
ticket to play because poker stars would directly register you then you didn't have to get the money and go to the cage poker stars had a way to directly register you to the world series which is pretty crazy now that you think about it and he went up there and i came with him and not only did they give him his ticket they gave him his bag of goodies with with poker stars gear and other little gifts it was a pretty cool bag they gave him and the person who gave it to him was a customer support rep named terence Yes, that Terrence, Terrence Chan, who was a PokerStars support rep at the time. And uh, he said, oh, my name's Terrence. Hi, nice to meet you. And I said, oh, I, I'm Dan Druff. I've talked to you before in email for email support. He said, yeah, yeah, I, I know who you are. And I said, okay, well, nice to meet you. That was my first time ever meeting to Ter- Terrence Chan. So a lot of people don't know that, that he used to be PokerStars uh, support and then eventually became a pro poker player himself and was a successful one and still is. So anyway, I saw it going on there, but I didn't play myself because I wasn't interested in it. I could have played. I had the money to play. I just was not interested. I just played cash games. I first played at the Rio in 05. And that's where it, that was the year it moved to the Rio. Now, the reason it moved was because there was a lot more space at the Rio. Harris actually owned it in uh, 2004, I believe. Actually, I'm not sure about that. I'll have to go back and look. But I think Harris had already made the purchase but hadn't actually moved it yet. Harris made a tremendous deal buying the World Series of Poker because they bought Binions and the World Series of Poker was a throw-in. They did something very smart, which is hard to believe, but they did. They did something really smart they saw the value in the World Series of Poker, and they knew that Binion's itself was really not important to them. So the plan was, buy Binion's, get the World Series of Poker, which Binion's owns, take the World Series of Poker, and then sell Binion's without the World Series of Poker for essentially the same money. Well, they did that. So they got the World Series essentially for free, which if you think about its value today is tremendous that they did this. A very, very smart move. Once they had ownership of it, again, I don't know if it was the same year or the next year, but I know in 05, now that Harris owned it, which had merged with Caesars also in 05, they moved it to the Rio. The Rio was chosen for the World Series of Poker location for one reason and one reason only. I shall say two reasons. Number one, tons of convention space, which is where these events are held. Obviously, they need big empty rooms to put all those poker tables. So they had a lot of convention space there at the Rio. So that made it a good venue for it. And second, a lot of parking. They had this giant surface parking lot outside the convention area. And they also had two parking garages as well. So there's plenty of parking there. And people would always be able to get a space, even at these huge events. So that was the reason the Rio was chosen no other property that they owned could accommodate the World Series of Poker. So it was really a no-brainer to put it at the Rio. Now, they were very aware of the fact that the Rio was off-strip. The Rio was not as old or run-down at the time, because uh, this was back in 05, and I believe the Rio was built in 96, or somewhere thereabouts. So it was only around 10 years old at the time. However, It was a very old 9 or 10 years old by that point. It wasn't as run down as it is today, but it already kind of looked like it needed a refresh. And it was not known as 
a nice place to be. However, again, there was a lot more to the Rio than there is today. You may not remember, or maybe you just didn't go to the Rio back then, but for quite some time, the Rio had a very festive party atmosphere in the casino. There was something called the show in the sky that was uh, it would circle around the casino it, with that kind of like a Mardi Gras theme to it. In fact, the whole Rio had the Mardi Gras theme. You're supposed to feel like you're at a giant party when you were at the Rio. They, uh, they had stage acts at the casino. They, they had a lot of stuff like that where you walk through it and something's always going on. This is as opposed to for the last several years, since all that stuff got shut down, you walk through the Rio and it's just dead and depressing. It's old, dead, and depressing. Especially when there's no World Series going on and there's barely anyone there. So it, it was a very different looking place as far as what was going on there back in the day compared to now. Even back in 05, they still had all that going on. They hadn't shut it down yet. Still, the Rio was off strip. It was not walking distance from the strip unless you wanted to walk over a freeway. And, you know, it just was kind of not a pleasant walk. It was possible. It wasn't like many miles away, but it was just a walk most people didn't want to do. And it was just kind of seen as isolated. It was across the street from a few casinos like uh, the Palms. And, you know, there's a few other casinos in the area. The bottom line is that the Rio was off strip. It was considered out of the way. And people, even by 05, didn't really want to be there that much. However, the Rio still was the only place they had that could really accommodate the World Series of Poker. They held it in the summer for a reason that you probably would not have thought. Maybe you would have, but I think you probably would not have guessed this being the main reason. The World Series of Poker was held in the summer because the summer is actually the low season in Vegas. Now, Vegas doesn't have a major low season. Like, when I say a major low season, I mean where there's a huge difference in crowds compared to high season. So I'll give you an example where there's a tremendous difference. Yellowstone. You go to Yellowstone in December or January, it's going to be empty. Why? Because it's really, really, really cold. In fact... Yellowstone's weather makes where Calwatt lives seem warm. It's just one of the coldest places in the U.S. Though Calwatt's location is up there, too, as far as coldest places in the U.S., in the continental U.S., at least. But uh, Yellowstone is even colder. It gets pretty damn cold, but also we get tons of snow because we're right off Lake Ontario. Right. We get it. Right. They they do get a ton of snow there as well. So uh, uh, anyway, Yellowstone... People don't want to go out and tour the park, even though it looks pretty interesting in the winter. I've never done it, but it is just so cold and it's often windy. If people try to go and then they come back and say, yeah, this is miserable. It's just so cold. I can't stand it. So people just don't go to Yellowstone for the most part in the winter. And even in the late fall, it's already very cold. So Yellowstone has its high season, of course, in the summer. And then in the winter is the low season. There's a tremendous difference. Vegas is not like that because Vegas... uh, it gets very hot in the summer, but that's not enough to deter people from coming to the same degree that what happens in Yellowstone with the cold. However, because of that heat, Vegas does not get as many people coming through in the summer as they do at other times. Now, it is counteracted a little bit by the fact that 
there is summer break and people like traveling, so people do go to Vegas for that reason. But the higher season in Vegas is at other times. Really, Vegas is the most busy during holiday periods. New Year's, of course, is the biggest. Thanksgiving, which is coming up, very, very busy there. A lot of people say, oh, I want to go to Vegas for Thanksgiving. Okay, well, be ready to face massive crowds and high prices if you're going to go this Thanksgiving or any Thanksgiving. And uh, really, any uh, holiday weekend is very, very busy there. So if they're going to pick a time that they have hotel space and convention space the summer is the best time for them to use up that space because remember if they use that space for the world series then they can't use it for anything else and they're leaving money on the table that way that they otherwise could have had conventions there and making money that way now of course you don't feel bad for caesars because they make a fortune from the world series but ideally they'd like to fill that space when there is Nobody else there. Now, this year, they, they held it in the fall because that was the only choice because they weren't quite ready to hold it in the summer given the uncertainty with COVID. And we're going to cover the future dates of the World Series of what month it's going to be uh, very shortly, in case you're wondering about that, which you probably are. And, Jeff, I feel, I feel like anyone who isn't really clear on why it might be a lower season in the summer in Vegas has, has never been to Vegas in the summer. It right. can be goddamn brutal, man. Yeah, it is uh, what I call a wall of heat when you walk outside the casino where there's actually it actually feels like you're just walking into a wall of heat. Just just it just hits you in the face and you go, "Whoa, that's hot." Like it's, it 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 kind of feels like you're walking into an oven. Now, I will say yeah, it is exactly. not as it is not as bad as when it's hot and humid in other places in the country in the summer. Like I was in sure. New York City when it was 96 degrees and very humid, and that was Horrendous. I, I, that was worse than Vegas, at least uh, well, in my Jeff, opinion. I'll see your New York City, and I'll raise you Central America or Southeast Asia in the summer. Yes, that that <laughs> as well. And, and also uh, Miami in the summer is pretty bad too. So anything like that, uh, that the heat plus humidity is even more oppressive. But still, if it's 115 degrees every day and, and you say, okay, well, I just won't go out during the day. Yeah, okay, well, fine, but... You'll go out at midnight, it'll often still be 100 degrees. So you'll walk out at midnight, expect like 75-degree air to hit you. Nope, same wall of heat, just no sun. So that's that's the reason people don't come as much in the summer. So that's the reason they chose to hold it in the summer. Also, a secondary reason is that uh, the World Series of Poker has a lot of people who have uh, family obligations, people who have kids, and... The summer is a good time for this because the kids aren't in school, at least for part of it. For the first portion of it, the kids are in school. But after about uh, two weeks, the kids tend to be out of school. So uh, the World Series of Poker, which is mostly men, as you guys probably know, uh, the men can leave and their wives uh, won't need them as much to help with the kids because the kids are out of school about two weeks into it. So that's a secondary reason that it is good to hold it at that time of year. And I can relate to it. That was part of the reason that I only went to the main event this year. Part of it was wanting the booster, but I, I was uh, satisfied enough with the amount of time that passed since I got the booster to go in the later stages of the World Series, and I chose not to exactly for that reason, because it was during the fall, and it was not as convenient for me to go family-wise. So, anyway. And how happy were we that we got the booster after seeing this outbreak that just happened? Oh, I mean, that's, that, that was... Uh, 
I'll tell you, when I was going through those side effects and going, shit, maybe I shouldn't even have done this. Like, I, was, I, I knew there was not going to be any harm to me. It was just so miserable for those two days. And then the third day, which wasn't quite as bad, but it was still – it's not like I was all better. Like, it was a lesser version of everything I dealt with the previous two days. And I'm like, you know, if this shit doesn't help me at all, I'm going to be so pissed. And then after, after what I saw would happen to the main event with people who were in the same room as me at the same time, and they were yeah. younger than me and got a – bad enough case to where it was like the sickest they were in their lives and these were vaccinated people none of them ended up hospitalized but some of them came fairly close and i said you know what i'm even older than these people are by a good deal and i am happy that i had that booster in that room and it may have been that rough it's it's just like the flu it's no big deal it's just like the flu that's fine i i was very happy to have had the booster and I, i felt confident like when i was hearing about these things it still was within possibility that uh, I could come down with symptoms because it hadn't been like five days yet. But I wasn't even worried. I said, I I doubt I'm going to get symptoms, even having been in the same room as these people who got COVID in that main event room. At the same time, I was right in there with them. I wasn't worried because I had the booster at really the perfect time. I I probably had like one of the best possible immunities to COVID because of the amount of time that had passed since I got the shot. It was just enough time to really have the most effectiveness and not enough time for it to start to degrade. So it was perfect. Yeah, and, and plus the, the battery in your microchip was running low. You had to get a new one put in anyway, you know? Yeah, well, I was hoping that would help me play, but apparently not. I needed a little bit of a stronger <laughs> microchip in there to uh, maybe a second microchip to help I me. I felt so bad for you when I heard that it happened. You, you actually texted me. And I didn't understand what you're telling me, so I, I, I guess I kind of rubbed it in. But I felt so bad when you were talking about that you made it 50 from the bubble, like exactly what the week prior when I asked you what would be the worst case scenario. Yeah, would be. <laughs> now, I thought of that when it happened. And uh, you're fucking Kawat, God damn it! <laughs> and when I walked away, I thought, shit, this this has happened to me a lot. Five of the last ten I've played, 50 percent of the World Series, I've come close to the money and busted. 50% of the last 10 World Series uh, main events, I've gotten to late day three and busted. Never as late as this. Never 50 from the money, but before it was like uh, 200 from the money, 150 from the money. I, I had that five times now in the last 10. So that's brutal. Did you fly or drive? I drove. That was a long drive home. It, it was. It was. It's always depressing <laughs> driving back when that happens. <laughs> Man. So anyway, um, let's go back to the move. So it is moving and this has been rumored for a while. I've mentioned it before on this show that it's going to possibly move to Bally's is what I said at the time. That was a rumor going around. The way it was confirmed was very odd. And it was Kev Math who noticed this and tweeted it out. And leave it to Caesars when there's a major announcement like this to accidentally let this slip in a way that was not an official announcement. And then they had to make the major announcement later when... By then, everybody was already discussing it. So typical Caesars doing something dumb like this. But Kev Maths tweeted at 4.54 p.m. on November 16th, a week ago today, I like how they casually dropped on the Poker Go stream, that is of the main event, that the 2022 WSOP will be held at the usual dates, late May to mid-July, at Bally's in Paris. So they they just said this on the stream. (laughs) I guess they didn't realize that it hadn't been announced yet. They were planning to announce it very soon, but Kevmath 
put this out there after they dropped the ball on the Poker Go stream and said this. I'm sure other people saw it, of course, and uh, took note as well. It didn't take KevMath to spill the beans, but KevMath, who has a big following, put this out there because he noticed it, and of course this is very newsworthy. So uh, that pretty much opened up the discussion everywhere about how this is going to happen. So he really answered both things in the tweet. It is going to Bally's and Paris, which we're going to talk about in a second, and it's going back to the usual dates starting, what, like May 28th, May 29th, you know, late May through sometime in July, mid-July, mid to late July, whatever. But there, no more of this fall stuff. There was some discussion of maybe the fall World Series is good because it's not oppressively hot. Maybe some people would prefer it. Well, I had a feeling it was not going to stay in the fall because October has always been a very big time for conventions in Vegas. In fact, many years ago, and when I say many, I mean like 15, which is a lot in Vegas terms, but like 15 years ago, there were not all that many conventions coming to Vegas, and October was known as like convention month. That's when the conventions would come. Yeah, there'd be conventions at other times of the year, but October was when the most conventions would come. That was the prime convention month. That's when it costs the most. That's when people like to come. And I think, again, it's weather-related because weather in Vegas in October is very beautiful. It tends to be in the 80s during the day, and you have this very nice, like, breezy mid-70s in the evening. So you walk outside at 8 p.m. Instead of it being oppressively hot or instead of being cool and windy like in December, you walk outside at 75 with a nice breeze. Very, very nice weather. In fact, I say to people, Vegas in October is nicer than L.A. in October. Vegas in October is is one of the nicest places weather-wise in the country in the typical October. So October has always been very big for conventions. I had a feeling they weren't going to leave it in October. So sure enough, uh, it's moving back to its original dates, and it's going to be at Bally's and Paris. This was later confirmed when the WSOP scrambled to make an official announcement once Poker Go accidentally let the cat out of the bag. I don't know if they were planning to announce this soon or not, but it was too late at that point. uh, Whenever they were going to plan to announce it, it had been soft announced by the Poker Go stream. I'm not sure who said it there, but whoever said it had been given advance information and probably didn't realize it was not to be released yet. So, of course, they had to follow with an official statement. Here is the official statement, the press release the following day. I'm sure they were kind of annoyed they had to rush and do this. Caesars Entertainment's World Series of Poker announced today that the 53rd annual WSOP will be held at Bally's in Paris from May 31st through July 19th. I guess they have the exact dates. I didn't even know that. With actor, comedian, and card player Vince Vaughn named as the event's official Master of Ceremonies. <laughs> Cal, what, what would a Master of Ceremonies do at the World Series of Poker? Just announce at the beginning of it? I mean... <laughs> yeah, I don't, I, I don't know either. Like, what, what is his purpose? I, I know Vince Vaughn is famous, but what what is he doing? What, master of Ceremonies? I mean, it sounds good until you think about it. And you go, wait a minute. What would a Master of Ceremonies do? But and this is the first time they've had one, by the way. You may wonder, who was the previous oh. Master of Ceremonies? They, they Now, if Ken Scaler had gone, they would have had a Master Bader of Ceremonies, but... Uh, mm. 
Since he has never been to the World Series, uh, this will be the first master and masturbator of ceremonies. I'm not sure what he's really going to do, but he has been officially designated and hired to do this. I wonder how much they're paying him for this uh, stupidity. Yeah, I mean, it's probably just the celebrity name that they can attach to it, right? I mean, there's nothing. What They couldn't really do anything, right? Yeah, I have to imagine he's, not- he's just going to announce Shuffle Up and Deal or, or say something at the beginning of each day. I wonder if he's going to be there the entire seven weeks or if they're going to just have him there at the beginning and end and send him home in the middle. Because it seems like a weird residency just just to be the master of ceremonies for all that time. I mean, the, the only real value I can see in it is the the star value, I guess. I don't know. Yeah. That's it's very very strange. <laughs> Who knows? So uh it says following a successful seventeen year run at the Rio, the WSOP continues its tradition as the largest, richest, and most prestigious gaming event in the world at an all new location. For the first time the WSOP will be held at the heart of the famed Las Vegas Strip inside Bally's and Paris. Ty Stewart said as we approach the final table, this is before the final table of the main event had been played, we look back on yet another successful main event that exceeded expectations. We are absolutely thrilled with this year's turnout, both domestically and internationally. As we close out this chapter at the Rio, we are excited to have the iconic Vince Vaughn usher in a new era of the World Series of Poker at Bally's in Paris next summer. <laughs> Is that what everybody's excited about? Not that it's moving to the Strip. It's going to be an all-new location for the first time since uh, 05 that we're getting away from the Rio. No, it's it's that Vince Vaughn is going to be the master of ceremonies and doing unknown things there in that role. That's that's what I'm really jazzed about. Following the news of the WSOP's move to the Caesar Strip properties, Bally's in Paris, award-winning actor Vince Vaughn took the stage to announce his official role as the 2022 Master of Ceremonies. So he actually I got came... a drop. I think I know what he's going to do. What? You know, in uh, in boxing and MMA, they've got those card girls that, that kind of walk around in yes. bikinis and hold up the number. Oh. He, every level up, he's going to walk around with a big the, the level card sign. He's going to walk around. Probably probably scantily clad, too. Yeah, maybe with a shirt off and, and swimming trunks. Yeah. Maybe. Yeah. Yeah. So it says the Wedding Crashers and Swingers star made a special appearance at the WSB main event, kicking off day one of the final table with a surprise shuffle of deal moment. No stranger to Vegas, Vaughn has been an avid poker player for much of his life, gearing up to play his hand at the 2022 WSOP at Bally's in Paris next summer. So I, supposedly he's going to play, but who knows? He'll probably play the main event. I, I can't see him playing like a full schedule, uh, Daniel Negreanu style, just grinding out uh, 50 events. I have a strong connection to Las Vegas, and I'm honored to be selected as the Master of Ceremonies for what is set to be the most anticipated WSOP ever, said World Series of Poker Master of Ceremonies Vince Vaughn. By the way, it is the most anticipated for one reason, and that is that Todd Dandruff Wattellis will be in the seniors event. Everyone's been waiting for that moment, and that that is going to be next year. So I know that's what he means when he says that. Poker has long been one of my favorite sports, so to be part of something as historic as the WSOP finally moving to the Strip is an absolute dream. Vegas, baby, Vegas. Okay. That's the official... Uh, I'm I'm pumped now, though. <laughs> I wasn't going to go, but now that Vince Vaughn has given that, I am, I am pumped and I am ready to go. I like how he's the focus of this whole press release. Like, that's by far the least important aspect of this whole thing. As, I, I got to be honest with you. You said Vince Vaughn, and I'm like, I think I've heard of that name before, but I'm not really sure who that is, to be honest. 
Yeah, I, 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 I'm not an A-lister. Let's let's put it that way. Well, especially recently, like in the 2000s, he was bigger. But yeah, most people know who he is, and he's been he's been in some some mainstream films and stuff. But they're focusing so much on this. It's not just like, oh yeah, by the way, we're going to have Vince Vaughn as Master of Ceremonies. He's like the main thing mentioned here. This is not a huge press release. It's not that long, and most of it is about him, not so much about it moving. So that's the official press release that was rushed out the following day on November 17th. And of more use than finding out about Vince Vaughn, if you want to see what it's going to look like there, not with the poker tables, of course, but what the rooms look like, there were some pictures that people posted of the convention space. Someone named uh, Louis Hillman posted a picture. Uh, then uh, John Mahaffey did a uh, – or not John Mahaffey. It was uh, – I think he did something too. But I, uh, Chad Holloway did a nice walkthrough of both places back in July when he had heard this might happen. So this shows you how long the rumor has been around. Back in July, he heard this might happen and went there and took pictures of uh, various spots – on uh, where the World Series would be taking place. So uh, you can check out Chad Holloway's Twitter if you want to see that. What do I think of this whole thing? Well, first of all, let me explain Bally's in Paris. Bally's in Paris are not only next to each other, but they are connected. You can go between Bally's in Paris without walking outside. They are connected by the shopping and restaurant area. And you walk through the shopping and restaurant area on one side, and then it connects to the shopping and restaurant area on the other side. And uh, you can go between the two hotels. In fact, the parking structure is for Bally's slash Paris. That, in fact, is where I once lost my car when I was with Matt the Rat, and uh, I was talking to him and forgot where I parked. He was staying in Paris, so he didn't have to go back to my car. But I had driven him back from the Rio one summer, and uh, then after we ate something there, then I went back to my car. I'm like, oh, crap, where's my car? Uh, what had actually ended up happening is I accidentally empl- parked on the employee floor, on the top floor, but hadn't remembered doing so. So I was searching everything but the employee floor, being pretty convinced I didn't park up there, when in reality I did park up there. And uh, that's how I eventually found it after uh, security was completely incompetent with helping me. It's a story I've told before on here. I'm not going to tell again. But anyway, let's, uh, let's talk again about... Uh, Bally's in Paris, though. So I've told you they're connected and doesn't require walking outside, which is good, especially in the heat of the summer. Uh, They do have a good deal of convention space between the two of them, and that is the reason that it's at Bally's and Paris, because they don't have enough convention space at Bally's or Paris, so they can't just hold it one of them. And I had wondered what they were going to do about this when I heard about it's going to be at Bally's. If you guys remember... I had said when the new Caesars Convention Center was being built center strip that that was going to be the new home of the World Series after they left the Rio. And I was confidently stating that for quite some time. And in fact, I wasn't really wrong because the, not just rumor, but it started to be implied, strongly implied by the World Series of Poker that it would be moving there eventually. It seems like this Bally's in Paris thing was more of a last-minute change. So 
that was, I believe, the initial plan was the World Series would move to the Caesars Convention Center. I did say that I was wondering if they were going to want to take up the space in the Caesars Convention Center, if a lot of conventions wanted to come to Vegas and be in that new state-of-the-art center. Why would they want to clog it up with the World Series for seven weeks when they cannot sell that space? So for that reason, I even said, hey, I could even see them maintaining some kind of lease to have the World Series at the Rio for quite some time just so they don't have to use up the convention center. I thought that might be a possibility. And in fact, uh, they did have the right to do that for a while. Remember, the Rio was sold, but it is still presently operated by Caesars. And uh, they were going to have to make a decision of uh, what they do if they want to continue operating or if they want to give it back to the owners and it's going to be turned into a Hyatt and have nothing to do with Caesars at that point. So it looks like that's probably going to happen now because the last thing of consequence going on there, the World Series, has now officially been moved for uh, 2022 and beyond. But I thought when that happened, it was going to go to the Caesars Convention Center because that was really the only space big enough for it. I did not even think about how they could do it at two places at once that are actually connected by an indoor walkway. And that's what they did. So that was something I had not considered. And I think even they didn't consider. But someone was thinking about it there within Caesars and said, hey, you know what would be a good place to do this at? It would be Bally's in Paris. And we can do it because we can just kind of split it. Now, there are some logistical issues they're going to have to worry about here. At the Rio, it's pretty simple. You just get your uh, tournament ticket and you uh, go to the convention area of the Rio and you're going to play in one of those rooms. It's pretty simple. You're, you're never walking too far because if you go to the convention area, then it's somewhere in that immediate area. Now it's going to be split between two hotels convention centers which are separate from one one another so there's going to be issues with people who are at bally's and then try to find their room that they're playing in at bally's and realize it's at paris and vice versa hopefully you can register at both places hopefully you don't have to go to one or the other to register and then walk to the other one if that's where you're playing that'll be a pain in the ass and there's no word whether they're going to have two places to register one in each spot Uh, Also, I'm assuming they're not going to have the same event going in both spots, or if they do, that they're going to try to minimize the walking between the spaces. For example, the WSOP main event, which takes up a lot of space because of the massive field, uh, are they really going to break tables in Bally's and move people all the way to Paris? I mean, that'll be a long walk. They can do it, but they... uh, what they do is they walk you in a line and instruct you that if you get out of line that you can be disqualified. So that'll be a long walk. I mean, I've had some walks between rooms of the Rio, which aren't that close to one another, but it's never a really long walk. This could be a very long walk where you're going all the way through both hotels' shopping areas to get to the other place. And uh, I I don't know if they're going to do that or if they're just going to really try to separate them as much as possible and not have it where the same event is going in both rooms. So we will see. They haven't stated anything about that. These are just things that are coming to mind as someone who has played many World Series of Poker by now. The rooms look pretty nice. In fact, some of them uh, have chandeliers and it's going to 
look a lot different than when you're used to playing at the Rio, which is just a very uh, kind of large, cold-looking, uh, big rooms for convention space that aren't particularly fancy. So these aren't like really high-end because Bally's in Paris are not newer hotels and are not catering to top-end clientele. But on the other hand, uh, I've seen pictures of these rooms, and some of them actually look uh, fairly nice, and in fact, nicer than you'd ever picture the World Series being at. So I have not walked it myself. Maybe I will do it next time in Vegas if I have time. I may not be able to access the rooms, though. They may be locked, so that's another problem. If I attempt to do it, I may run into locked doors. But I may, if I'm walking around where Bally's in Paris are next time I'm in Vegas, I may go up there and see what I can see and take some pictures and post them on Poker Fraud Alert. But uh, as I said, this has already been done somewhat by uh, Chad Holloway. You can take a look at his Twitter if you want to see that. Now, you might think I am happy about this because I've had a lot of complaints about the Rio. It is not on the Strip. It's kind of isolated. It is run down and appears a lot older than its age. It's got a lot of maintenance problems. There's generally a lot of fail. So why would I not welcome a move to Bally's in Paris? Well, I somewhat welcome it, but I somewhat don't. First of all, I'm used to the Rio. I know all the little tricks within the Rio, how to get around quickly, where to get the best hotel room on the property that others may not know about, uh, where all the bathrooms are located, and, and how to get to the ones that are not used as much as the others, which is a big deal at the World Series, as you might guess. There's a lot of things I know about the Rio, which I feel give me a little advantage in some way. Just being a veteran of the place. I feel like it's almost like a home field advantage against those who don't know it as well. Bally's in Paris, I don't know that well. I don't know their convention space at all. And I'm not all that familiar with those hotels themselves because I've only stayed in each of them a few times. So I know the real... It's a whole new set of staff that you can berate, though. I mean, come on, there's got to be... It's like a... A nice ripe fruit just waiting for you to pluck it, you know? Well, what is good about this is that uh, some of the Rio staff might be used to me by now and uh, say, oh, this guy again. You know, screw him. We're not dealing with him. But at, at Bally's in you Paris, they don't know. They've got a picture of you behind the podium. Yeah, they, right? they, they don't know me yet at, at Bally's in Paris, so it's like fresh meat. <laughs> I, I guess that's a plus. That's one of the pluses. Uh, one of the, but the minuses are that I just don't know the place as well. And you may say, well, okay, just get to know it. Well, I will, but it's going to take some time. There's, there's things I learned about the Rio over the years that now I can't utilize anymore. I'll tell you one of the secrets of the Rio, which actually didn't work this year anymore, so at least I won't be giving this away. Well, there was actually a secondary way to do it this year, but there was a trick that a lot of locals used, locals in the know, used to get to the World Series of Poker. And I will tell you it now, because now it is something that is no longer relevant. Where the employees would park, there was if you went on, uh, on Twain, Twain and Valley View, and you turned right, uh, there was two ways you can turn into the Rio. The first one was the employee lot, and the second one was the regular lot. Well, from where the employee lot is, you can go through a back door into the World Series of Poker where you just pop out and you're just right there next to the Amazon room. 
And uh, that door was always open 24 hours a day, seven days a week. So it was a very easy way to get to and from your car. And you may say, well... It's been that way for years, man. I remember, I haven't been to the World Series in a long time, but I remember going in and out that door every day. Yes, yes. So that's, uh, people in the know would go in and out of that door, and it was very convenient, especially if you were a local and didn't, uh, weren't staying at the Rio, as I was for many years. But but even if you, uh, like, say you were staying at a different hotel and needed to drive there. Things like that, where it was very useful to get in and out of the Rio convention area and get to your car quickly and leave and get back. So that was one of the secrets that people got to know after being there a lot, and apparently even Calwatt knew it. Uh, also, hey, 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 come on, take it easy. Take <laughs> now, it easy. they locked that door this year, but then there was a secondary door where uh, a little further down you could get in in a similar way where you kind of get in through like the loading area. The, where they like a loading dock or something. It's kind of a weird thing, which I found by following someone else in there this year. So that was a, you would pop out in the Brasilia room. So they, they had little things like that. Um, there was, there were various bathrooms in the place that you would get to that wouldn't have a lot of people. For example, uh, if you would walk out of the convention area, there was a bathroom right there that tended to have a lot shorter line often no line. And if that did have a line, you could walk a little further into the casino and uh, there would be no line there. So I, I knew where every single bathroom was. The best room to stay at the Rio, I can tell you now because it's not going to be there anymore, was uh, anywhere between the 6th and 10th floor by the elevator with no connecting door in the Ipanema Tower. Now, why do you think sixth, between 6th and 10th floor? Why do you think that's the best floors to stay? I mean, if you jump from it, you probably won't die. I don't know. <laughs> well, the reason 6th and 10th, 6th through 10th was best is that uh, you didn't want to be too low because then it would be noisy from stuff on the ground. But you didn't want to be higher than 10. Ideally, 6 was the best because it, it was high enough to not be noisy and it was low enough to not have to wait on the brakes when you're going back to your room for all the other players to get off on the elevator. Because if you get floor 19... You're going to stop at three, then four, then five, then six, then seven, then eight, all the way up. And then when you come back, same thing all the way down. It was torture. So if you get something like six, you're not stopping very much. So that was uh, why between six and ten was the best. No connecting door because the Rio had surprisingly thick walls where you just wouldn't hear the people next door to you, even if they were loud. But if there was a connecting door, it went right through like it was paper. So uh, you did not want a connecting door. And close to the elevator, that's very simple. So you could get to and from the tournament very easily without having to walk down a long hallway. So you could get to your room and back very easily and conveniently, even on the 20-minute breaks. So I always would uh, make a lot of effort to get rooms of that description. And the Ipanema Tower, the reason I chose that is because that is the one that's much closer to the convention area. The Masquerade Tower is much deeper in, and there's no way you could walk back to your room and then get back to the tournament during a 20-minute break. So these these were things that I learned over time at the Rio, and there's much more. I'm not going to go through all of them. There are many more things I learned over time at the Rio that uh, gave me kind of a, an edge. Sometimes not a tournament edge, but kind of like a life edge, just being there where it was more pleasant. So I'll, I have to learn all these things now at Bally's in Paris, and I'm not looking forward to that whole process. 
it's kind of similar to how I've gotten so used to Norwegian Cruise Line, even though I haven't been on a cruise in a few years now. And I don't know when the next one I will do because COVID kind of ruined the cruising industry. But even though Norwegian had a lot of Caesars-like fail to it, I kind of didn't want to go to other lines because I learned Norwegian so well and I didn't want to have to learn another line like I knew Norwegian. Because I, I knew Norwegian better than a lot of the employees did. In fact, they even told me that. So one of the officers on board actually told me that. She said, you should work for Norwegian. You know so much about all this stuff. But I really did. Like I knew so much about Norwegian. And I kind of just didn't want to have to learn another line. Because I just like knowing a lot about hotels and cruise lines where I'm going to be spending a lot of time. So now I have to learn ballets in Paris and it's kind of a pain in the ass. Now, if you didn't know much about the Rio, that's not going to affect you. But I did. And I'm not looking forward to that part of it. But there's more to it. You may say, well, okay, but that's you, Druff. You, you knew the real really well. A lot of people don't. Okay, fine. But there's things that affect everybody. The traffic and parking may be a pain in the ass. Now, there is a big surface lot behind Paris that they might be able to utilize. But uh, I don't know how much of that is going to be open. And uh, I don't know how easy it is to get from that lot over into Bally's in Paris I know that the parking structure is going to fill up very quickly because this parking structure already serves both hotels. So you're going to have a combination of the guests already in both hotels plus all the World Series people coming in. So I think that structure is going to fill up really fast and it's going to be hard to get parking spots in there. And you may be stuck in that surface lot, which kind of sucks if you don't want the sun beating down on your car and you're going to get in your car. It's literally going to be like 140 degrees in there. I'm not kidding. So... Uh, the parking may be kind of a nightmare, as might be the traffic. One nice thing about Rio being off-strip, especially when I lived away from the Rio in Vegas, is that I could get to and from the Rio very quickly. On Anything on the Strip, you can't get to and from very quickly, as I'm sure you guys all know. So having it on the Strip, while you will now be able to walk to other hotels and casinos in the area, unlike at the Rio, you really couldn't do that, uh, now you're going to have all the Strip traffic to deal with when you come there. And this affects both locals and non-locals. So that's one downside to the whole thing. And upside is that there's a much bigger array of places you can stay now where you are walking distance from the tournament. Whereas before, there wasn't that much. Now you'll pretty much have everything center strip. Now, it becomes somewhat of a walk. But for example, if you want to stay at the Bellagio, you can. It's not terrible to walk from the Bellagio to Paris. You're not going to be able to go back on on short breaks, but is it going to be terrible to get from Bellagio to Paris or Bally's? No, not at all. You can easily walk between them and never touch your car. And even if it's hot, it won't be that terrible because you're not walking very far. So there will be a lot of places you can choose to stay, unlike the Rio where it was pretty much a race to get the Rio rooms at what wasn't a completely outrageous price. Or you'd have to stay somewhere, you'd have to drive to it. So that's one of the advantages. Another one is you'll just be there in the center of the action instead of isolated out there at the Rio. So those those are some nice things about it moving. But it is moving. And this is a done deal. This is not something they're just throwing around or considering. This has been officially announced, as I read to you. And it is happening. Is it possible that it will not be here for very long and could move to the convention center? Yes, they have not said how long it's going to be there, and they don't have to commit to it because they're the ones who operate these properties. 
this does take away Bally's and Paris as possible properties that Caesars is going to sell. Caesars had said that they are probably going to sell a Vegas Strip property in 2022. And we're not talking about the Rio, which has already been sold. So which one is it going to be? It's not going to be Caesars itself. And now it's looking like it's not going to be Bally's or Paris. And when I say sell, I mean actually fully sell, not just sell the real estate and the land, but actually sell it to a different operator to where they're just simply not going to be running it anymore. So that narrows down what they are going to sell. Some people are thinking Flamingo. Some people are thinking The Link, which is the former Imperial Palace. Uh, I think Planet Hollywood is most likely because I think that kind of fits into their portfolio in Vegas the least. I always thought Planet Hollywood is kind of a weird inclusion in their group of properties. And I could easily see them getting rid of it, especially because it would fetch a decent price. And it also would not disrupt their whole block of properties. Because if you think about Caesar's properties minus the Rio, they're all grouped together. And that's by design. So if they were to sell Flamingo or The Link, then they would have this middle property, which isn't theirs, which they don't really want. They've been they've been trying to occupy an entire area so they don't have the competition right smack in the middle. In fact, they even bought O'Shea's for that reason. And they also bought what's now the Cromwell. They, they bought uh, the Barbary Coast for that reason in terms of the Cromwell. So they, they wanted to have the whole block, and they do. So I think if they're going to let go of a property, it's probably going to be one that is on the outside of that whole block, which Planet Hollywood would qualify. Harrah's would also qualify. They could also uh, get rid of Harrah's, and it would not disrupt that. But I think that uh, Planet Hollywood's the most likely one that they will get rid of. Anyway, we'll tell you when that comes, but now that pretty much takes Bally's out of the mix, which had been thrown around as a possibility. I didn't think it was going to happen also because it was physically connected to Paris and it would be kind of weird to have that physical connection between two competing properties. So it kind of seemed to me like Bally's Paris are just going to be together and Caesar's going to own them both or not own them both and not one or the other. Overall, am I happy or unhappy about the move? I would say moderately happy. I'm moderately happy because I'm just kind of sick of the Rio. There's a lot of things about the Rio I don't like. The food options are terrible. The rooms are just getting more and more run down. It's clear they're putting no effort into the property. Loads of maintenance issues. The service kind of sucks there. And I'm just tired of it. So even though I know it really well, I am ready to move on to something new. Even though I have to learn some new things at the new location. And even though... I am going to be giving up uh, any kind of insider knowledge I have, at least for the moment. And even though I'm going to have to deal with the traffic and craziness of the Strip. Like, for example, something I like to do sometimes at the Rio is I sometimes like to go to locals' places from there, like during the dinner break. And that's going to be a lot tougher from Bally's in Paris. So that type of stuff is going to be off the table for me, which is too bad. So that's... That announcement, and if there's anything further to say about it, I will let you guys know. Let's talk about the main event, which is now over. The main event came down heads up to uh, two players who uh, are not really well known. In fact, 
the only player at the World Series of Poker final table, I'm talking about the main event, that had a bracelet was Chase Bianchi, who, by the way, was one of these uh, Jerry Yang-type uh, religious Christian guys. But he was known to be a very nice guy, and it was already talking about uh, donating to charity if he won. I mean, he already had a million dollars locked up, obviously, but uh, he was talking uh, about what he was going to do with money if he, if he won the whole thing. And from what I've heard of him, I don't know the guy personally, but from what I've heard of him, everybody thinks he's, he's just very nice, very pleasant. It was someone who was easy to root for even if uh, you don't agree with his religiousness. Uh, the, he, as far as as a person, uh, everybody seems to like him. But uh, he went out ninth. So the final eight, not a single one of them had a World Series of Poker bracelet. Yeah, who's your Jesus now? Busted ninth. <laughs> yeah, he, I, Jerry Yang kept praying he was going to win, and it worked. But it... Uh, I guess uh, Jesus was not listening to Chase Bianchi because he finished ninth. Though it's not bad. He still got a million bucks, but still not quite the same as winning. The top prize being uh, eight million bucks. So uh, the winner was Corey Aldemir, who was a German. And I had not heard of Corey Aldemir prior to this year. Had you heard of him? Never heard of him. No. He actually is a successful poker pro. So he has uh, now $20.3 million worth of cash's lifetime, which means he had over $12 million prior to winning this $8 million. So this is not uh, just some nobody. He was someone who's a, a very active tournament player. And uh, I think a lot of people don't know him just because he's European. So he and now was, he can pay off his stakers. This is fantastic. <laughs> he he is now a uh, better known name in the U.S. But yeah, whatever, it's just a typical youngish uh, poker pro. The only one who is above thirty eight years old at the table, similar to two thousand nineteen, where there's only one who was above late thirties, and that he ended up being the winner, Jose Ensign. Uh, we almost had that again. The old guy almost came through again. A 49-year-old, same age as me, came in second. His name, George Holmes. Now, unlike Corey Aldemir, who has a big, long list of tournaments he's cashed in going back nine years and adding up to $12.3 million prior to the main event, George Holmes did not have that at all. In fact, George Holmes had one World Series of Poker cash. In fact, he had one tournament cash total prior to the 2021 main event. And that cash was at the World Series of Poker main event in 2019. In fact, he and I had a very similar finish in 2019. Unfortunately, not a very similar finish in 2021, but in 2019, I finished 128th for 50 $59,000. He finished 213th for 50855 So he got a little less than I did, but uh, pretty similar. You know, the 8,500-something players, and he got 213th, I got 128th. That was his only cash ever at any live poker tournament. 
So he came right back trying to outdo his deep run in 2019, and he did. He got second. He said he plays cash at home in uh, Atlanta, Georgia, but that's not exactly a uh, hotbed of uh, poker activity. So Is he's this the really... guy who was down to one chip at one point? It's the same guy? Uh, I'm not sure. But, I think uh, it is. Trader Ruski sent me a link, and uh, apparently, <laughs> I'm pretty sure it was this guy. He was down to one chip at one point, and he, he worked it all the way Oh, back you're up. right. Yeah, he was down to one big blind. I see that. He was down to one big blind. Oh, okay, one he, big lo- blind, he lost yeah. an all-in pot against a uh, an opponent that had almost the same stack as him. And then uh, he quintupled up on the next hand, and... Uh, and then he got himself a, a little bit more. Uh, he had five big blinds and went back up from there. So obviously, uh, you need some luck to get to something like second at the main event, which got uh, 6,650 people. He, but uh, yeah, this George Holmes is not a pro player. He's not like this uh, Aldemir guy who's just going around from tournament to tournament and just racking up caches. This guy hardly plays tournaments. This guy said he really is only interested in playing the main event. He said, I only play the main event. I've been to a WSOP circuit stop in North Carolina a few years ago, but this is the only WSOP event I come out to play. So I, I don't know if he's played other main events prior to 2019. He's obviously done very well in the last two, especially this one. But he ended up uh, in second place, and he got uh, over $4 million here. He got uh, $4,300,000, a very nice score for him. I don't like to uh, focus on race very much on this show, but I, I should mention uh, George Holmes is black. He's a black 49-year-old. And uh, as is I mentioned... Is this John Holmes' brother? <laughs> I, I don't think so. You know, the porn star? Yes. The yes. guy, he didn't. He wasn't so blissed, is my understanding. But at least he's good at poker. You yeah. Know, he's not well endowed. But he, may not, he may not, yeah, he may not have as big of a dick as John Holmes, but, uh, you yeah. know, he, he has $4.3 million, so it doesn't matter. He doesn't matter. have a big dick, but let me tell you, he's got a big blind, Okay. <laughs> So George Holmes, the second-place finisher, he had a, a style which uh, apparently confused some people. He, being not a pro poker player, he, he played a bit differently than the others, and I guess it worked. And people had uh, a hard time sometimes reading him and figuring out what he was doing. Obviously had a good deal of luck, as anyone would have to have to get to the final table. Uh, this... Would have been an even better story had he won. It's not that interesting of a story when a European tournament pro wins it. And we've had other European tournament pros win in past years, and nobody really cared. And this year, nobody cares. Uh, If a guy who was a casual player to the point where he never had any tournament caches other than the main event two years ago wins the whole thing and isn't young either, the guy's 49 years old, uh, that would have been a nice story for poker. And in fact, it would have also been nice to have back-to-back main event winners who were older. Hossein Insan in 2019 was 55, and uh, George Holmes in uh, 2021, the next uh, live main event, had he won it, would have been uh, you know, 49. So that would have been nice to see. The reason it would be nice to see, not just because I'm an older guy myself, but also because this encourages others to come play and not be afraid that it's just always going to be won by a young person. Because you you don't want that to be the impression of the casuals who are watching the game, the middle-aged guys at home who are thinking they want to give this a try. 
if they see every year it's won by a 27-year-old, they're going to think, okay, well, there must be something about being that age that gives you an advantage. Maybe, maybe it's the stamina. Who knows what it is? But I, if it's always won by these guys in their 20s, uh, I don't have a chance. So if, if it's two middle-aged older guys who win it back-to-back years, that would have been great. But, you know, second place is nice, too. So this does at least show. Now, second doesn't get nearly the attention first would, but this does show you have a 49-year-old casual player who uh, managed to finish second. The final hand actually was of some interest. Usually the final hand isn't very exciting because you have one short-stacked player, you have one player with almost all the chips, the short-stacked player uh, picks a time to go all in, gets called, and the board runs out with five cards, and uh, then the guy with the bigger stack wins, and it's over. That's just about how every main event ends. This one actually had play to it. This one actually played on all the streets. And uh, it was a top pair against two pair situation. And it remained that way. And the final hand involved actually Holmes going all in for enough chips to where Aldemir had to think about it. Because he didn't even have top two pair. It was top pair against like middle two pair. And you may say, oh, come on, that's a snap call. Well, that's a snap call if your opponent is very short stacked. But remember... Holmes didn't come into the hand all that short stacked. I don't remember how many blinds he had, but they he had enough coming into the hand where it wasn't a no-brainer to just call off even with any pair or with top pair or even with two pair. Like here, I'm talking about how there was enough chips in the whole thing to where Holmes going all in at the end made Aldemir think, hey, you know, I if I lose this pot, this really puts Holmes in, in fairly good shape. So it's not like he would have been crippled. It's not like they had half the chips each and, the, and this hand played out this way. It was that uh, they both came into the hand deep enough and Holmes had top pair and was aggressive the whole way and went all in at the end. And Aldemir had to tank for a while and think about what he was going to do. And he finally made the call and won. Now, once he called, there was no more drama of further cards to be dealt because it was on the river. But people found it very interesting on Poker Twitter that we finally had a hand that ended the main event where there was an all-in and a not-so-clear call on the river. I mean, how often do we see that at the main event? It it usually is never going to happen because you're going to have one person short enough to where uh, it's going to be pretty much an all-in and call and a run-out or at the very least an all-in and call on the flop and a run-out. You're not going to have it where a hand plays to the river very often. I don't know the next time we're going to see that. So that was a, an interesting ending to the whole thing. And uh, Aldemir made the right call. He did have to think about it. And he ended up uh, being the winner with Holmes finishing second. And uh, some people complained that Aldemir tanked too much in general at the final table, not just in that final hand, but that he was uh, very slow and people didn't like it. He eventually put out a statement about this saying that uh, while he understands it doesn't make the best TV that people have to understand that he's playing for life-changing money, as is everybody else at the table, and that uh, their focus is on making the right move and winning and not making great TV. And he's got a point. I mean, you, this is very big money here. Just think between first and second. It's $4.3 million versus $8 million. It's a $3.7 million swing. And even earlier in the final table, you have, uh, at the very least, several hundreds of thousand dollars between each spot. So... You really can't fault these people for tanking and thinking about things, even if it doesn't make uh, 
great viewing on the stream. Now on yeah, TV- Druff, if, if I ended up binking that uh, main event, I would issue a statement as well. It would be a video statement, and I would just be rubbing all those bills on my titties, and then that would be it. That would be that would be my statement. Yep. So anyway, uh, that's when the when the final table came. I actually thought, you know, there's two people I'd like to see win this, and I'll, I'll give you a hint. It was not the German pro. Not that I had anything against him. I didn't know any of these people. I really knew none of them, except Chase Bianchi. I didn't know him, but at least I'd heard his name before. The other eight, I had no idea who they were. But I looked at the uh, description of all of them, and I said, okay, the two I'd like to see win would be Chase Bianchi, because everybody seems to think he's a nice guy. And uh, the second one would be George Holmes, because he's the uh, casual player and also near my age. I think that would be uh, a nice thing to see him win, for, for both for poker and just to uh, root for the old guy, because I'm one of them. I mean, the same age as me. I got, uh, the, the second... Oldest was 38, similar to, I think, uh, two years ago, the second oldest was 37. So the only one over 40 at the table was George Holmes, and he was almost 50. So it is nice that each year of the last two main events, there was an older person who not only made it, but uh, one of them won and one of them almost won. Anyway, let's let's move on. I want to talk about uh, the player of the year situation, which I usually don't talk about on this show because I'm not that interested in player of the year because every year there's going to be a player of the year. This show is about the poker community, but I like to talk about things that are interesting from the standpoint of either scams or drama or unusual stories. I don't like just talking about inevitable things. Someone's going to win the main event. Someone's going to win all these other tournaments. Uh, So Someone's going to win player of the year. So I, you, if you want to see these things reported, there's many outlets to get that. And unless there's an interesting element to it, I don't really like to mention it. But this year, player of the year was interesting for a few reasons. Now, first of all, Phil Helmuth, for all his World Series success, has never been World Series of Poker player of the year, which is pretty hard to believe, but that's the case. He's finished second a few times. But he has never been player of the year. It seems like he he has a lot of World Series where he wins one bracelet, but the, and a lot of World Series where he wins a bracelet and does a few other things, but he never has such a dominant World Series where he's better than every other single person that year. And hmm. this was another year like that. Obviously, he had a great World Series, despite wanting to burn the Rio down. He had a, a great World Series, and he's continued to have a great World Series the whole way. But again... He was trailing someone, and that was someone who would not have been predicted to be in the player of the year hunt, Josh Arie. Now, Josh Arie was first known for finishing third at the uh, 2004 main event. He finished behind uh, David Williams and Greg Raymer. That was the first uh, introduction to most people as uh, Josh Arie. Uh, I knew him before that on Poker Stars, and uh, he played under the name ATL, like Atlanta, which is where he was from, ATL space Angela. I don't know who Angela was. I don't know if it was his uh, wife or girlfriend or whatever, but he was playing as ATL Angela, and he had a picture of, like, a a gorilla. And uh, I used to talk shit to him in the chat whenever I beat him in hands in Limit Hold'em. I played a lot of Limit Hold'em against him, 
And whenever I won hands against him, I would type shock the monkey. And he, he got so pissed off, he hated shock the monkey. And so I just did it more and more and more to tilt him. Now, by the way, nobody knew who I was in those days. Nobody knew who Dan Druff was in person. I, I did not tell anybody who I was. Even though I played live, I didn't connect Todd the live player to Dan Druff. So I talked all kinds of shit, which maybe wasn't that wise because then I eventually had to like come out with who I was once I started playing the tournaments and then and then I had to face all these people that I talked shit to. Now, to Josh's credit, he never gave me a hard time in person about all the shit talk that I did on PokerStars. But anyway... Uh, Josh, I had thought he had left poker for like the 2010s. I, I thought he kind of just fell out of the scene. But he was really one of these people that has been around the entire time, and I just didn't realize it. It's it's funny because it wasn't even like he wasn't hitting any scores because he was. Just somehow it was every time he hit something, I just didn't see any mention of it. But uh, looking back on his Hinden mob, while he had some better years than others, like I don't know if, if in uh, 2015 he was busy doing other things or if he just uh, wasn't doing well, or both. But he had one cash in the entire year of 2015, and that was at uh, the 10K uh, Pot Limit Hold'em, back when they actually had that event. It's hard to believe they still had that six years ago, but they did, and he finished 12th for uh, 24K. But that was his lone cash the entire year of 2015. But other years, he, he did fine, and had a lot of World Series caches each year. For example, 2014, he had uh, five caches, including he finished second for 391K at the 5K No Limit 8-Handed event. So uh, so that was obviously a nice year for him. Uh, 2016, he had five caches. Uh, none of them were huge like that 391K, but he did get uh, 50th in the Monster Stack for over 20K. Uh, in, in 2017... He had four caches, including uh, two, including a big one, uh, 216,000, when he got third in the uh, 10K PLOA tournament. So you see he's been around and he's been hitting some scores. He even got second in the uh, Poker Players Championship two years ago at the last live World Series they had. This is the 50K Poker Players Championship. Now, I, by then I knew he was back on the scene. But I really hadn't noticed him until he did something. And what he did actually had something to do with me and you, Calwatt. Do you know what it is? Uh-oh. Did we lose Calwatt? I'm going to drop him. He can call back if he wakes up. Anyway, what happened with Josh Arie to kind of bring my attention that he was still around was that he actually bought a piece of me. He bought a piece of me in the 10K Limit Hold'em a few years ago. And he did it through Calwatt's Tasty Steaks site. I get this notification from Tasty Steaks that Josh Arier has reserved a piece of me in the 10K Limit Hold'em. So I go, okay, cool. So I messaged Josh Arier, how do you want to pay me? He paid me. Unfortunately, I did not cash, so Josh Arier lost money uh, backing me there. But uh, he, he bought a piece of me, not a huge piece, but uh, he bought a piece of me. So that was like, made me realize that Josh Arier was still around. For some reason, I just hadn't noticed even though he didn't disappear at all i thought he disappeared he really hadn't been i just hadn't seen so he's been here throughout the years and and hitting six-figure scores so he seems to be doing fine but not like he did in the 2021 world series and nobody expected him to be in the player of the year hunt because he doesn't try to win player of the year and he doesn't travel all around the country trying to win player of the year and he doesn't 
frantically enter tournaments. Now, he entered a lot of tournaments, as you'll hear as I, as I read them all what he played, but uh, he doesn't uh, grind the tournaments at the pace that others trying to win this award do. But nevertheless, he had a really, really good and prolific 2021 World Series. So he started out with a few uh, smaller caches, 46th in the 1K flip and go, 64th in the 1,508 game, 53rd in the 1,500 horse. Now these are going to help a little bit, but they're not going to win you player of the year, of course. But then he won a bracelet in the 1,500 PLO. He finished 6th in the 50K Poker Players Championship. He, f- he won another bracelet in the 10K PLO 8. And then he continued to cash. He got uh, four eleventh place for 30K at the main event. He actually could have gone deeper. He shot it off. He tried to run a bluff on someone who wasn't having it and called him down. So he was actually irritated. They, <laughs> the Poker News reported he seemed pissed off and was... Uh, shouting, uh, bring someone over here and pay me my fucking money. Like he was kind of annoyed, probably with himself that he had shot it off with a bluff like that. Anyway, undeterred, he went on to continue playing. He played the uh, WSOP online event, 3200 No Limit Hold'em, and finished fourth, and that counts towards player of the year. He played the 1500 No Limit Hold'em and and PLO event, which is uh, after the main Got a small cash there, 40th place. And then he started to run up a lot of points again. Final tabled the 10K seven-card stud high-low. Got ninth place. He also final tabled the 50K PLO. Got seventh place. And then at the 1K Super Turbo, he got 10th place out of a, a fairly big field. So not only was this a shitload of caches... 12 caches he got this year, but uh, he won two bracelets and he made like uh, three or four other final tables. So that was a monster series, other, uh, obviously. And uh, once he won that second bracelet, put Calwatt back on here. Hello. I am sorry about that. No problem. So uh, not only... <laughs> I, I dumped all my equipment Oh, and then I, 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 I hit some button on this thing and I couldn't figure out why the stupid thing wasn't working. Anyway, the, the more complex the equipment everywhere. Yeah. The more complex the equipment, the harder it is to use and the more fail that can well, happen. You should see, I got this shit balanced like all over the place. I got two laptops out. I'm sitting in my chair. Like it, it's shocking that it hasn't killed me yet. <laughs> so anyway, uh, Josh Aria, once he won that second bracelet in early November, then he was taking the lead in player of the year and it looked like it was going to be close between him and Phil Helmuth and even Negranu who hadn't yet won a bracelet this year was uh, having a lot of deep runs and was trying to catch up. And there were still a lot of events to be played after the main. So he didn't have it locked up, but uh, it looked like he actually locked it up. And it said that Josh Arie was the 2021 player of the year, according to the official WSOP account. It congratulated Josh Aria for winning player of the year, and he was very happy, and he went out and uh, celebrated, and it seemed like that was a done deal. But this is the World Series, so you know fail is going to occur. And uh, before we get to that, 
when Josh Arier was informed he won it, he tweeted at 12.21 a.m. November 23rd, so less than 24 hours ago, holy shit, I can't believe this really happened. I fucking won WSOP Player of the Year. What in the actual fuck? He said in a different tweet that he thinks that it's unlikely he will ever compete for it again, which maybe he will try now that he's won it already, but hold on, hold on. It may not be over. This may be premature. So this is from Justin Bonomo. This is tweeted at uh, 1.31 p.m. And I haven't checked what's happened since then. But Bonomo tweeted, Has online event number 10 been added <laughs> to the World Series of Poker Player of the Year standings yet? If not, Ben Yu is live to pass REA if he wins the 5K. That is the online event number 10. He's currently the chip leader with 30 left. Oops. <laughs> so, look like this is a bit premature. They uh, were then debating back and forth whether this was true or if maybe Bonomo had miscalculated something. David Williams, and remember, these guys are friends. Bonomo is friends with David Williams, and then they're friends with Ben Yu. They're, they're all from the Magic days, Magic the Gathering. But David Williams thought that maybe Bonomo was wrong. He said, if Ben wins, he'll be 49 points behind Josh. So is 57th in the online event, number 10, worth 50 points? Can't find the formula for online events. So uh, Williams thought that maybe that was wrong. But then uh, Bonomo pointed out that there's a 955 player of the year points that will go to the winner of the WSOP.com mini main event which is a $1,000 buy-in. And again, with 30 people left, Ben Yu was the chip leader. And that 955 points would be enough to uh, to push him up over it. So then Sean Deeb said, oh shit, it's 2019 all over again. RIP Josh. <laughs> That's referring to how it was believed that Daniel Negranu was the 2019 World Series of Poker Player of the Year and then it turned out that uh, Robert Campbell was the real winner due to a miscalculation. <laughs> that was very embarrassing. And now it looks like this may happen all over again if Ben Yu ends up winning. Adam Parsons wrote on Twitter, Considering the poker is an entire industry of math nerds, it's quite concerning that the WSOP consistently fails when attempting simple addition. This is embarrassing. I agree. It's not that surprising. <laughs> yeah, it's not that surprising, but I agree it's embarrassing. By the way, Bonomo said, I like Josh, but as a rule, I root for all premature celebrations to backfire. So good luck, Ben Yu. Now, he doesn't have to say that. He may like Josh, but obviously he likes Ben better. He, he's been friends with Ben for a very long time, going back to their magic days. So obviously, even if he thinks Josh is a decent guy, he is rooting for his friend. And there's nothing wrong with that. He doesn't have to say that way. I mean, it's a, if, if it's not over, it's not over. He's trying to say, Hey, my buddy is still in. So let's wait before we say who won this and WSB screwed up. And obviously this is not Josh's fault. He's not keeping track of this. WSOP is keeping track for him and gave him the, gave him the, the honor already. They, they said he won and I believed it too, but I should have known. So if you're going to say something, own it, right. You know, I mean, if you're going to be a dick, own it. If you're going to root for your buddy, own it. Yeah. Don't do this passive-aggressive bullshit. Yeah, and there's yeah. not even a reason to be embarrassed that you're pointing this out. Yes, that's his friend, and yes, his friend is still in the running. It's perfectly fine to say, 
that, uh, hey, I just want to point out that uh, Ben Yu's still in it. And he doesn't have to say, hey, he's my friend. If people ask, why are you saying this? He can say, well, number one, it's true. And number two, Ben Yu's my friend. And, uh, and I've been rooting for him the whole way to be player of the year. No one's going to say, what? You're rooting for your friend instead of Josh Arier? Like No one's going to say that. It's fine to root for your friend. So uh, I don't... And we need Master of Ceremonies Vince Vaughn to come in here and settle this for that us. That is bro. what we need. We totally need yeah. Vince. This is where he could totally be of use. Yeah. I can't even find... It's so hard to find the update for this event. I'm looking... There's like four different WSP online. There's Pennsylvania online, international, U.S. domestic, and U.S. international. Or U.S. and international. So and I, I missed part of it because I was using the bathroom. But is it basically there are still tournaments to be played, so mathematically he could still win? Is yeah, that if, if he wins the event that he's in, the online mm-hmm. event he's in, which I can't seem to find in the update, so I'm just going to give up. But if he wins... It, it, that that event where he's the chip leader with thirty left as of one thirty today, so it's probably it may be over by now because it's uh, either over for him or over completely because we're now like ten and a half hours later or nine half hours hours. Is later. WSOP Europe a thing? Or are they just tabled that? Or I'm not sure what's happening with that this year. I've heard nothing about that. Yeah, it probably didn't happen this year. I have because that counts attention. too, right? Yes. It does, but, the, but I remember unlike, there's something like some Helmuth or someone was in it and they had a chance to win or something if they did well in the WSOP Europe or something like that. Yeah, the difference is though so this, got, this year the World Series of Poker in Las Vegas was towards the end of the year, so that's what changed the order of things. But I, I think it may not have gone this year the Europe one, if I remember properly. Anyway, I can't find the event they're talking about, which is fail. You should be able to look this up, but I can't seem to find it. So uh, it's actually pretty funny if the EU is like, no, it's not safe to hold a poker tournament. And so a shitload of people from Europe just get on a, a enclosed space and fly in a plane, go through terminals and sit in a room with, you know, 6,000 other people and then fly back home, bring it back home with them. <laughs> Good luck, guys. Have fun. OK, so this is weird. It shows that he was in. He finished 57th in that event. It must be a different event because he already finished 57th in that mini main event, but that was on the 21st, and Bonomo was saying that he was in it, uh, uh, that that he was chip leader with 30 left, so now I'm really confused. I, I don't know what's going on here, but wh- whatever it is, Ben Yu, at least as, as of 1.30 today, was still alive and... He'd have to win that event, whatever he was playing, supposedly, to end up passing Josh Arie. So I don't know if this happened or not. Let me see. Let me take a look at Ben Yu's Twitter. Maybe that'll tell us. Um, Maybe he was just referring to it in a pansexual kind of way, like they could kind of share it, you know, pass it around back and forth. <laughs> yeah, he doesn't say anything there on his own Twitter, so I don't know what to say. Ben Yu actually uh, got knocked out by me at the 10K, or the 5K, actually. The 5K limit hold him. There was no 10K that year. The 5K limit hold him in 2013. He was my direct left, and I ended up knocking him out. That was like the Magic the Gathering table. There's like three Magic players. There's Justin, Ben... Oh, that must and, have been uh, horrible. <laughs> yeah, Justin Bonomo, Ben Yu, and uh, Gabriel Nassif were at the table. So, of course, all the Magic guys were just sitting there on the rail rooting for all three of them. But none of them won it. It ended up being won by an old guy, like an actual old guy who's like 65. Good for him. Yeah. 
Ronnie Barda was heartbroken there because he had two-thirds of the chips with three left, and he lost. He oh. finished, so, yeah, it was tough. He finished third. And I, I heard him on the break. I heard Barda on the dinner break. His friends were like, congratulations, man, you've got this. He's like, no, no, I don't like this. I'm going to get fucked. I know it. <laughs> he was right. He did get fucked. He came back from dinner and lost every hand and finished third. Oh. Yeah, that was painful. That's got to be the worst. Anyway. Not quite as bad as bubbling, but it's it's pretty bad. No. No, it's, that's not not good. <laughs> sorry, Drop. <Ruff>. Sorry. <laughs> cheap, cheap shot. No, cheap I bubbled, shot. I bubbled no, that sorry. event, too, the previous year. The previous year, I was oh. the stone bubble on that one. And I lost like four good, good hands to do it. It wasn't even like I was a short stack. Anyway, uh, we'll see what happens. I have a feeling REA is going to hold up, and maybe he already has. But as of one thirty today, he was prematurely awarded it, apparently. At least if Bonomo's Magic the Gathering math is correct. So we shall see. Hey, you know how you were uh, you were talking last week about the late registration and how Matisau was talking about how ridiculous it was and all that? Yeah. So I, I was listening to it in the car, and one of the things that I was thinking about was, well, you know, what is it? And it, you hit the nail on the head, but what is it that makes a tournament different from a cash game? You know, it's both poker, right? And I think the main thing that differentiates the two is that everyone is starting with the same level playing field when they're playing the tournaments. You know what I mean? In terms of the time that they start, in terms of how many chips they start with, et cetera, et cetera. And it's just, I mean, it's its getting kind of weird. You know what I mean? I guess you can have these late reg events and rebuys and all this kind of stuff as special events, but if it gets to the point where it's kind of normalized, it just seems like... I don't know. It seems like it's kind of moving away from what I imagine tournament poker to be about, which is that you know any old person can sit down and play. Doesn't matter how rich or poor you are, as long as you got the buy-in, you're good to go. But then you, you start to get into the tournaments where people, you know, pros like Negranu or sponsored pros can just rebuy at an infinitum. It just seems, I don't know. I, I'm not a fan. Yeah, I'm not either. I, I I feel the same way as you, and I find it annoying that between the rebuys and the super late reg where these pros enter so many and their pockets are so deep that they say, Hey, I don't care if I play one or two hands, I'm going to show up there. I'm going to obviously be short stacked, but a lot of the field will be out already. I'll show up. I'll try to double up. If I don't, no big deal. Move on to the next one. If I do, okay, great. Now I'm in great shape to cash. And it's annoying because it changes really what these tournaments are about and how you can be successful in them. There's a big difference in being able to show up very late, not that far from the money and have to double up and then you're fine between that and having to show up at the beginning and survive all the way through. It's a big difference. Yeah. And, and, and you know what I'm saying? Like the, the thing about tournaments is it normalizes a lot of the variables, right? Everyone starts with the same stack at the same time. They have one buy-in, you know, and the, and that's it. They're good to go. So they've, you know, they've made it so, okay, it's not one buy-in. You can have, you know, nine rebuys for this particular tournament. And it's not everyone starts at the same time. You can register even a day later. How long, Druff, is it until some genius figures out that they're going to introduce the variable stack poker tournament? Where depending on how much you buy in for, you get a different amount of chips. Yeah, I could see that too. I could easily see that totally happening. Totally could see that happening, yeah. right? You know, or I mean, I, yeah, or, or like, and or like post bubble buying in, where you can buy into the money, but you have to pay a lot more to get in. 
and yeah. and you start with like an average stack based upon uh, um, how much you have to pay to, at, at certain points you can come in. I could easily see things like that. So would you like to come in close to the final table? Okay, pay this much. And people say, hey, this is great for poker. It adds to the prize pool. You go, no, that's not and, great for and poker. They've already, and they've already kind of done – I mean it's a, it's been around for a while in terms of – you know, being able to buy a bigger stack in that you'll have tournaments where there's an add-on. You know, I'm sure we've all done tournaments where there's an optional add-on that if you want, you can do it. It's not that, it's, no, it sounds stupid, but it's not that big of a leap that they would offer some kind of tiered entrance where, you know, if you want to start with double the chips, you pay double the buy-in or, or something like that, you know? Yeah, and I, I can see even your dog doesn't like that tournament poker's gone this way. Yeah, the, even the dog is pissed off. The yeah. dog is just like, what no, the, the dog, hell are you guys doing? The dog is getting worked up about this. You're, you're talking about it, your dog's like, yeah, I agree, I agree, I agree. Go back to freeze-ups, go back to freeze-ups. <laughs> but you know what I'm saying? Like Everything that was that made tournaments tournaments in terms of the constants that were in there have become kind of variable to the point where it's just like it, it's giving edges to a, a certain type of person. And it may even get to be complicated to the point where recreational players are just like, I, I, I don't know, like, you know, what should I be doing here? How many times should I rebuy? You know? Even even just allowances, like, let's say the latest point you could enter, let's say between the field getting tougher and the fact that they're coming in short stack, let's say it was calculated that that negates whatever EV they're getting from people being busted before they even enter, and it's a zero EV proposition for them to enter at that time i'm not saying it is but let's say it even was still they get to cut off a lot of hours that others had to sit there spending playing to get to that point so it becomes a life benefit for them that they didn't have to sit in the poker room for that first day or the first several hours so that has to be computed in as well and then i don't like the argument of oh you can just enter late too because a lot of people are coming there for the tournament experience and those who want to get the tournament experience shouldn't have to be playing at a disadvantage against those who just want the uh, to enter as late as possible for the best ev or even just to cut off time to where it's basically neutral whenever you enter it should be that if you don't enter on time then you suffer some sort of uh, degradation to to your chances. That you come in with a shorter stack, or or whatever it is, or you pay you pay some kind of uh, extra money to enter, and not, not the way you were describing it, but just like something where there there's like a late penalty to enter, to where at least it can be justified that it's adding money to the pool uh, beyond the person's buy-in to negate the EV, because the more they pay, the the less their EV is. But something should be done, and I totally agree with Mattisau that this is getting out of control and it's becoming kind of a disgrace, and it, it shouldn't be this way because that's not what tournament poker is about, especially if it becomes, as you said, commonplace rather than just an occasional event that's like this. So yeah, I, Fast I, forward five years, and some pro is going to be talking on Twitter about, uh, you know, I was on my uh, ninth buy-in on day three, <laughs> And I decided to buy in for triple the stack, and I computed that my EV was still positive, and blah blah blah. Yeah, I mean, I could totally see it happening. Yeah, but you know what I'm saying? I'm not. I'm not saying that the first freeze out invented was the be all and end all, and it should just stay that way. I'm just saying. I was thinking about it from an abstract point of view. That what makes tournament poker different from cash game are these constants that are there. You got to be. You got to be there at a certain time. You can't just show up whenever the fuck you want. You buy in for a fixed amount, and you get the same stack as everyone else. It's all normalized, you know? 
and you can't then rebuild your stack. I mean, that that to me is what makes a tournament a tournament. Otherwise, you know, you can just go play cash game or whatever. Yeah, I, I realize that there's a little bit more to it. There's there are the payouts. There's uh, the blinds that increase and all of those. I, I realize that those are other elements of a tournament, but still, that's that to me is what I appealed to me about tournaments is that uh, you really kind of know what you're getting into and everyone really is on the same playing field. Whereas now, first of all, it gives an advantage to uh, pros or people with money or, you know, people that have the time to put in to, to you know, sit there and, and, and rebuy all the time. And then also it's just such an obvious money grab from the people running the tournaments. You know what I mean? I mean, it's just such an obvious money grab. Well, and that, yeah. And that bothers me because they're not making these decisions at the level of the of running the tournament of what's best for the tournament they're doing it what's best for their pocketbook what's best for their bottom line so if they can take in the most rake this way then they're going to do it this way yep. and it doesn't matter if they're ruining the integrity of the tournament or if they're changing the tournament to something that it was never intended to be i i, I totally agree with this and it, also i i see Tournaments are somewhat of an endurance test that you've got to sit down from mm. the beginning and play good or decent poker the entire way. And if uh, on the first day you don't play well, then you're going to be out. Or if you just run badly the first day, you're going to be out. I don't like being able to just skip that first day. For I don't like how others can do it. They can skip the first day. It's, it's like just, if you're holding, yeah. It's like if you're holding a marathon, and you're like, you know what? You, you can register an hour into it. It's okay. You can start at mile 13. It's no big deal. You know, it's fine. <laughs> just go ahead and do it. Yeah, that is kind of like that. Like, just run for mile 13. And, and what we're going to do here is uh, we're going to average what fatigue you would have likely had from the first 13 miles and add that onto yeah. your time. And then uh, yeah. well, you'll say, no, but it's not the same thing. You're supposed to run the whole thing. No, 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 no. It's fine. We, we can look at how they're, they're, these 13 miles go and how they probably would have done for those 13 miles. And we'll just we'll fix their time to where it makes sense. And we'll start them at the right time compared to everybody else. And it'll be equivalent. You're like, no, it's just it's a race from start to finish. Like, it's, it's a good point. That's exactly how I feel about this. And I don't the, like the it. The 2030 World Series of Poker Druff held in the Luxor Poker Room. <laughs> They're going to be the tournament directors are going to be scratching their heads, being like, "I, I don't get it. There, none of the recreational players are showing up anymore. All we're getting is a bunch of pros, and they, no one, they can't even afford these tournaments. They're all just staking each other all over the place, and it's become miserable. We're not making money anymore. I don't know what happened. You know, it's like a, it's like a scorched earth. It's like overplanting the the soil. You know, where you, you plant all these crops and you just kill the soil to the point where in in a decade. Nothing grows. You know? They're going to say, well, normally at this point in the main event, it would be heads up. But we now have a third person buying in for uh, $5 million. Yeah. Uh, Carrie Katz, uh, <laughs> right. billionaire Carrie Katz, owner of Poker Go, is uh, buying into the main event. So he'll be uh, the third contestant here. And this adds to the prize pool. He's bringing a lot great... of value to the tournament. He's added a total of $1 million to the prize pool. So it's, uh, it's a great thing for poker. Yeah. Like, how far should it go? <laughs> I love when people. I love when Negroni was saying, uh, "Oh, well, it's it's not an advantage to register late." I'm going, what are you talking about? Of of course, at some point, it can be an advantage. And I was saying, so I tweeted back. He didn't respond to me, but I tweeted, "What if you could enter right before the bubble? Would that be an advantage? Right. Uh, what about two before the bubbles? So where is it not an advantage?" And he didn't answer because that's it, the the people who are like, "Oh, it doesn't. It's not an advantage because the easier guys to play against are out by then." They they right. can't answer so- about the other side of this. Of okay, well. 
obviously, if buying in on the bubble is a huge advantage, then where is it not? They can't answer that because that's that's a great point that there's no way to respond to without killing your claim that registering late can't be positive expectation. So yeah, I, I I'm glad you agree with me on this. And when I saw so my for the main event for the main event, how many days did you sit there playing poker until you got to fifty from the bubble? Three. So you're there. <laughs> Would you have paid the ten thousand dollars <laughs> to enter? At 50 from the bubble, not having to play any of those three days, but you would have started with the, the starting step. Oh, 100% would I would have that? entered there. Yes, 100% I would have entered with that because that's a, <laughs> right? be, that would be extremely positive EV to enter because uh, I just have to double up and uh, and I've got an okay shot at, at making the money. And, and forget just making well, the money. Just that. Could, you weren't sitting there for three days. And I wasn't sitting there for three right? days. But even ignoring the three days, that <laughs> would be a great thing because I've I've avoided busting for the first 5,600 spots, which, were, which went out before right. me. So that's uh, – surviving is a big thing. And you, if you get to buy survival into two-thirds into the tournament, at least the main event, you can't do that. At least the main event, when you can buy in at the last time, there's still more than half the field left. But there's some tournaments where you could yeah. buy in where there's like 70% of the field left. It's a joke. Anyway, right now, what would you pay now? All right, let's say that. Oh, what would I pay? Um, that's, that's a good question. What was the what was the what was the average stack at fifty from the bubble? Do you have any? Just roughly. Um, I, I can actually tell you it's uh, it's like about four hundred k or so. Okay, so what would you pay to buy in at an average stack? So four hundred k, so not even a starting stack at fifty from the bubble. Now ten down. I know ten grand is what the entrance fee is, and I realize that you know you, you got to do more than just min cash to make it back. But what would you pay to start with a average size stack at fifty? That's from a the good bubble? question. I, I I've never tried to calculate that. I did kind of think about it though when I was getting deep two years ago of like how much is my stack actually worth right now? How much would I if someone yeah, offered I'm sure me to buy out? EV, if you had enough time, you could use an EV yeah. calculator to figure out what the exact number is, but. I bet you it, it would be surprisingly high. Yeah, I think it would you know, be too. Especially because, someone that knows what they're doing, it yeah, probably would be surprisingly high. Yeah, and and also you could uh, not only could you get all the way deep and and win it or come close to winning it for a lot of money, but also because people are falling out so fast after the bubble, you you can uh, with a decent stack kind of just cruise there into decent money. Like it's not that hard at that point once the bubble bursts to cruise into a thirty k payout. It starts from fifteen, but uh, kind of cruise into into 30 like i was even looking at that because had i cashed 26k or more i would have been at a million dollars cashed total in my lifetime in uh, tournaments and uh, so i was hoping to do that and i thought you know what if i just get past the bubble um provided i'm like not super short stacked not that that'll be my goal but it won't even be that hard to get to the spot where i'm going to be cashing 26k and uh, so if I, I bet if I make the bubble, then I've got a decent – unless I'm super short-stacked, I've got a decent shot at really hitting that. So Now, how long before the World Series partners with some Asian tour companies where people can buy in for the real WSOP experience where they buy them in – you know, fifty from the bubble or whatever it is. You know what I mean? I yeah, see I mean, that I, 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 I wouldn't see be them su- partnering with. Yeah, I wouldn't know? be surprised if they started introducing things like that and justify it like, "Hey, this is adding mass money to the prize pool." So the yep. this is different than just letting people buy in for the regular uh, buy in for the tournament and come in late. Hey, look, guys, they're they're paying they're paying five times whatever the the buy in is. So look yeah. how much money this is adding. 
I could see them totally justifying sort of like a, that. Like a Make-A-Wish foundation for degenerates, you know what I mean? Yeah. I've always wanted to get in the World Series. Some some multi-millionaire, billionaire, whatever is just like, you know what? I don't have time to deal with all this shit. Just I want to cash in the World Series. How much is it going to cost me? You know. <laughs> well, that's one thing I like about the main <laughs> event is even though they allow the the day two buy-in crap. Other than that. It's only a freeze-out, and there's none of these bullshit shenanigans. And even with the late registration, yeah. there's more than half the field left. So that's really the most for pure now. tournament there is. Yeah, for now, I know. For now. <laughs> okay, let, let me go to the final World Series topic. Daniel Negreanu is going to be happy to leave the Rio. And that is because of this odd situation with his... Uh, record at final tables at the Rio, which is really only being discussed this year. And I hadn't realized this. I, I admit I wasn't closely following his career, and I and I guess I kind of noticed that he hasn't won bracelets recently. But I constantly saw him at final tables. I kind of just got the impression that he's always there in the mix. He even made like 10th or 11th of the main event one year. And I didn't really think about that he's really bricking these final tables pretty hard. So he's made 26 final tables in the time he's been at the Rio from uh, 05 to 21. And of those 26 final tables, he's won one bracelet. And it wasn't that recently. It was in 08. He won $2,000 limit hold'em, which doesn't even go anymore. That event is gone. That's the only event he's won. $2,000 buy-in, limit hold'em in 08. He's had 26 final tables. And that's the only one he got. This really came to be discussed for two reasons. Number one, it's leaving the Rio. So people are saying that he'll be happy to get out of there and maybe finally start winning bracelets again. The other is that it looked like he was about to close it out at the Rio finally with a bracelet. He was in the 50K PLO, and there were three people left. He was one of them. Helmuth was the second one, and Jeremy Osmus, who had already won a bracelet in the 2021 World Series and also once uh, finished ninth at the WCP main event. He was also there as well. Negreanu and Helmuth were both trying to chase player of the year, so this had implications for that too. When the whole thing was over, it was not Helmuth or Negreanu who captured the 50K PLO, it was Jeremy Osmus. Now, Negranu had a 2-1 to chip lead over Helmuth and Osmus combined, but was unable to close it out, kind of like what happened to Ronnie Barda at the 2013 uh, 5K limit hold'em I was talking about. This was his ninth top three finish in live WSP events in the last eight World Series. And he bricked all of them. Remember, his last win was in uh, 2008. He won some WSOP Europe titles in 2013. But as far as at the Rio, he uh, had had gone uh, nine different times, including this one, where he finished second or third and did not win a bracelet. Negreanu said to Poker News, Luck, ultimately, this is what I think a lot of people don't realize about poker. The long run, we won't ever get there. Everyone's going to go through phases of losing. When I started out my career, the first eight final tables I made, I won. Well, that's not normal. Now, he's not just talking about the World Series. Uh, he's talking about just 
any final tables he made in tournaments in his career, he won the events in the first eight. So he's saying that wasn't normal, nor is uh, going one for 26 at the Rio at final tables. What's really amazing about this wasn't just that he kept coming in short stacked and going out ninth. It was that he was really in the mix to win so many times. He's had now uh, nine straight final tables at the World Series where he gets to uh, uh, second or third and doesn't win. Now, he didn't get nine seconds, second or third. He didn't get nine consecutive second or thirds in a row, but he there has been nine times now he's gotten second or third without winning. So he, he really thought he was going to get over the hump and win this one. But not only did he not win it, he didn't even finish in second. He finished in third. So that uh, was incredibly disappointing for him. He said, I'm always a consistent performer while I'm there, referring to the Rio, but... Uh, while that's accurate, he just has not won bracelets. His lack of winning bracelets in 2019 cost him Player of the Year. He did win Player of the Year in 2013 thanks to his two European bracelets. But he had apparently won Player of the Year without even winning a bracelet in 2019. But after the miscalculation was figured out, then Robert Campbell was awarded, as I mentioned earlier. I think Negreanu's got to pay a couple million more to Choice Center. <laughs> so, so while he's definitely been successful at the World Series of Poker, he really hasn't done anything bracelet-wise at the Rio other than that one event. In fact, he and I have the same number of bracelets at the Rio, both in Limit Hold'em. He has won three prior bracelets at the World Series of Poker that takes place in Las Vegas. I'm not counting the European ones. He In 1998, at Binion's, he won $2,000 pot limit hold'em. In 2003, he won 2000 shoe, which is a version of horse minus raz. And then in 03, he won 2000 limit hold'em for the first time. So his win at the Rio was actually his second win at 2000 limit hold'em. But these were all at Binion's. He only had one win at the Rio. So some people are thinking that maybe he will be happiest of all to get out of the Rio and be in a different venue. Now, I have to imagine he was very aware of this, even though the rest of us are only talking about this now. He was probably very, very aware because how do you get all those final tables? How do you get 26 final tables and just keep failing to win the bracelet? and only win once out of those 26, and the last time being 13 years ago. He had to be very aware of that. Obviously, he's very aware of the fact that he has not won a bracelet in the World Series of Poker in the 2010s or 2020s, while his friends and peers have. Look at how many Helmuth keep winning. Yet he keeps getting so close. So this probably gets in his head, and I I, I wonder if this affects his play. I wonder if he he gets there and goes, oh, this is going to happen again. I'm going to get fucked again. I, I don't know if that's in his head, but it, it probably is to some degree. And I'm not even blaming him. I'm not saying that he's making himself lose or he's playing badly. I haven't really watched how he's played here. But there is something to be said for having confidence. And sometimes it can inform how you play if you're pretty sure something bad is going to happen. So there's not much more to say about this. I don't think that this is... Anything but luck and maybe this being a little in his head towards the end of this whole streak. Sometimes it's just going to fall this way. And for Negranu, 
this happens to be how it is. And I think this is where a change of scenery helps you. To a lesser extent, I can relate to this because when I'm in a tournament and I'm getting clobbered at a table and they move me, I'm very, very happy for two reasons. Number one, I'm away from players who perceive me as someone who is losing and are taking shots at me, and it's it's hard to play when it's like that. Unless you get run over with the deck, then it's great. Otherwise, uh, it's, it's hard to play with everyone uh, perceiving you as a loser and, and tr- constantly trying to take shots at you. And, and then the second thing is just a change of scenery, a psychological change in scenery, even if it's just moving a table over, that I'm with different people who I know view me differently, and everything just feels different. It feels like a fresh start. And that has happened before, where I, I'm just getting clobbered, and I get moved tables, and then it turns around. And some of my deep runs at the World Series in the last few years have been ones like that. I had a uh, No Limit Hold'em event that I think I got like 30th place a few years ago, and that was like out of a big field. And that was one where it looked like I wasn't going to come close to cashing. I was just dwindling down, losing every hand, every hand, every hand. And they say, okay, the table's breaking. They move me to another table. Second I sit down, I get jacks. I I win the hand. Then I just start winning, and it's a completely different atmosphere to me. And, And I started running it up. And I've had the reverse where I'm doing great, and then I get moved tables or my table breaks. And then I think, ah, that sucks. I got moved away from that table. I wish I was still there. And then I start losing. So some of it is mindset, and uh, it's always better to have a positive mindset, and not a false positive mindset where you're forcing yourself to think positively when you're really not. I mean a real positive mindset versus a real negative mindset. And it is hard to have a positive mindset when over and over you went, you're at the final table. When you get to the top three, you keep losing. And over and over in general at the final table, you just do not get there and get the bracelet. And you don't know anyone else who has that type of record at the final table like you do. You're, you're one of the best in poker of getting to the final table, but then you just can't convert it to bracelets. It's got to be frustrating. So I have to imagine it must affect his play somewhat. It would be hard to imagine where it didn't. I know if I were him, it would affect my play. But I think a lot of this really is just luck, as he's saying. that He just is the one who seems to run out of luck when it gets down to the final three. I mean, he's obviously a very good player, right? So I'm not shitting on him or anything. The fact that he's made this many final tables is impressive on its own, you know? Yeah. But it it really it really has to eat at you. You know, it's some he needs like some poker Viagra or something so he can perform, <laughs> you know? Close the deal. Well, yeah. Know? Well, I think especially because he's held to a different standard than the typical player because he's one of the best known poker players in the world and he's the face of GG Poker and he keeps making these final tables and then he's friends with guys like Helmuth who just win bracelet after bracelet after bracelet and so people are like okay well, where's Negrano's bracelets and well there hasn't been one in 13 years and that, that's got to be something that he every year he goes in okay, okay this, this year I'm going to play a ton of events I'm going to get through with a bracelet in one of these nope doesn't happen I mean who would have thought that at the Rio that the last bracelet that Negrani was going to win was 08. No one would have guessed that. <laughs> and then you'd think, okay, if he hasn't won since 08, he must just be either out of poker or just playing very badly or broke. But no, he's had 26 final tables. He's had 
nine straight finishes of, of second or third without a first. So it, it really just looks like running bad at the wrong time. And probably a little bit in his head, too. But, yeah, I'm sure that's really annoying to him. And he will probably be happy just to get a reset here. And we'll see if uh, 2022 is the year that uh, Negreanu finally wins a Las Vegas World Series of Poker bracelet again. You know who I feel even worse for than Daniel about this is Amanda. <laughs> because you, you know that he comes home and you know that she... She gets it. You know what I mean? She gets unloaded upon. Oh, my God. You know what I mean? Yeah. It fucking happened again. It fucking happened again. Can you believe this shit? I just every time, (laughs) just every time I get to the final fucking three, two thirds of the chips fucking gone. I'm going to destroy this fucking laptop right here. (laughs) Picture. We we saw his temper when when he did those streams where he was going nuts and and, uh, and then had to tell his dog or his cat like oh no no no! i'm not mad at you i'm not mad at you like he even scared his animals there when he was freaking out and that was just when he was playing uh tournaments where he wasn't even at the final table so can you imagine how he feels when he walks out of there so yeah i i have to imagine that amanda has heard some of this frustration and every year it must eat at him a bit more when he has one so this this one had to really hurt the 50k plo not only is it a lot of money but to have two-thirds of the chips and think, okay, I'm going to finally get it this time. I've got two-thirds of the chips. And yeah, I'm against uh, two good players here in Helmuth and Jeremy Osmus, but i got two-thirds of the chips. I'm going to, I'm going to get this one. Nope, doesn't even get second. <laughs> so that's, uh, that's, that's pretty rough. Jeremy Osmus, by the way, has listened to this show before. He's not a regular listener, but uh, he complimented me when we were at the World Series uh, in a recent year. Not this year. I think it was in 19. We were at the same table, and he complimented me on a segment I did on this show that he had actually referred me to. I, I'm not going to go into the full details of it, but uh, he had uh, alerted me to a story, and uh, and I covered it. And then he went and listened, and he said that uh, it was done very well, and he was impressed. So I said, well, thank you. It's nice to hear that you liked it. But he's, he's a nice guy. I, I've... Uh, played with him a few times and everybody likes him and he's just uh, a very pleasant guy to play with always very polite and you actually never see him get pissed either like I when I played with him at the main event one year he he had pretty decent chips then he just started losing every hand and then he was out and he just uh, he he didn't even look pissed at all he just kind of stood up and left when I busted you could tell I was pissed I I didn't do anything bad I didn't uh create any kind of scene, but you, you could tell I wasn't happy. But he doesn't look like a winning bus. He just kind of gets up and walks off and seems okay. He's just kind of a hard person to to flap, but this year he must have been pretty happy with the two bracelets, especially at the 50k PLO. He was kind of like a 510 grinder, even after that finish he had at the main event where he won a million dollars. So he was someone who was just grinding uh, mid stakes for a long time, but I guess he took a shot with his 50k PLO, or maybe maybe because he already won a, won a bracelet. I didn't know he played the high stakes events like this, but uh, good time to choose to play it when he wins it. He won over a million, 1.188 million. He won by coming back and uh, getting those chips from Negreanu. So good job to Jeremy Osmus. Good to see him doing well, as I like him. And let's move on to our non World Series topics. Now, this, this one kind of bugs me. 
not a huge deal, but it kind of bugs me. This is about the record for longest poker session. Now, before we get into the record, Calwatt, what is the longest live poker session you have played in number of hours? Um, it's close to 20 hours or something like Probably almost a day, I think, something like that. Yeah, that mine is a little longer than that. Mine was 26, and I had a second one, which is about 24. And I uh, felt like shit for days, man. <laughs> well, the, <laughs> a, after both of them, I slept very long. Uh, th- th- there was kind of a funny story with each of them. Uh, the 26-hour session I had was at Commerce, and I've talked about it before on this show. I never missed a hand in those 26 hours. And that brings up the question, how did you go to the bathroom? And people always guess I must have had a bottle I was peeing in. No, that's gross. I would not do that. What I did is I'd wait for a big hand to develop and then sprint to the bathroom, pee, wash my hands, sprint back, and hope I don't miss any hands. And every time I got back on time. And it was a pretty action game. It was a limit hold'em game, and it was a pretty action game. So when I folded the hand and I saw a lot of action going on in the hand, I knew I would have some time. So, and the bathroom wasn't that far, so I was able to do it. I was able to play 26 hours without missing a hand. It was a very, very good game. I did very well in the game. And I think this is like an 03 or 04. And I had already been up a number of hours before getting there because I didn't expect a 26-hour session. So I had been up like... Uh, 12 plus hours before even getting there and then i get in my car to drive home and the freeway actually gets closed while i'm on it i go no (laughs) i had the motorcycle cop get in front of me and a few other cars and do that swerving thing to stop you from passing them and they closed down the freeway to i don't know i don't know why or what they were doing but I had to sit there for 25 minutes where I'm just trapped on the freeway. I said, no, of all times, I'm so exhausted. I almost got a room to stay there, but I decided to be cheap about it. I decided that I I don't want to pay for a room there, that I I still feel okay enough to drive home, which is about 45 minutes away. So I thought, you know what? I can just make the drive home. I'm not going to pay for a hotel room. Seems like a waste. And then I felt so stupid when I was stuck in that traffic jam. And sometimes those can last for like six hours. So I was really, really afraid that was going to be the case. Fortunately, it was only about 25 minutes. So while it was unpleasant, especially the uncertainty, but I was able to proceed normally from there. By the time I got into bed, I was up for a personal record 40 hours. And then I slept 16 hours straight after that. Yeah, that's no good, man. I remember we drove all the way from where we were down to uh, down to Key West without sleeping, and we like switched. It's just me and a buddy of mine switching drivers. We were hallucinating towards the end. It was not good. Yeah, I I can imagine. And uh, the other one that I had, I sat down in a game at Bellagio, and there was a massive fish at the table who was very well funded, and he like didn't even understand like when a hand would be counterfeited. He didn't understand if the board is a six king king three and he has a six. He doesn't understand that the six doesn't play as the second pair. I won sixteen k in that game, but um, it was weird how it went because I won fourteen k initially, then chunked off twelve of the fourteen, just running really bad, and I was down to two k. And then I went on a hot streak at the end and finished up 
at my high 16K. So it was definitely a worthwhile uh, 24 hours I spent in that game, walking away uh, 16K in the in the black. But I never saw that guy again. I came back the next day hoping to find him. I was like, hey, will I see you again? Oh, I don't know. I may come around sometime. He never came back. I never saw him again. So it was too bad. Don't know who he was. Don't know if he ever played poker again. But it was nice playing with him that time. I will say that. Very nice guy, too. Like, uh, he he wasn't pissed when he was losing either. And he must have had a lot of money because he'd, like, win, like, a 30K sports bet. And he'd go, oh, look, yeah, that one won. Oh, cool. Okay. Let me go get the money from that. Like, he, he wasn't even like, oh, yes, I won that 30K sports bet. He was like... It was like he just won $30 the way he was treating it. So I, I don't know. And this guy was not old. He was like around my age. So I don't know where he got all this money. Maybe he inherited it. But whatever it was, money didn't mean much to him. And he was very nice and pleasant to have at the table. But he was also a huge fish. So I was not leaving that game. That was one of those games where you just you just don't want to leave because it's not going to be duplicated. You're not going to come back the next day and find it. So that one i stayed 24 hours that was my second longest session ever but let's now get back to the present a guy decided that he was going to try to break the present record for longest poker session ever which is a lot longer than 26 hours as you might guess now the last record was set by a pretty well-known player phil Locke. this was in 2010 and I was living in Vegas at the time, so I actually was present for this. I wasn't in his game, but I was in the table right next to his game. And he had a camera on it. He was streaming it in some way. This was uh, before people were really streaming poker action, but he actually got permission from the Bellagio to set up a camera there and to stream his epic poker session where he was going to set the record for longest ever poker session. He was playing ten twenty No Limit, it was right next to my 100-200 limit hold'em table. And I asked, what's this camera about? What's going on here? I even talked to Phil a bit when he was doing it. And he ended up going 115 hours and set the record. Now, what I asked at the time, I didn't ask him, but I asked somebody else. I, I asked, did he really play 115 hours straight? That's hard to believe that he could do that. I knew how I felt after the 26 hours I played. And yeah, I had been up for 12 hours before that. But let's say I w just woke up and played, say, 40 hours. It would be very hard to even keep my eyes open at that point, let alone keep playing poker. So how could he go for another like 75 beyond that? How could he play 115 hours without sleep? It didn't seem like this would be something that uh, he could do. Well, it turned out he didn't quite do that. I'm talking about Locke right now, not the story I'm about to tell you, which happened uh, much more recently. So they had some sort of agreement of what constitutes the uh, consecutive hours. Because you may ask, well, what does consecutive hours mean? Now, I really did play 26 hours at Commerce because I never missed a hand. And I do wonder if anyone has ever played 26 hours without missing a hand because of the bathroom thing. But what constitutes consecutive hours? People take bathroom breaks. People take food breaks. So what constitutes that? What, what if someone takes a sleep break? So what is, how do you define consecutive hours? And there's no easy answer to this. So in order to figure out what would be okay for it being a consecutive hour, even if he's not at the table the entire time, they did something called uh, banking time that uh, 
allowed him to claim they were consecutive hours, even though they weren't. And that's where I start having a problem with this. So the way they did this was that every hour that Phil Locke played, he would get a five-minute credit of break time. So if he didn't actually take any break, if he just played a full hour, at any point during that session, he could use five minutes. So if he played two hours straight, then he could break 10 minutes. So what he did is he kept banking the five minutes over and over and over again and then uh, slept uh, two hours and 15 minutes. I guess he was probably banking more than five minutes because it wouldn't add up otherwise. Or maybe it would. No, I guess it would. But after he played 40 straight hours, he slept for 135 minutes from this banked time and then came back. And then uh, later in the session, he slept uh, another 150 minutes. So he had two naps that were over two hours in this 115-hour session, which to me is not a 115-hour session. I understand if you need to take a 10-minute break to go to the bathroom or if you need to grab food or whatever it might be. That, that's fine. But to leave for hours and sleep, that's not the same thing. I'd even be okay if someone wanted to grab like a 15-minute nap. But you, you can't sleep for two hours and call it the same session, at least for record purposes. But that's what Locke did, and I guess that was agreed upon that that would still be considered a consecutive session, and the Guinness Book of World Records uh, called that the longest ever poker session, 115 hours. So Not that it's not a feat, but that's kind of cheap the way that works. It is, know? yeah. I mean, why, why don't we just have a real number of hours that someone can do it just like just like i did with the 26 hours which i know is not anywhere near a record but i played 26 hours not only without taking breaks i didn't miss a hand but why can't we just see what the longest session would be where someone just does not leave for more than say uh, 10 minutes why can't we have that that shouldn't be hard you can eat at the table you can go to the bathroom obviously in 10 minutes so why not just have that i don't get it no one's going to get 125 five hours from that but you will we'll get something that, that's much more pure so this banking time is bs and i don't like it so that's what uh lock did but accounted for the record so a lesser known player named zach gensler who is much like the second place main event finisher and myself also 49 years old he decided that he's going to try to break this 11 year old record and he was going to do it at resorts world and he did this under these uh, the same thing with banking five minutes of break time for every hour played. Resorts World actually tweeted that's the way they're doing it. They wrote, uh, not official, but the way we were told the player could bank five minutes break time every hour played. You can rest or sleep on your break. We collected hundreds of time in and out player witnesses and logged every dealer. So basically they're saying the Resorts World was uh, participating in keeping track of all this. And they said that they were watching him closely, but that he was allowed to bank the time and then sleep on the bank time, which apparently he did. So uh, Gensler admitted that he did sleep, as Locke did, at uh, different points here, and that uh, he finished 124 hours, beating Locke's record by nine hours. So now he is the record holder. He was actually losing in the session, but uh, only ended up down $1,200. He was playing uh, 1-3 no limit, 
So there was not uh, as high of a stakes as what Phil Locke had been playing. Phil Locke was actually down near the end, but won an all-in pot with aces against queens against his friend Antonio Asfandiari to put him up uh, about $6,700 in that 10-20 game back then. So I don't know what to say about this. This is not a real record, in my opinion. And yeah, he followed the rules, and by the rules, he set the record. But I don't like the rules. I think it's kind of cheap. I think we should get a real record of actual number of consecutive hours, and you can't leave for more than, say, 10 minutes, maybe 15 at the most. I don't like it being any amount of time where you could get any kind of meaningful sleep, and you actually could get meaningful sleep in 20 minutes. I've heard people say you can't, oh, the sleep doesn't matter if you don't get into REM state. That's bullshit. I've done it myself. I've taken little naps of like 45 minutes before and woken up feeling much better. Like the the first five minutes are brutal, but after the first five minutes pass, after I wake up from the very short nap, I feel much better. So it's it's nonsense that uh, you can't gain something from a short nap. But if like 15 minutes is the most you could be gone, then there's not much you could do because by the time you fall asleep, it's time to wake up again. So uh, that's what they should do. And I don't know why they set the record this way other than making it look more impressive by the number of hours. I, I don't like the way the rules are set. In case you're wondering about Gensler... He began playing poker in 2008 for kind of an unusual reason. His mother died that year, and I mean, he was only 36 years old, so it's not super young to lose your mother, but it's still fairly young. And apparently this was very depressing to him, and he wanted to do something to just like not sit around thinking about the fact that his mother died. And so he chose poker as something to go do 13 years ago to get his mind off of his mom passing away. And uh, then he was just kind of a casual player for two years. Then of all things, a bad beat jackpot he hit at uh, Golden Gates Casino in 2010 made him think, hey, you know what? Let me try to get better at this. So he actually uh, started to take poker more seriously, according to this article on uh, cardplayer.com. And he made some strides to improve, maybe because he finally had a back uh, a bankroll thanks to that bad beat jackpot. I don't know how big it was. He is not much of a tournament player. He has a whopping uh, $3,882 lifetime tournament cash record. So as you can imagine, he doesn't have any big scores. All these are three-figure caches he has except for one... In South Dakota, he won for 1400 That was his biggest score. So this is by no means a uh, major poker pro. This is some uh, Vegas grinder who plays low stakes that decided he's going to try to uh, break the record and make a name for himself. And uh, I guess by the rules of the record, he did. But I would love to see a real record that actually reflected real poker hours that were played straight. Now, at Commerce, there were some degenerates that were known to play for days at a time. However, these guys would go get sleep. In fact, back when they had that awful smoking room, this little non-ventilated room where people would go in to smoke, uh, and it, was, it really just looked like smoke. In the, you'd look into the room. It was, it was a glass door. You could actually just see smoke in the room. It was really nasty. But some of these guys would actually go in there and sleep. So there were some players that would do that. Some of them would even fall asleep at the table. I've played at Commerce before with people actually sleeping at the table. 
They're just like lying back in their chair sleeping. But there were some players there that were known to be for days. In fact, one was said to be there for uh, seven days in some cases. But again, he would sleep while at the table. He just wouldn't uh, get up from the table. So as far as someone who's actively played, I don't know what the actual record is. I would like to know, but I don't think that's kept track of. Okay, I want to talk about Elia Lezra. He, he has been elected to the Poker Hall of Fame. I have criticized the Poker Hall of Fame many times on this show. Not because it exists. I think it's good that it exists. And not even necessarily who has been elected to it. Though sometimes I don't agree. Sometimes I think they should have elected a different nominee. But of course, that's a matter of opinion. But what bothers me about the Poker Hall of Fame is that it's pretty much rigged. They have a voting system which intentionally is there to allow people to essentially rig it by using little voting blocks of friends. And I've discussed this before, but the way they vote is by taking all the candidates that have been nominated and then ranking them from like 1 to 10. I think it's 10 that are nominated, 10, 12, whatever it is. They rank them from one to the last, but they don't have to rank everybody. So you can just put number one and two and leave the rest blank. So what they do is they assign points for whatever rank you're given. So if you get one, let's say out of 10 people, you'd get 10 points. If you get two, you get nine points. If you're not ranked at all, if you're just left blank next to your name, you get zero. Well, as you see, if a few people get together and choose to just vote for one person they want to get in or two people they want to see get in, then it really puts them way ahead of everybody else, especially compared to the ballots where people are ranked 1 through 10. And I've explained mathematically how that works. The fact that they can leave it blank gives a huge edge to those who uh, are voted on in that way. Uh, Let's give you a very simple example. If I am voted number 1, and someone who is considered also competitive to win gets voted third, I only gain two points on them. If their name is left blank, I gain gain 10 points on them. So that's a huge difference. And if I can get five of my buddies to just put me down as number one and leave everyone else blank, I gain 50 points on everybody, which is huge. That almost guarantees that I'll get in, even if everybody else doesn't rank me very well. So that's how this can be rigged. And a lot of these guys in the Poker Hall of Fame or people who have voting power in the Poker Hall of Fame are friends and they want to see other friends get in and they form these voting blocks and they can essentially rig who gets in. And they're very aware of this. That's why the system stays in place. That's why there is never any motion to change it. Now, the World Series of Poker now owns the Poker Hall of Fame But once they took it over, they didn't strive to change this either. Why? Because they want to keep the top-name pros happy. So think of who's in the Poker Hall of Fame. Guys who don't want to see this changed, and guys who are important to the World Series of Poker. So the World Series of Poker just pretty much keeps their hands off and lets them run it how they want it. So as a result, when someone gets elected to the Poker Hall of Fame, it's not so much their worthiness to be elected. It's more how much the other people who are in Poker Hall of Fame and others who have voting power want them to be in. And that's two very different things. There's a difference between deserving to be in 
and having the existing members wanting you in. And usually them wanting you in has to do with what they think of you personally. Now, Elie Alezra apparently is close with at least some of those people. He was the only one elected to the Poker Hall of Fame because they have changed the rules to elect one person per year instead of two, which is stupid because they actually need more people in the Poker Hall of Fame, not fewer, because there's getting like a backlog of people who deserve to be in and just aren't getting in. Another problem is that there's non-players competing with players. I've discussed this before, too. So how do you vote on someone to get in the Poker Hall of Fame who is based upon their poker play against someone, say, like Matt Savage, who is nominated because of their contributions to poker outside of their play? It's two completely different things. And they do have other halls of fame like this. For example, Vin Scully is in the Baseball Hall of Fame. but He's in as an announcer, not as a player. He's never even played professional baseball. But he's in as an announcer, and he did not take up a spot that a player took because it's two very different things. It's very different being a great Major League Baseball player and a great Major League Baseball announcer. And they shouldn't be competing with one another to get in the Hall of Fame, and indeed they did not, even though he's in and other players are in. So... In the Poker Hall of Fame, it should be the same way, and it's not. That's another flaw with it. So Elia Lazra was elected. And by the way, you can also be elected based upon both criteria. If, you, if you've seen to have been someone who did something for the game and also you were a great player, those two can be combined to get you elected. So Elia Lazra, as I, as I mentioned, was the only one who got elected this year. And the greatest controversy about this has to do with Elia Lezra's issues off the felt with owing people money. Now, Elia Lezra is uh, Israeli. He was born in Jerusalem. He has $4.5 million in tournament caches. And keep in mind, he's entered a lot of high-stakes events, so that's not as impressive as it sounds. He plays a lot of big cash games. So he wasn't just elected based upon his uh, tournament uh, caches, which that by itself, there's a lot of people that should probably be ahead of him. There, There is uh, some who believe that he should not have been elected because of some information that came out about him two years ago. And I want to remind you guys of that. And then we can discuss whether this should affect his election or non-election. In January 2019... Mason Malmuth's 2 Plus 2 Publishing came out with a book that was uh, basically an autobiography by uh, Elia Lezra. However, Elia Lezra doesn't speak that great of English. I mean, he, you can communicate with him, but not, he's, he's not, his English isn't good enough to write a book. So what happened was uh, he wrote it or spoke it in Hebrew, and then Robbie Straczynski, the one who runs uh, CardPlayerLife.com, we had him on the show one time, he speaks both languages, Hebrew and English, and he speaks both fluently. So uh, Robbie Straczynski then translated the Hebrew to English. And uh, so he actually wrote the book, but it was Elia Lezra's uh, content translated into English, basically. And Mason knew that there was interest in Elia Lezra as the, as the high-stakes player he is and that uh, he thought that might be an interesting book. And 2 Plus 2 was going to publish it. And that's all fine. However... Uh, they didn't do 
the slightest bit of research about Ellie's life, and had they done so, had they just asked around in the poker community, which like someone like David easily could have, David Skolansky, uh, for whatever reason they didn't ask around enough, had they asked around just a little, they would have found out what I already knew before this, that there were a lot of rumors that Ellie Lesra owed a lot of money to people and had not paid back. So this was kind of an embarrassment, especially because they had Ellie Lesra post on 2 Plus 2, and he's not a forum guy. He's not someone who sits on his computer all day posting on forums. He never posted on forums before. But they brought him to 2 Plus 2 to promote the book, which would have been a good idea, except when you owe people money that you haven't paid. And then those people come forward and confront you about it. So that's what happened with Ali Lesra in uh, January 2019. A few people asked Ellie about the allegations about the bad poker debts and even some saying that he scammed. And Ellie denied everything at the time. He said, I pay my debts. And that's pretty much all he would say is some form of I pay my debts. And people didn't really believe him, but they didn't really have a way to come back and say, well, what about this person? What about that person? It was kind of like what I had heard over the years, that he owes people money, but it had never been verified. I didn't know who he owed money to. So these could have just been false rumors and you know, that's how it goes on the internet. I mean, there's been things said about me on the internet which aren't true. So while I kind of believed he did owe people money, if someone asked me, could you prove it? I would say no. And if someone asked, who does he owe to? I would say, I don't know. That's why I never really discussed it on this show or on Poker Fraud Alert anywhere, because this is just a rumor I had heard, and I didn't want to just post unsubstantiated rumors. However, finally someone came forward who did substantiate the rumors, and that was Cole South, who is a longtime member of the poker community and well-respected. Now he's very much in the cryptocurrency uh, community more than poker, but Cole South posted this on 2 Plus 2. This is back in January 2019 in that thread. I really don't like to get involved in public drama, but I can't stay on the sidelines when I see something like this. Ellie borrowed 100 k from me during a cash game in Bobby's room. That was the high-stakes room in uh, Bellagio. On... July 15th, 2010. Now, that was nine years prior, by the way. Towards the end of a long summer, we played a ton against each other and generally got along very well. At the end of the session, one of my most seasoned, one of the most seasoned high-stakes Vegas regulars pulled me aside and warned me what I did wasn't a good idea and not to do it again. We didn't cross paths my final few days in Vegas that summer. Over the course of the next year, he was responsive and whittled down the debt from 100k to 40k, a few grand at a time via a full tilt transfer. This is when full tilt was still open to U.S. players in, in uh, 2010 and early 2011. Uh, he still owes me that 40k. This is now nine years after the original debt. By summer 2011, he had stopped making payments but was still responsive with plenty of reasons why he couldn't. Since then, he's been basically non-responsive. I've sent him messages every now and then when he hit a big tournament score and he's ignored them. The only time I got a response was when we were both in Vegas playing the same tournament. He asked me not to make a public scene about it. I still have screenshots of texts and other evidence, but I'd like to give him a chance to respond before sharing more. Well, after Cole South posted that, Ellie stopped responding in the thread. He just completely disappeared. Then the thread kind of turned to people bashing Mason for letting this happen and for not learning about this before uh, publishing a book from him. Because... uh, all they had to do was ask around in the poker world, and they would have heard very quickly, maybe not about Cole South's debt, but they would have heard about these allegations about the debts, and then they could have looked further from that point. Matt Skolansky, David's son, showed up then and said, piping in, if a mistake was made here, it was a mistake. 
I won't have anything further to say on the matter until we have more information that will clearly take time. Now, in Skolansky and Malmuth's defense here, I will say that they probably didn't know about this. I think they were just clueless. I don't think they were trying to cover anything up. I think they published the book not knowing about all this, and they were just uh, guilty of incompetence without uh, doing a little bit of research into the guy. Anyway, that really killed the book. Uh, that most... doesn't sound like them, Drew. <laughs> that yeah, really I think killed... they very carefully researched everything. Yes. Well, most people didn't want to buy the book at this point. I, I don't think it sold very well. I never got the exact sales numbers, obviously, but I, I've i never... Uh, I have to imagine it didn't sell very well. A lot of people were saying they're just going to boycott it and not buy it and, until he makes it right with Cole South and anyone else he owes money to. Uh, what was funny is someone posted on 2 Plus 2 in that thread before Ellie left, do you know who Todd Wittellis is? If so, what do you think of his forum? If you owed money or cheated or scammed the poker community, would you want him posting your personal info on his site? Thanks. And uh, his response was, never heard of him. <laughs> <laughs> but okay, like I kind of expected that because uh, I really haven't had much interaction with him. I played with him like once or twice at the World Series, but like we didn't have much interaction, so... I didn't expect him to know me by name. So then... Uh, oh, I thought that was Mason no-selling you. That was Ellie no-selling you? No, that was, that was Ellie who didn't know who I was. No, Mason knows Ellie? very well. Yeah. Right. <laughs> so, uh, anyway. no, no, I, know, I know he knows who you are. I'm saying it would be funny if someone said something to Mason about, did you ever hear about this Todd Wattellis poker fraud alert? And he's like, no, nah, never heard of him. Yeah. <laughs> I, I don't think Mason could resist talking shit about me. He'd, uh, he'd go, actually, uh, in, in 2007, Todd us wrote this about me. Here's why this was not true. <laughs> that's, that's what Mason would do. So anyway, uh, this thread got bigger and bigger. And in fact, Cole was posting screenshots of text messages. And you could see it was an old school iPhone, like an old iPhone 3G. with uh, It's a very different text format than we see nowadays. But these look very real. And uh, it has uh, Ellie basically stalling him. I won't read it all. We, you can go back to the show we did in early 2019 about this whole thing if you want to hear that whole story. But as far as I know, this never got resolved. Anyways, uh, Ellie finally made a statement about two weeks later. And he wrote, Hi, everybody. I've been, try- I've been doing a lot of thinking about how to respond to what has happened over the past week and a half and what the tone of my response should be. Thank you all, especially Mason, for your patience as I put a lot of time and thought into the following statement. By the way, if you think this is a good writing from a guy who doesn't speak English that well, you're correct. This is probably written by someone on his behalf, but probably his thoughts. Anyway. It was Dewey Cheatham and Howe. Yes. His law firm, right? Yeah. Poker players, including lots of high-stakes players, borrow and lend money from each other all the time. They always have and they always will. The deals and arrangements they made in this regard have always been private, and I believe they always will remain private. It's no one else's business anyhow. Why would I borrow money? When the global financial crisis hit many years ago, it really took a toll on my business. I lost a lot of my personal wealth, but I still wanted to play in high-stakes games. The right thing to do would be to drop down the stakes, but I didn't want to, so I borrowed to keep playing in the same games. I don't play for stupid high stakes anymore. I get plenty of buzz and enjoyment playing for lower stakes. When a poker player decides to lend another poker player money, they do so with the inherent risk that it may not be paid back. That's, that's, that's already a big problem there. <laughs> I mean, yes, but that shouldn't be the reason you're not paying people back. That's, uh, that's just explaining why people shouldn't lend money. At no time when I borrowed money did I ever make a promise to pay back the loan the next day. During the full tilt days, money flowed like water, and when it came to paying people back, it was never an issue. 
Almost $2 million is owed to me by poker players to whom I have lent money over the years, but I've never gone public with their names. Now, I've seen that excuse a lot. I've seen it a lot where, where someone is accused of stiffing others that loan them money. And the answer is always, well, what about the guys who owe me money? They didn't pay me, so blame those, blame those people. It's their fault. No, that, that's his own problem. Jeff, I, I tried that recently. I, I missed a couple payments on my house, and I said, look, it's, it's not my fault. All these other people owe me money. And the bank didn't fucking care. It was really weird. The bank's like, you know what? You're right. We're going to go after those other people instead. <laughs> Keep your house. Our problem's with them, not you. I never hide from my debts, he wrote. To the best of my knowledge, every person to whom I've had an outstanding debt, I can count them on one hand, has been okay with the arrangements I've made to pay them back. Yeah, what about Cole South for nine years? <laughs> it doesn't sound like he's okay. For the record, this includes Sean Deeb, to whom I still owe money, and with whom I'm on great friendly terms. For whatever reason, Cole Fa- South felt the need to make a public post about a private arrangement. I already made it clear in my original response that he has a misunderstanding of the facts. What? It's been nine years. How can it be misunderstanding? He could have contacted me privately or even by private message here on 2 Plus 2 if he wanted to. I don't ignore text messages and haven't seen or seen or gotten a message from him in years. I haven't been hiding anywhere. It's not hard for anyone who wants to get in touch to find me. It seems like a lot of the forum posters have tried to make connections between things that are not connected at all. What do public records of court cases, which don't tell the whole story, by the way, have to do with my Israeli army days? By the way, the court cases, it's referring to... Someone found a court case where a uh, business partner of Ellie's got into a bad accident that was his fault, and there was uh, a very large judgment against the guy. And uh, the guy then uh, went to court and claimed that he was broke and couldn't pay it. And it was found that this guy had transferred his money to Ellie (laughs) to try to hide it. And that uh, it was then ordered by the court that it was a, quote, fraudulent transfer, meaning it was fraudulent to – it was the transfer was the purpose of, a, of, of avoiding a court judgment. And it was then ordered that Ellie pay the guy the money. And so that's, that's what people were posting. It's kind of saying, look, this is evidence he's shady. That's what they were posting there. Now, it wasn't Ellie trying to dodge the debt because it was, a, it was his business partner who got in this at-fault accident and owed this other guy millions of dollars – because of the court judgment, but but uh, they were saying, hey, look, it got transferred to Ellie, and Ellie went along with it until he was forced to pay that money back out to that guy who, who won the judgment in the first place. So that's what he's referring to as the, quote, court records. Using this platform to try and tear down my reputation affects many people beyond just me. A lot of people worked very hard to make this book happen. If you don't want to buy my book, that's fine, but leaving one-star nasty reviews on Amazon based on forum hearsay without actually reading the book is just plain wrong. He's mad that they were once starring the book. <laughs> I don't. I didn't invest years of my life in this project, first in Hebrew, then in English, with the primary goal of making money from the book. Mason chose to share that 2 plus 2 put $20,000 into publishing my book. I didn't know the amount until his post, by the way. He warned me before we signed our contract that this book likely wouldn't make a lot of money because poker books just don't sell like they used to back in the day. I just wanted my life story to be told, and I'm glad to have a business partner in Mason who felt the same way. Bashing him is misguided, to say the least. Now, I will say that neither of them probably thought they are going to make big money from this book. I do think that Ellie kind of just wanted the book published, and Mason just wanted it in the 2 plus 2 library, and uh, then Mason later realized that was a bad idea. People make mistakes. I go into great detail in my book and 
many of the mistakes I've made in my life. I didn't have to, but I chose to. As a matter of fact, many people who know me and have bought and read the book have come up to me to express their shock at how open and honest I was, and that I didn't need to say as much as I did about a lot of the episodes in my life. For all the poker glory I've achieved, I'm human too. That's what telling a life story is about, sharing both the ups and downs. I apologize to anyone who feels personally offended by the mistakes I've made. I'm not perfect, but that's no reason to hold my mistakes over my head for the rest of my life. I'm sorry, Mason, but that you had to deal with a lot of the fallout from my silence over the past week and a half. Throughout my life, I've done my best to learn from the mistakes, and I've made, a, I've made and become a better man. If anyone out there still wants to believe in baseless allegations against me, or in general be skeptical regarding whether my life story is true and what my reputation ought to be, that's up to you. All I can tell you is that anyone who's ever played with me, whether they're a pro or recreational player, and whether it's been in a cash game or tournament table, knows how passionately I love the game. I will continue to participate for another 48 hours here on 2 Plus 2. Thereafter, it's time for me to move on. Aside from that, I'm at Ari and Bellagio five days a week, and I'll be happy to see any of you and speak with you in person. And, of course, sign a copy of the book if you've purchased one. To address the obvious, yes, I had help writing this statement. I'm not a computer whiz, and, of course, I'm not a native English speaker. Finally, and more importantly, my favorite color is purple. (laughs) Okay, that's a funny way to end it. This statement is basically saying... I borrow money. I, I'm in communication with everybody. Sometimes people don't get paid back. Shit happens. Poker players know that. It's private. Cole South shouldn't have brought this out. Uh, this should have been private. Well, obviously, after nine years, you can see why he brings it out. I can't imagine that for nine years, you've been communicating with Cole saying, hey, just, just one more week. Just one more week. Okay, cool. It's only been nine years. No problem. Like, obviously, Cole at some point gave up, probably, because he wasn't getting responses or not meaningful responses, and he gave up. But it doesn't take a genius here to realize that that Cole was not getting that final 40K and was being stalled, 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 stalled. And given that Cole doesn't need the 40K, he's a guy who's doing very well, he finally just let it go and was kind of pissed about it, but just figured he'll he'll never say anything because he doesn't like to create drama. And then when he saw Ellie is publishing this book... Then he's like, okay, this has got to be said, and, and came out with it, especially when, when Ellie was saying, I pay my debts. So I thought the statement actually made him look worse. The only way the statement could have made him look better would be if he said, yeah, I made a mistake with Cole. I just had a lot of debts. It was kind of overwhelming, and I couldn't pay, and I didn't know what to tell these people, but I'm going to get right on that and pay him now. Like that, That's the best he could have said. But here it was kind of just saying, these are baseless accusations. Well, no, they weren't baseless. It looks like you still owe Cole money. You didn't even say that you didn't owe Cole money. The real Abe Masseri came out and uh, posted a statement because he had heard about a fake Abe Masseri in that same thread beforehand. And the real Abe Masseri came out, which was verified to be him, and made the following statement. This is back in 2019 as well. This is the end of January. No person has ever staked me in my lifetime, and I did not out Ellie in nine years. Notice the same nine-year time frame. I have no social media and had no idea Ellie had a book until days ago when I was called by a high-ranking casino side of the business. I was shocked and surprised my name was used. He asked to speak with David Skolansky, and I had many times in the past. I got to tell you I was on the fence and had not slept well. I decided today to speak out after Ellie sent me texts of threats about my family most likely scared I was going to out him. If he had not made such a stupid and, and actually illegal decision to do that, you would have never heard from me. I'm not sure yet what to say at this point. I can say this disappointed that Ellie pushed me to this point when it could have been really simple. 
I do not think Ellie is so insane yet to come on here and call me a liar, but so be it. Figure is 853k alone, not a gambling debt. So that what was the hell is that for then? It must have been a loan like the one Cole gave. But uh, anyway, it was then later clarified that this threat against his family was actually a legal threat, which I don't know why Abe Mosseri didn't clarify more. The way he was putting it was like that Ellie was threatening his family like with, with violence. But later it was clarified that it was actually a legal threat, that like Ellie was going to sue him and his whole family and, and bankrupt them if he if he says anything, which it's kind of shitty if that's what happened, but it's not the same as, as a physical threat, like you better not say anything or your family's going to get hurt. So uh, just to be clear that that's that was later expanded upon so it it, it looks and then uh, i guess that ellie was claiming that uh abe had threatened him and that's when he made the legal threat but who cares i don't care about the the, the threats back and forth what what i care more about is that uh abe Mosseri claimed that he was owed 853k from that same time frame from nine years prior from 2010 and that uh he was just going to let it go at least publicly because he doesn't even post on social media or forums but after he was made aware that this is being discussed and then ellie made this call threatening to sue him or whatever that he decided he's going to come out and say that it's uh, eight hundred fifty three thousand dollars that's owed to him from a loan and hasn't been paid back yet so as far as i know none of this was ever settled i maybe it was so i'm not going to say it wasn't for sure i'm going to say that i don't have any kind of uh uh verification that any of this has been settled however ellie did confirm in the uh in a poker news article at the end of 2019 or beginning of 2019 at the end of january 2019 that uh he does owe 853,000 to a so that wasn't made up or exaggerated so okay obviously he really owed a lot of money and the whole thing about i pay my debts wasn't true and uh, now he's in the Hall of Fame. So if you want to hear a further uh, discussion of this whole thing, you can go back to our uh, early 2019 show about this, I think in late January, early February. I don't have the exact date. But let's get to the present here. I mean, you, you hear about all the different debts he had there for a lot of money and that he wasn't paying them back for nine years. Does this mean that he shouldn't be in the Hall of Fame, the Poker Hall of Fame? And would this disqualify a lot of others in the Poker Hall of Fame who were great players but owed people money? For example, let's look at uh, one of the best poker players of all time who is no longer alive, and that is Stewie Unger. Stewie Unger died broke, despite all his poker skill. A lot of that was lost either uh, on drugs or while playing on drugs. But he did die owing people money as well. So does that mean that Stewie Unger shouldn't be in the Poker Hall of Fame? No. That would be a huge disservice to the Poker Hall of Fame to not allow someone like uh, Stu Unger in there as, as one of the greatest players of all time. In fact, I always wonder how he would have held up today against today's players. And we'll never know that. But... I have a feeling he would have adjusted and done very well. In fact, a lot of the styles that he used then 
were later adopted by successful players of the future. So how much do we have to consider the citizenship of the players, even when it comes to their citizenship in the poker community? I'm not just talking about they didn't commit crimes outside of poker, but uh, their citizenship in the poker community. If, if uh, players scam or have bad debts in the poker community, especially for a lot of money, should they be excluded from the Hall of Fame, or should that be considered a separate matter? And to that I say, it depends. It depends upon why they are being put into the Hall of Fame. If they are being put into the Poker Hall of Fame strictly based upon their poker play, then even if their personal life was a mess, even if their financials were a mess, even if they owed a lot of people money, even if they were scumbags, they should still be in the Poker Hall of Fame if their play justified it. But at the same time, they should not receive any points for anything they did outside of the poker table, even if they did some good things. That any kind of scamming or massive bad debts should definitely be considered at the very least to be negating anything else they did that was good for poker. That it, at best, should be a wash. And maybe even held against them somewhat. To where if they were a overwhelmingly top player, that then it's okay to look past a less than perfect uh, citizenship record in poker. But if they were kind of a marginal case and they were also a bad citizen in poker, then don't let them in to where it would have some effect on electing them, but not a huge effect. But in a marginal case, which Elia Lezra definitely is, by the way, in a marginal case of letting someone in the Poker Hall of Fame, if their citizenship in poker isn't good, don't let them in. And definitely, if you're letting them in for reasons other than their play at the table, then definitely don't let them in because they shouldn't get any credit for any of that stuff. That is my opinion on that matter. And while Elia Lezra is a popular player with a lot of people, and while a lot of people have enjoyed his exploits at the uh, high-stakes cash games that have been on TV, and some have said that his presence there has helped grow the game, my opinion is that should be negated by the bad sides of him. That's he has admitted to, to some extent. So I think when you have those two dueling things going on, where he's done some good things for the game and bad things for the game, we should just ignore what he's done for the game and look at his accomplishments at the table, which I don't feel are good enough to warrant a Hall of Fame induction. In fact, it's very possible that the $4.5 million he has cashed in tournaments lifetime is less than what he has spent on buy-ins lifetime. So he might even be down lifetime in tournaments. And I think anyone who's down lifetime in tournaments should not get elected to the Poker Hall of Fame because that would make a lot of sense that someone who lost should be in the Poker Hall of Fame. Even if they had some wins, you know, eventually everyone's going to win if they're a competent player and they enter enough high-stakes events. I don't think he I mean, should have been in. If we start getting moralistic about the people that are in the Poker Hall of Fame, I mean, and not all of them, but there are going to be more than a few that, you know, you might go back and kind of look at it, you know? No, I agree. And there's, and there's some that are dead now that are in the Hall of Fame that you look back and these guys are real shitty people. And yeah. uh, But I will say that some of them, at, at least the 
you can only judge them from their era. You can't say, well, how would they how would they be now against 2021 competition? If they were dominating the competition in their era, then even if they were scumbags outside of that, that uh, I still think you should let them in. Whereas uh, somebody yeah, who's a marginal case... As long case, as it doesn't get into kind of the equivalent of digging up old tweets, you know, like what someone... You know what I mean? Like, as long as we're not judging people by our standards today, you know? Yeah. Well, and, and like, let's say uh, Russ Hamilton was, uh, they were discussing letting him in the Hall of Fame. Well, you know what I think of him and, and what he did with UB. Yeah. And I, and I would be against letting him in. But if he had more poker accomplishments than he does, and obviously he won the main event back in 94, so it's not like he, he didn't accomplish anything in poker. But he wasn't one of the overwhelming best players. In fact, he only has uh, 1.5 million in tournament caches, and uh, 1 million of that was his win in the main event in 94. So this was not someone who has uh, a dominating poker career, and therefore uh, letting him in the Poker Hall of Fame just based upon his play, even ignoring what he did uh, uh, with the UB stuff, I wouldn't think would be justified. So, but let's yeah. say he was one of the very best players at the time, and and he had amazing poker accomplishments. And someone said, "Well, what should we do about this?" Well, I would even say, "Yeah, fine. I guess he should be in, even though I don't like him, even though I don't like what he did, because at least he was one of the greats of the game." Now, if someone said we what he did was so egregious, we just have to say no. I would I would say. You know what? I kind of agree with that too. So I'd be kind of on the fence on that one if he were one of the very top players, but he wasn't. So then it's pretty obvious to me. But I'm not. I'm not saying that Ellie Lezra and Russ Hamilton are anywhere near the same league. It's not at all. It's, it's very, very different. Where Ellie Lezra has some bad debts, one being at least one being very large, and Russ Hamilton was a big time cheater. But I'm saying that I don't think Ellie Lezra should be getting good for poker points that got him into the Hall of Fame. I think he was good right. for poker in some ways. I think he was bad for poker in other ways. And you ask Cole South how he was for poker. You ask uh, Abe Masseri, they're not going to say he was very good for the, for the game. And they're right. So uh, I, I think that should just be ignored. And I just don't think his record, aside from that, is good enough to be in the Hall of Fame. So I, I don't agree with the election here. Whereas someone who really is one of the game's greats, I don't think for their citizenship should be held out. Maybe someone to the extent of Russ Hamilton. There's an argument for that, but just people who were kind Has of... Has anyone ever been removed from the Hall of Fame? No. No one's been removed. At least not to my knowledge. And I wonder what they would have to do. You know, it, it's kind of like... Um, I mean, not on the same scale, but roughly analogous, analogous to some uh, of the southern monuments that have been torn down of late. You know what I mean? Yeah, I, I would think the the standard would have to be pretty high to then tear someone out of there. Yeah, and then a number of them are are dead now. The ones who were elected in the earlier days. The the first elections occurred in uh, 1979. They elected uh, seven people: Nick, the yeah. Greek Dandelos, uh, James Hecock, uh Edmund Hoyle. Felton McCorkdale, I don't know who he is, Johnny Moss, Red Wynn, I don't know him either, or Sid, and Sid Wyman. And then they started electing uh, one each year until 88. They, they, they did two. Then they were back to one each year. And then starting in 02, they were doing two most years. Once in a while, they did one. 
And uh, in 2020, Huxid was the only one elected. The criteria for those that don't remember, they had to have been they had to have played poker against acknowledged top competition. They have to be at least 40 at the time of nomination. They had to have played for high stakes. They had to have played consistently well and gamed respective peers, stood the test of time, and if they were non-players, then they had to have contributed to the overall growth and success of the game with indelible positive and lasting results. So some of the reason that Elezra was brought in was for that last thing, even though he wasn't a non-player, was because of his... uh, all the play that he did on TV, that, that he had a lot of fans, that people enjoyed watching his high-stakes play, and, and it was believed that he brought people into the game, especially uh, uh, people from Israel and others, uh, other non-U.S. players who enjoyed watching him play high-stakes. So I can understand that, and that's probably true, but as I said, I think the bad side of this negates it, and it's very well known at this point since that whole blow-up uh, almost three years ago on 2 plus 2. So I don't think that he should have uh, been in where... Let's, let's take someone like Huck Seed. Uh, I saw Huck Seed act like a jerk at the World Series. I was the only one who kind of spoke up about it, but uh, I, I've told that story before. He was a jerk to a poker news reporter, and I've heard other stories of him acting like a jerk. But, okay, so what? I mean, that's... Uh, and yeah, Huck Seed, he was, he was known to uh, not manage money well and, and go broke at some point, and so there are a lot of stories about Huck Seed, but nothing that would be disqualifying for, for bringing him into the Hall of Fame. So he was, he was elected based upon his uh, dominant play in the 90s and early 2000s, and, uh, and that was good enough they put him in. In, in 2019, they elected Chris Moneymaker and David Oppenheim. Uh, obviously, two very different reasons. Oppenheim for his uh, very strong cash play, where he was one of, known to be one of the best high-stakes cash players out there. And Chris Moneymaker, obviously, for his impact on the game since he won the event in '03, and for the way he's represented poker since then. So I agreed with both of those. I thought they both belonged in there. Uh, there was some complaints from people who liked or were friends with uh, Isai Scheinberg, the founder of PokerStars, no longer owns it, but uh, there's been a lot of clamor to get him into the Hall of Fame, given the massive effect PokerStars had on poker in the 2000s and uh, 2010s. But Isai has not been elected yet, and there was some belief by supporters of Esai that this is being done on purpose, that uh, simply because Esai is not close to anyone currently in the Poker Hall of Fame, that none of them are interested in bringing him in, and that all they're going to keep doing every year is bringing in people they personally like, and Esai is always going to be on the outside looking in. And that might be possible. That might be what happens, and that's one of the problems with the whole system they have. They, they need to come up with a completely different system. And I, I feel the existing Hall of Fame member should have a right to vote or have some say in it, but they have uh, too much say right now. And this voting system is intentionally flawed, in my opinion. It is flawed for sure. There's no question it's flawed. But I think it's intentionally flawed. I think it may have even been designed this way to allow them to basically let in who they want. By the way, of the 56 people in the Poker Hall of Fame, how many think are alive today? Because it's, actually, it's 57 now with Ellie. So uh, out of the 57, how many are alive right now? 30. You're close. 26. 
26 out of 57 are alive. The other 31 are in the ground. So that is the story with Ellie. And uh, what we're going to do here is I think this is probably a good time for uh, Calwat to say goodnight and for me to take a break. You think so? Perfect. Yeah. And we have other topics to cover. Uh, but I, I have to do some things here. And I will uh, cover the remaining, looks like, four topics when we get back. As usual, Make I'm going to sure put... you flush twice. <laughs> Don't give everything Just away saying. here. Don't give yeah, everything away sorry. here. Okay. So thank you, Calwatt, for coming on. And if you're listening to the archives, then there will be no break. We'll just move on. In fact, usually I remove any discussion of a break. But this time, I'm going to leave a little little bit of realism here, where you're going to hear Mm. there's going to be a break, and then it's going to go bang right into the next segment. Just a jump in time. the flush. All right. It's a jump in time. Have a good night, Drew. And uh, good night, Calwatt. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for staying up late for us once again, and uh, we'll talk to you hopefully next week. All right, man. Later. Good night. Boy, he sounded tired at the end. Sounded real tired at the end. Okay, so moving on, I want to talk about uh, something that I have to imagine most other shows about poker and gambling and Las Vegas are not going to be talking about. I like to have these type of segments because it makes the show more unique. You know, everybody can talk about the World Series of Poker. Everybody can talk about the Player of the Year race or even about a guy who sets a record for playing 124 fake consecutive hours. But not everybody's going to talk about Beatty, Nevada. But we are going to talk about Beatty, Nevada. In general, I like to talk about these oddities in the desert because I find them fascinating. And I know a lot of you do too. This isn't going to be a Las Vegas and Mojave Desert history segment, but it's kind of in the same vein. And I found the story pretty fascinating. It was brought to me by somebody else. And we're going to tell you all about Beatty, Nevada, and what is going on there and what might be going on there soon. Ed Ringel is 57 years old. And he has been in Beatty, Nevada for his entire adult life. He right now operates the only casino in Beatty. Now, where is Beatty? Beatty is 118 miles north, northwest actually, of downtown Las Vegas. And more than that, than the Strip, because it's in the direction of... It's it's north, and the downtown Las Vegas is north of the Strip. So it's over 120 miles north of the Las Vegas Strip. But there's only one casino there right now. It's the Stagecoach Hotel and Casino in Beatty. Beatty is right off of US-95. Now, US-95 goes through Las Vegas. And you can get on US-95 in downtown Las Vegas. And if you start driving north, first you'll go through the northern area of Vegas and north Las Vegas and then you'll get out into the middle of nowhere 95 goes northwest 
15 goes northeast. So you're probably more familiar with I-15, which you would take uh, from Southern California to Vegas going north. And if you continue going north on 15, you eventually get to uh, Mesquite, then you cross into Arizona for a bit, then you get to St. George, Utah at the border of Utah, and then if you keep going, you'll get to Salt Lake City. So a lot of you are familiar with that, with I-15. But US-95, people don't know as well because it's not as common of a route to take because it mostly goes through the middle of nowhere and it kind of goes to the middle of nowhere. You will be on 95 a lot if you were going to or from Reno to or from Las Vegas. So between Reno and Vegas, a lot of the time is on US-95. And I can tell you from having made that drive a number of times that it really is just desolate land where there's nothing for long stretches. And it's a very easy drive because it's flat and it's wide open. In fact, my highest average speed that I've ever achieved on a drive was between Reno and Vegas, even having to really slow down in the town of Fallon where the limits are very low and they patrol it very aggressively. Even going through Fallon, I still made a very high average speed because it's just so wide open and safe to drive fast on US-95. But getting back to Beatty, if you drive north on 95, the first town of any consequence is Beatty, but it's over 100 miles away, as I mentioned. Beatty is also kind of the gateway to Death Valley National Park. And yes, it's the same Death Valley that you might be thinking of, which has the all-time world high temperature of 132 degrees. It's the same Death Valley. Same Death Valley you would want to avoid in the summer. It makes Las Vegas seem cool. Death Valley is actually a very interesting place to visit. I do recommend going there. It's got some really, really unique geological features. But I recommend going in either the mid to late fall or the winter or the early spring. Do not go in the late spring or the summer or the early fall unless there happens to be a cold spell in the early fall or late spring, which would allow you to go there and not roast. But Beatty is not all that far from the northern part of Death Valley National Park. Death Valley is not really close to anything, but the biggest or the closest big city to Death Valley is Las Vegas. And a lot of people don't know that because Death Valley is in California. So people assume that it's got to be closest to something big in California, but it's not. It's actually much closer to Vegas than it is to L.A. or any other big city in California. If you go from the northern part of the park to Las Vegas, you will pass through Beatty. Getting back to this uh, Ed Ringel, for his entire adult life, he has been in Beatty, and he has operated this uh, stagecoach casino. They acquired and closed the competing casinos over the past few years. There used to be competition, not anymore. 
and that actually got a lot of locals angry at him. Even though he's been there a long time, a lot of locals see him as someone who is harmful to Beatty rather than helpful, even though he operates one of the major businesses there. He has expanded outside of Beatty in, I don't know, 2020, 2019, 2018, somewhere around there. I think probably in uh, 19. He built Eddie World. You probably have seen Eddie World if you have driven between Las Vegas and Los Angeles on I-15 over the past few years. It's very noticeable because it actually has a giant sundae, you know, like an ice cream sundae, a giant sundae with a cherry on top that looks about 30 feet high as its sign. So it says giant sundae, and then it says Eddie World on it in very large print. Not Eddie's world, just Eddie world. You may say, what is Eddie world? You have to assume it's owned by a guy named Eddie, and it is. It's owned by Ed Ringel, same guy who runs the stagecoach in Beatty, which I didn't know until I learned about this subject. But he opened that, and apparently it's doing pretty well, and people like it. It has like 4.5 stars on Google with a lot of reviews. He also runs the Death Valley Nut and Candy Company, and that is located in Beatty, whereas uh, Eddie World is located on the 15. But now he wants to create something called El Sueño, which he's calling the first fully themed Spanish-speaking hotel casino that caters to the family market. Now listen to that again. The first fully-themed Spanish-speaking hotel casino, meaning that you go there and the employees are all going to be speaking Spanish. Now, maybe they will speak English as well, but this is really geared toward the Hispanic market. He wants people to go there who are Spanish speakers, who feel comfortable where everybody's speaking Spanish and it's not just people who know Spanish that can communicate with them. It's actually... uh, a Spanish-speaking place. That, that's his dream here to create this for some reason. He plans to have a four to 500-room high-rise hotel tower, 30,000 square feet of gaming space, water parks there, which are both indoor and outdoor, and he would call this uh, part of uh, Oasis Valley. So he has been working on this for quite some time. This isn't a new idea. He has been acquiring water rights for 200 acres of land. And uh, he wants around it a master-planned housing community, then two hotel casinos, and uh, also even to make a walking trails and greenbelt system that preserves some of the area's foliage and wildlife. He actually has a big sign and uh, an electronic board where it's going to be that gives updates on the project. He claims he did this for himself. He said, uh, I have a tendency to get off course sometimes, so I figured if I bought a big sign, it would keep me focused. So basically, so he sees the sign, it reminds him to get going with it. However, El Sueño has kind of been on hold because of COVID, He was just about to get moving with it, and then COVID hit, 
and he kind of just put it on hold, but he's ready to get it going again. He was trying to get funding for it, but the problem is there's been a big crush on funding in general because there's some questions about the viability of new casino projects ever since COVID. For example, uh, they, uh, MGM Mirage apparently is having an issue getting enough financing for about $9 billion worth of uh, further development to city center in Vegas. So the question comes from this. If it is getting difficult to get financing for new casinos, how is he ever going to get financing in a place like Beatty? Because Beatty is very small and it's very remote. So who would even come there is the question. The population of Beatty is very small. In fact, probably smaller than you would guess. Do they have 10,000 people? No. Do they have 5,000 people? No. Do they have 1,000 people? Still, no. What is the year-round population in Beatty? Zero point zero. Okay, not that, but 804 people was in the 2019 census. It's actually down from 1,021 five years prior. Beatty has been around for 116 years, but it never really became much of anything. Beatty is not located in Clark County, which is the county of Las Vegas. It is in Nye County. Now, an important distinction between Nye County and Clark County is that Nye County, which borders Clark County, does allow legalized prostitution. Clark County does not. There is a mistaken belief many people have that prostitution is legal in all of Nevada. It is not. It is not forbidden by state law, as it is in most states. However, local law can forbid prostitution, and Clark County makes prostitution illegal. So all the hookers that you see in Vegas are breaking the law, every single one of them. However, in legalized brothels in Nye County and in other counties around Vegas that have not forbidden it, prostitution is legal, provided that it is in a licensed brothel. I noticed this when I drove into Beatty the first time. I needed to get gas. But while I was looking for a gas station, I kept seeing lights flashing on signs, and I thought these were gas station signs, and nope, every time they were brothels. So there there seemed to be a, a few brothels in Beatty, but I was having trouble finding a gas station. Finally, I, I found one. I was pretty desperate to get gas, and I finally did, and I did not have to uh, pay for sex to do it. I just got gas and left. But if you take a look at Beatty on a map, you will see exactly how remote it is. And you will wonder where any people would come from that would go to any kind of major casino development in Beatty. If you go directly north on US-95, you basically get nothing for a long way. I mean, a long way. You get to Goldfield, which is actually a ghost town. Tonopah, which is very, very small. Then Mina, Looning, Hawthorne, all very small. The first city of any consequence at all is Fallon, but that's quite some way away. And in fact, it's uh, much closer to Reno than it is to Beatty. Much, much closer. Fallon is kind of the greater Reno area, or at least the extended Reno area. You say, okay, well, what about east? 
yeah, well, you can't go east on US 95. You would have to go north to Tonopah and go east on the 6th, and again, you would get to basically nothing. What about west? Well, you can go southwest on uh, 374, but that would take you right into Death Valley, which, while interesting, has basically no year-round population, nor is there any town surrounding it, so you're not going to get any people coming in from Death Valley. Maybe a few tourists, but it's not going to feed a lot of people in. You go southeast, yeah, you eventually get to Vegas, but really not much else. You have Amargosa Valley, which is actually where our uh, main phone number is technically located. Our 775-Fraud55 is located in Amargosa Valley, though it uh, is controlled by me wherever I am, but that's uh, actually where the uh, phone number is located. But it's very, very small. Indian Springs, but these are all very small towns. And even Pahrump, which is uh, a little off the 95 to the south, is not a very big place. But why would anyone go all the way to Beatty from Las Vegas with all the casinos there that are much bigger and have a lot more to offer? The answer is they wouldn't. And is there a lot of traffic going on US 95 that may want to stop at Beatty? No. In fact, that's exactly what I was saying earlier. It is a wide open drive. Unlike driving I-15, even north of Las Vegas, even if you keep going past Vegas and go towards uh, St. George, Utah, the whole way you have a number of cars with you. US 95 is not like that. You can drive a long way on 95 and not see another car because you're really not going anywhere on 95 except for Reno, which is very, very far away. So really, there's not many people going north on US-95 other than some truckers. So I don't know where they are believing they're going to get people coming in there. It just is not on the way anywhere. It's not even close to on the way anywhere. It's not near any tourist attractions other than the Death Valley. Now, I suppose if they really want to stretch it, maybe if they were to make the resort interesting enough and notable enough that some people would choose to stop in Beatty for a night or two if driving between Death Valley and Las Vegas. However, I'm talking about tourists that want to go to both places. However, one problem is that uh, the main part of Death Valley is the southern part. That's where the resorts are. That's where most people tend to be. And there's a lot faster way to get to Las Vegas is from the south. You just go south and uh, eventually back north to Pahrump and then to Vegas from there, and you get there a lot faster than going through Beatty, which makes it a lot longer because uh, it's just a much longer drive from the northern part of Death Valley from compared to the south. And Death Valley is a pretty uh, geographically large park. So... With most people being in the South, they're not going to want to go through Beatty anyway to get to Las Vegas. The only way you're going through Beatty is if you happen to finish your Death Valley visit at the northern part of the park where uh, Scotty's Castle is. So I just don't think they're getting that much traffic through Beatty that came from Death Valley, even though a lot of people visit Death Valley every year. 
But when I say a lot, it's not like the Grand Canyon or anything. I mean, it, it, it's a national park that is sort of well visited, but the fact that people don't go there in the summer is kind of a killer because that's really the travel season to national parks, and that's the one national park you don't want to go to in the summer, and everybody knows that. It really is the hottest place on Earth in the summer. So uh, I'm not sure where they believe they're going to get the people for El Sueño. If you're wondering what El Sueño means, it means the dream. And some people are derisively saying that Ed Wrinkle is engaging in dreaming to believe that he's actually going to ever complete El Sueño. Now, he did create Eddie World, and I guess that's kind of successful, but that's on a much, uh, much, 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 much smaller scale. And he says he's not going to use cash flow from Stagecoach, which is profitable, to fund El Sueño, probably because it would not nearly be enough. Like, he built Eddie World with money from Stagecoach, but Eddie World is a glorified gas station. It's not a major resort. But he says he's confident that they're going to get investment. He said, when we came here in the 1980s, we had no experience building casinos. We were more of a long shot back then. We're going to do this. I'm confident we will. He also said that uh, they're going to have an outdoor restaurant and nightclub, which would be constructed within uh, the within a rock formation that uh, is there in Beatty. He said there would be a 76,000 square foot indoor water park on the other side that would be one of the biggest water parks in the world. He claimed the restaurants would be Latin American themed and that they would have the type of food not found anywhere in the United States. In justifying why anyone would come to Beatty, he said Beatty is a tremendously overlooked area. We're three miles from a natural hot springs. We have a ghost town called Rhyolite. We're 10 miles from a national park. We have the sand dunes and horseback riding. We have a cornucopia of activities available to us. We just haven't exploited them yet. We will with this project. So I see what he's trying to do here. He's trying to create it as a destination that then you can go do other things. So come to Beatty, go to our ghost town, go to our natural hot springs, go visit uh, Death Valley. It's, it's more than 10 miles away. I don't know why he's saying 10 miles, but uh, he's saying go to Death Valley fairly close by. So we, we just have to make everyone aware that this is a good jumping off place, not just to visit this resort, but to go do other interesting things. The problem is saying that and selling it to the public are two different things. And while a hot springs can be uh, moderately interesting, and while a ghost town can be moderately interesting, it's hard to get people to go somewhere in the middle of nowhere just for those features. And just because it's sort of close to Death Valley, but more importantly, not the way most people would be traveling through to get to Death Valley. Whereas if this were on the other side, on the California side, and this would be something people would be passing going from L.A. to Death Valley or San Francisco to Death Valley or both, then that would make a bit more sense where they could say, don't do the whole drive. Stop here for a night. Stop here for two nights. Instead, he's saying, go way out of your way. (laughs) It doesn't make any sense. Now, one of the critics is named Mike LaSorsa. He has been in Beatty since the early 90s, and he's the chairman of the Town Advisory Board. He said, 
legally, I'm not sure he has to bring any plans before the town advisory board. But Ed just does what he wants until somebody stops him. He's been pretty progressive in this town. and He's sunk a lot of money into Beatty. He's provided many jobs, but I don't think he's well-liked. And the main reason was because he bought and closed the Exchange Club Casino, which was open for uh, a long time, and got rid of it so the stagecoach would have no competition. Apparently, the hotel at the Exchange Club is still operating, but it's a small hotel with only 44 rooms, and it's not going to uh, really threaten the stagecoach very much. He also bought the Borough Inn Casino in Beatty, and... uh, just actually destroyed the casino, just bulldozed it. Again, kept the hotel and renamed it the Death Valley Inn. And then he also built a Motel 6 next to the stagecoach. But he owns that. I guess there is also an Eddie World in uh, Beatty. It's not just the one that's on the 15. So I guess there's two Eddie Worlds. I didn't realize that when I was reading about how he operates Eddie World, I I was thinking that it was just the one that was uh, on I-15, which is his as well. But uh, he operates Eddie World also in Beatty. He does provide a lot of jobs to this uh, tiny town. Remember, 805 people live in the town. And 109 of them work for Ed Ringel. But yet he isn't that popular because people think that uh, he basically believes he runs the town and he shuts down whatever is in his way. Rick Dopkiss is the former casino executive from Vegas who is brought in to design the gaming aspect of El Sueño. And he said, I think the markets will loosen up by the time we're ready to go out for financing, referring to to, uh, the availability of financing. And uh, also they may have an issue with Nye County itself Nye County may not allow them to build the casino or their other ambitious plans. In fact, they already got fined for operating without a dust permit. (laughs) You actually need a dust permit out there. Wow. I've never heard of a dust permit before, but apparently you need one in Nye County. And he was already uh, operating the site, the future site of the El Sueño without a dust permit. So the county is already irritated with him. Some people believe that he is just doing this for attention. The Nye County uh, manager for building safety said, I don't think he has any plans or money for El Sueño. I think he's trying to attract attention to get money. It seems like he has a different concept every week. So this Johnson guy thinks that uh, Ed Ringles are throwing whatever he can at the wall to see what sticks with his El Sueño to try to get anyone to give him money to build it. He thinks he doesn't even have any realistic plans. I'm surprised they already got this uh, Rick Dopkiss guy to design the gaming aspect of it. I don't know if they just gave him a piece of the action or what, because it seemed like a waste of money right now when this thing is such in the early planning stages to already be thinking of the specific gaming you're putting together there. You can always do that later. So the question remains, is El Sueño going to ever exist? And at the end, is Ed Ringel going to be seen as the Beatty version of Don Laughlin, who basically 
put Laughlin on the map? The only reason Laughlin exists is because of him? Or is he just someone who's out for himself that is pretty much choking the rest of the town to allow his projects to dominate? And that is he really holding back Beatty rather than allowing it to thrive on its own? It's interesting because you'd think a guy who's employing like one-eighth of the town would be looked upon much more fondly, but he's not. There's a lot of people who just think he's too selfish and too flighty and always dreaming of more while not worrying about the impact of what he's doing presently. What do I think? I think this is never going to get built. And I think if it does get built, it'll be a tremendous fail. Uh, not just a small fail, a tremendous fail. Just because there's nobody to come see it. There's nobody to come visit or want to visit or be traveling in that direction to even have the opportunity to visit. So they're going to really have people going hundreds of miles out of the way to go to this El Sueño resort, which doesn't sound that special to me. Who would ever do that? You have to think more with any project about who would want to use it and how will they find it rather than is it good? These are two very distinct issues that one must think about with any business or any undertaking. For example, let's look at this show. No matter how good I make this show, it will have a limited audience because, number one, I'm not spending any money on marketing. Number two, it has kind of a niche topic. Number three, it's an internet show. I mean, there's a lot of reasons why, no matter how good the actual show is, it just has a fairly low ceiling of the greatest number of listeners we're going to have. Another reason there's a ceiling is because it's not a YouTube show. It's it's an older type media show. It's a it's a internet radio show and podcast. So we have a ceiling. I'm aware of that. And no matter how good I make it, it's not going to make the show blow up. So even if I spent a ton of money on improving this show and a ton of time more than I already spent, if I put way more time into this show and way more money into it, let's say I had 20 full-time people working on this show. Let's say I spent in one year on this show $1 million. I would have somewhat of a bigger audience, but it wouldn't be huge. It would not be huge. Because there would still be the question, who wants to listen to a very long show about poker and gambling? Some of you do. A lot of people don't. And it would be hard to attract a huge following. Now, maybe if I did a show on a different topic that has more of a mainstream appeal and I spent a lot of money on it, then maybe it could catch on. But as this show is, I realize it's always going to have a ceiling. And you have to realize that with a business as well. So I think a lot of this is just dreaming. And I think a lot of this is him getting bored. You know, he's got a small casino in a small town and two gas stations with uh, extra features and services and a few other motels, but 
he's probably like, you know what? I want to do something bigger. I don't, I'm tired just owning small, inconsequential things that nobody talks about. So he wants to build this unique thing, this uh, El Sueño, this Spanish-speaking hotel casino with a huge water park, etc., etc., and this nightclub that's up against a, a rock feature. I mean, it's, it's a lot of dreaming to me. There's a lot of things that people wish they could create and have a vision in their head of what it would be like if it succeeded, but the truth is it rarely comes to pass that way. 775-FRAUD55, 775-372-8355 is the number to call the show. Got a a text asking me if I'm going to make a practice run to Bally's in Paris to scope out the new digs and get a head start on the shortcuts within Bally's in Paris. And answer is maybe. Probably going to be in uh, Vegas next month. And I may actually do that, as I mentioned earlier in the show. I may actually go down. Another text. Druff, what if the next WSOP was held at the Palms? It's off strip and still nice. Would this have been a better alternative after the Rio? No, because it is not owned by Caesars, so that was not even an option. But if it were, it would face a lot of the same challenges as the Rio, mainly being off strip and away from everything. And basically everybody only has one place to stay. And it's older, kind of a has-been, so a lot of different stuff that would apply there as well. But that's not even being considered because it's not a Caesars property. If you want to text me again, 775-372-8355, same as our main phone number. Let's move on to the next topic. A poker player got a nice score from a prop bet on the American League MVP race in baseball, a $900,000 score came to a poker player who who laid down 30K. I'm surprised they even took this much action, but they laid down 30K at Caesars Sportsbook via William Hill at 30 to 1 odds. So they laid down 30K at the beginning of the season this is in the 2021 season. It was on March 19th, about two weeks before the season began. And it was a bet for Shohei Otani, a Japanese player who is a rare two-way player who both is a pitcher and a designated hitter. So this is one of the few pitchers who can hit well. That this person put a $30,000 bet on Otani to win the MVP. Now, to win MVP... You have to be the most valuable player in the league, according to those who vote on it. So that's a very tough thing to win, obviously. And the reason Otani at the time was not thought to be someone to really consider for the award was that uh, his career in uh, in Anaheim, playing for the Angels, was not that impressive yet. And he also had injury issues. So while there was a lot of excitement about Otani, he just uh, wasn't performing to the level that the Angels had hoped prior to 2021. In fact, in 2020, in 153 at-bats, he hit only 190 with seven home runs. In 2019, the last full season he played prior to 2021, he had only 18 home runs and hit 286, which, while okay, was nowhere near uh, 
MVP status and his OPS, if you know what that is, on base plus slugging, was 848, which is, is fine, but not going to win any MVP awards. He did have a pretty good first season in 2018 in, base, in Major League Baseball, 22 home runs hitting 285 in uh, 326 at-bats, 114 games. And his OPS was better that year. He hit uh, 925 OPS. But still, he was nowhere near looking like an MVP in any of these years, especially the last one, the abbreviated 2020 season. And as a pitcher, remember, he's a two-way pitcher. Uh, it was a disaster. In the two starts, he just got hammered, giving up seven runs in uh, 1.2 innings total. So he lasted just less than an inning in each start and had an ERA of almost 38 in 2020. Uh, he didn't pitch at all in 2019. And in, two, in 2018, he had a, a pretty good season, but only pitched uh, in 10 games and had a 3.31 ERA. So there was some doubt whether he would continue pitching at all after 2020. There was some belief that maybe he would just be a designated hitter and that would lower the chance of him being MVP, especially given that his hitting, while decent, was never MVP-like. Well, 2021 was very different. 2021, he had 23 starts. He was 9-2 on a team that wasn't very good. He had a 3.18 ERA and a 1.090 whip, which very good numbers. But offensively is where he really shined. Offensively, Shohei Otani in uh, 2021 had 46 home runs. He hit 257, which wasn't a really high average, but averages in general were down in 2021, as was all offense. And his OPS was 964 which is really good. So he had 46 homers, 100 RBIs, and uh, he even stole 26 bases. So he was really, really uh, a dominant hitter, and he ended up uh, winning the war award unanimously for both his uh, hitting and pitching. Remember, he was a very effective pitcher, and then he also hit 46 home runs. So that was uh, pretty amazing. It was an amazing season. That was a Babe Ruth-like season because Babe Ruth was also a hitter and pitcher, and people thought we wouldn't even see that again. Vladimir Guerrero Jr., who had an excellent season, finished second but did not get any first-place votes. So great season for Otani. Easily won the MVP, and it was well expected he was going to win the MVP after the season that he had. Unfortunately, it was wasted on a failed team like the Angels, which uh, was missing their other really good player, Mike Trout, for most of the year. And basically didn't have many good role players, and their pitching sucked, so it was, it was not a, a very good team, the Angels. So they did not even sniff the postseason. However, Otani still won the MVP, even though they typically like to give the MVP to a member of a playoff team. But that didn't even happen this year. They gave it to Otani unanimously, despite being on a team that was not a winning team. Anyway, back to the bet. Obviously, the guy who bet on Otani saw something in him that uh, he was willing to lay 30K on this. And yeah, you're getting 30 to 1, but it's still $30,000 you're laying out there. And Otani, with all the injury problems and with the questions of whether he even pitched at all, uh, that was a pretty ballsy bet. And Caesars was willing to take 
a large prop like this, which usually they wouldn't because usually, and I think it's probably because it was William Hill then, and William Hill would take more action. But a lot of these Vegas sports books, they do not want to leave themselves exposed to big losses like these. They, they like predictable income. They like to take uh, the type of bets where there's uh, basically equivalent action on both sides and they have a guaranteed win thanks to the juice. And even with the prop bets, they don't like to expose themselves where if a long shot wins, they really get screwed. So while 900K isn't going to bankrupt them, they usually will not take 30K on a prop bet like this. But uh, they did here, and obviously they were sorry. Uh, others must have made out pretty well but didn't bet as much. Otani was actually 60-1 to 1 in February, but uh, people started laying money on the 60-1, to 1, believing, hey, Otani has a lot of potential. He just hasn't quite shown it yet, but we've seen glimpses of it, so... 60 to 1, why not? So it brought it down to 30 to 1 by March 19th. And then there was uh, this 30K bet. Most sports books had more bets on him than any other player to win MVP, probably because of the long odds. And then by late June, he was actually the favorite. You could still bet on MVP at that point, but you weren't getting 30 to 1, you weren't even getting even money. And uh, in August, it was the reverse. In August at uh, BetMGM, it was 50 to 1 against. So it was 50 to 1 that you'd have to bet that uh, you'd have to lay $50 to win $1 on him being MVP. That's how sure it was in late August. (laughs) So it went from 30 to 1 you get paid 30 times your money to uh, having to get 150th your money. What a swing. Someone actually did place one of those crazy bets, one of those crazy uh, minus 5,000 bets. Someone actually put a $204,000 bet at BetMGM on Otani to win the MVP, and they did win 4K, so (laughs) congrats to them. But can you imagine if uh, Vladimir Guerrero ended up winning? They'd lose 204,000 trying to win 4,000 they would have felt very stupid. Up through 2015, Nevada sportsbooks could not take these type of prop bets because these were decided by a vote. And it had been longstanding Nevada law that prop bets decided by a vote could not be taken because votes can be rigged, whereas uh, results for a game cannot be rigged as easily. Votes can be by just getting to the right people. So this was not allowed until 2015, and then uh, finally uh, Nevada Gaming Control Board allowed betting on uh, certain voting awards, such as the Heisman Trophy, MVP, Rookie of the Year, Cy Young, other ones like that. The problem is Vegas books have not been doing this for very long, since this is the first time that these voting bets have been available only for the past six years. So it's not like they have decades of history setting these lines, and this was one of them, which was probably misset. So all the books basically lost money on the Otani thing because a lot of people were hitting him at 30 to 1. In fact, uh, word got out in the sharp sports betting community Unfortunately, the word didn't get to me. I may have fired on it too. But 
the word got out in the short, sharp sports betting community that uh, if Otani is healthy, which he appeared to be, that he had a much bigger chance of winning the MVP than 30 to 1. So a lot of sharp bettors started hammering bets here. And uh, this one guy who bet 30K was the one who won the biggest one. So I want to talk about who that is, because you're probably thinking, okay, I keep saying a poker player, a poker player. Who is it? Well, I wondered that too. When I searched for it, I couldn't find it. On cardplayer.com, they have this article. In fact, it's their number one article right now. And it says, poker player wins 930K. They really mean 900, but he gets his 30 back. So uh, um, he wins. Uh, so he bet 30,000 to win 930,000. But then it doesn't say who it is. The weird thing is it says, the gambler who was featured on a recent edition of Daniel Negreanu's World Series of Poker Vlog got 30 to 1 odds on his bet. Okay, but who is quote, the gambler? Now, they showed a picture of a guy that isn't captioned at all. It's just a, They show a picture of a poker player with a long beard, and over his picture is the headline from CBS Sports about this guy winning. But it doesn't say who it is, and it just says he's a, quote, gambler who is featured on a recent edition of Daniel Negreanu's vlog. Well, okay, but who is it? They're presumably showing his picture. It's really weird because it's just a picture of the guy. I'm talking to the better, not Otani. And there's a picture of just this dude with a long beard just <laughs> sitting there. He looks kind of overweight. He's got a long beard. It's kind of gray. And he's just there, looks like, in the World Series of Poker. But we don't see any context to this picture. Like, who is he? Why don't they put his name down? Why is this a secret? So... I went searching for it, and everywhere on the web, it just said a gambler or a gambler who was on Daniel Negreanu's vlog. That's such a weird way to describe him. So I wasn't going to let this stand. So uh, fortunately, I have sources, and a source gave me a piece of information here. Now, this is not verified, but this source is usually correct, so... I guess at worst I'm wrong and I'll give the wrong guy credit, but uh, I doubt anyone's going to sue me for this because I'm saying they did something good, not bad. But apparently, according to this source, the, quote, gambler who's in the poker community that won this 900K was Tony Hartman. You may say, Tony Hartman, who is that? Well... Tony Hartman is not all that well-known. He is from Minnesota. And if you go to his Hinden mob, you will see that he has $1.259 million worth of lifetime caches. Not too far from what I have, actually. His caches date back, though, much further to 1993. Obviously an older guy. As I mentioned, the person in... The picture on card player has a long gray beard. Hartman is with two N's. It's H-A-R-T-M-A-N-N. And indeed, I uh, am looking at some pictures of him. And in some of these pictures, he has a long beard. 
So I believe it is the same guy, especially because the person who told me it was Tony Hartman, I believe, hadn't even seen that picture. So while none of these pictures are super clear of him, it does look like the same guy. And I believe the information is probably correct. So he's just one of these kind of under-the-radar guys who's successful that does more than just uh, play tournaments, by the way. He also plays cash. And apparently he also stakes players. So this this is someone who's just kind of there in the poker community and has done well. But no one really talks about that much. And I don't know if he just didn't want his name out there. It's weird they show his picture, though. It's really weird because, like, if they don't want to say who he is, why show his picture? He's got a unique look because of the long beard, the long gray beard. But I, I believe the source is probably correct. Tony Hartman with two N's from uh, originally Minnesota and now lives in Las Vegas. So, okay. Congratulations, Tony Hartman, if it was you. I think it was. But I was given this piece of information and it all seems to fit. And if I got it wrong, then apologies to Tony Hartman and apologies to the actual winner. But I think it was Tony Hartman. And see, on this show, I'm not going to do this bullshit and just say, oh, the gambler who was on a recent edition of Daniel Negreanu's podcast. No, no, I'm not going to do that. If I know who it is, and if there's no reason to keep the secret, I'm not going to keep the secret. Now, if, like, let's say he was an anonymous source to something, I wouldn't out him. Or let's say there was uh, some story about a bad allegation about something that he's alleged to have done and I don't want to put it out there because it's not fair to put that out there because maybe he didn't do it. Like, then I could see not putting the name out there. But this is good. At worst, you'll say that he won something that he didn't win, that he placed a smart bet that he didn't actually place. That's not going to harm his rep. It's going to help his rep. So I, I'm not going to hesitate to say this. And 900,000 is a very nice score, but it's not like that... Uh, it's going to change people's opinion. Oh my God, he's got nine hundred thousand. Now we're going to we're going to target him for extortion. Like, no, there's a lot of people with a lot more money than nine hundred thousand dollars in poker that, uh, in fact, are, are winning that every day at the World Series and other tournaments. So compared to tournament results every day, nine hundred thousand isn't even all that much, even though on an absolute basis it is. So anyway, I I'm going to give him a thumbs up here. So good job, Tony Hartman. I don't know you, but good job. And yes, I'm going to put out your name. And I can't think of any reason not to. And I think it's really weird that they're not making this public. I guess it's possible that maybe uh, he never gave permission to have this put out. And maybe this was uh, something that was just told to a news outlet like ESPN. And they didn't want to violate the guy's privacy by putting his name out because maybe they're not supposed to. And so just maybe no one knew. But then why is card player showing the guy's picture? It's really weird. Like, go to the card player article about this. It's so weird seeing his picture, but not his name. I've never seen that before. But yeah, I think it's Tony Hardman. But yeah, good job. There is value in these props occasionally. Usually props are a big-time loser because the house juice is tremendous. But sometimes you can find props where the odds are just not set right. Daly, who I uh, spent some time with at the World Series in my brief time there and uh, used to post a lot on the forum. He is really good at props. And he has found a lot of these really good value props that books have set incorrectly. 
In fact, what Daly said about props is that the hardest thing about props is not coming up with winning plays. It is getting action down because a lot of sports books, especially online books, really limit their exposure on props because they're so afraid of this happening, especially these long, these long odds props, they can just get destroyed. Because something that's very long odds, you can risk relatively small amount of money to win a lot. So if you can somehow risk uh, a lot more than small money, then you can really put the beat on them. So props can be very difficult to set lines because it can just sometimes be really hard to do. And then sharp sports bettors can zero in on these things and then the word can spread, and by the time you change the line, it can be too late. So that's what happened here with the Otani bet. The 30-to-1 odds probably was not the right uh, odds they should have been offering. Should have been less. I'm not just saying because he won. Just based upon everything, 30-to-1 probably was not the right odds to set. Some people took advantage of that, so good job. Okay, so now I'm going to just give you advice. This is not a news story. It's a little bit of a personal news story, but other than that, it's not a news story. But I'm going to give you advice on how to reach people at Caesars Properties where you're having trouble getting anyone but Philippines outsourced representatives. I've talked about this for a few weeks now on this show, and if you're like, oh, no, Dress going to rant again about uh, outsourced customer service. No, this isn't a rant. I'm actually going to help you now. I ranted last week, I ranted the week before, and for good reason, because it wasted a lot of my time. And I, nothing against people from the Philippines. I'm not being racist, I'm not being xenophobic. I would be fine with reaching the Philippines if they had the capability to help me the same way that the Vegas-based employees can help me. But they can't, because they don't actually work for Caesars, they don't have the same tools, they don't have the same access, and they don't have the same understanding of the company or its systems. So, they're pretty useless. Not useless as people, but useless as employees that you're reaching. They just can't do what they need to do. And a lot of this is the fault of Caesars, not empowering them and training them. But they're doing that on purpose, because Caesars wants to hire cheap reps at these outsourced third-party companies, and they don't want to put all the expense into training them. There's probably a lot of turnovers, probably a lot of reasons why they don't do it, and why a lot of companies don't do it. So they're, they're just accepting what they get there, and they're saving a lot of money. But the people who suffer are the consumers who have to deal with them, such as myself. So I've run into so many problems. In fact, even in the freaking Rio, I pick up my phone and dial zero, and I get the Philippines, and then I say, can you give me the actual front desk at Rio? No. Can you give me at least a call center in Vegas that takes calls for the front desk? No. We have no way to do it. So frustrating. Right after I busted the freaking main event, and all I wanted to do was relax on the bed in my underwear, I couldn't do it. I told you this last week. I had to put my pants on and go down and stand in line to talk to the actual front desk. Really tilting. But I'm not here to rant about that again. I'm here to give you solutions rather than complaints. So I have battled with this a lot for the last few weeks over various things that I had to talk to them about. And in my experiences, I came upon ways that you can reach meaningful people. Now, before I begin, I cannot stress enough that unless you're doing something very simple and straightforward, 
that the Philippines cannot help you, even if they claim they can. So let's say the Philippines say, oh, we can help you. We have access to the same systems. We can assist you. No, they can't. They can say that all they want. They can't. So that's important for you to know. It's important for you to know because you need to understand what the Philippines can and can't do for you. And you don't have to feel xenophobic or racist or anything like that to want to speak to someone in the U.S. Don't feel guilty. Don't feel like you're insulting them. It's not even their fault. It's just the training, the tools they're given are insufficient. So you need to speak to someone who has the training and the tools to help you. What can they do? Well, if you want to book a reservation at whatever prices that come up on their system, or you want them to cancel your reservation, or you want them to note on your account that you're going to be checking in later. Let's say you're driving to Vegas and you got a late start and you want to make sure that they know you're going to be coming in at midnight and not to give away your room. The Philippines can do things like this because they can access the general system and add notes like this, and they can book rooms for you, and they can cancel your room. And I have used them for things like this. I actually canceled several reservations in October because I was considering going to the entire series, and then I decided not to. But as they came, I was canceling them. I didn't even cancel them all at once. I was slowly canceling my October reservations. And sometimes I would get the Philippines, and I would cancel it through them, and it it went fine. Okay, so for things like that, I would still check their work and make sure it was really done, but they're fine. But where they're not fine is anything that requires anything that has any complexity, anything unusual, anything out of the box, anything requiring special permission, anything requiring access to systems which aren't part of the main reservation system. And I'll explain that type of thing in a second. All that stuff they can't do. They also have a very, 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 very poor understanding of the total rewards slash Caesars rewards program and system. They can't access all of its system, and they also don't understand it well. And it's already kind of a complex, convoluted system, as you probably know, if you are a member of it and have tried to redeem your rewards and even understand your rewards. It's, it's kind of tough. So as confusing as it can be for you, And as confusing as it can be for Vegas-based employees, it's even more confusing for the Philippines. They know just about nothing about it. So anything related to redemption of any kind of uh, total rewards benefits beyond your actual offers that are loaded into the reservation system, they're going to be terrible at handling. So don't even bother and don't listen to anything they tell you. So there's different departments you need to reach to actually handle these. And every single one of these departments is Vegas-based. If you get the Philippines contingent that's taking overflow calls for them, they are not going to help you. So I'm going to go over some type of departments that you may want to reach and how to reach them. And keep in mind, none of this is 100%. None of this is foolproof. I don't want complaints that you tried my advice and it failed and what kind of idiot am I? These are things which will work sometimes, and not work other times. And you may have to try again a few hours later if it fails. But I'll try to give you as much advice as I can. Also, keep in mind, this might change over time. So if you're listening to this episode, say, a few months after it was airing, right now it's early morning, November 24th, 2021. 
if you're listening to this anytime in 2022 or 2023 or later, then it's possible that this won't work anymore or it won't be necessary anymore. It's, it's very possible that uh, more U.S. reps will have been hired to alleviate this issue. I think part of the reason this is happening is because they laid off a lot of people during COVID and now they've had to hire people back. And I think uh, they're having a hard time doing that. Like many businesses are having trouble hiring people right now, as you guys know. So I think they're replacing them with people from the Philippines. My fear, as I said last week, is they're just going to be happy with the money they saved. And when it, when it is easier to hire people, they're just not going to bother to bring back the U.S.-based employees, which cost them a lot more. But we'll see. Anyway, we're dealing with today. We're dealing with the here and now. And I'm going to give you advice that applies to today. So, it used to be that if you called a Caesars property in Vegas and pressed zero, then you would get a Vegas-based operator. And the Vegas-based operator, first of all, was empowered to do some simple things for you, like reservation type stuff. And if they could not help you, they could get you to the right department who could. Well, now the operator is in the Philippines. As I mentioned, even pressing zero for my hotel room, sometimes, not always, but sometimes got the Philippines. So could you imagine I could not even reach the front desk or anybody in Vegas calling from my Rio room this November? That shows you how bad the problem is. But I'm going to give you some advice here on how to do it. So let me go over some different departments you might need. You will need quote, guest services to deal with anything having to do with your hotel stay, whether it is modifying your reservation or uh, changing a price of your reservation or canceling your reservation or extending or shortening your reservation. Let's say you want to you want to cut a day off in the front or the back or, uh, you know, you, the price has changed since you booked it and you want to cancel and rebook or just have it re-rated. These are all falling under guest services. Guest services also is supposed to take the calls when you're at the hotel itself. So if you need towels sent up to your room or if you're having a maintenance issue, you need a plumber to come up there and fix the toilet that's clogged. These are all guest services things and then they uh, order whatever you need whether it's uh, someone to come over and fix something in the room or to send something to the room, then guest services does that. Unfortunately, a lot of guest services, though not all of it, has been farmed out to the Philippines. And it's easier to reach guest services from the physical room, but as I told you, sometimes you don't reach them depending upon the time of day. And it is much harder to reach guest services if you're calling from outside of the room, which is usually when you'll be calling it. So... How do you get to Vegas-based guest services? Well, it's not easy because if you call up the Philippines, if you call up just normally and you ask for guest services, you'll get someone at the Philippines. And if you ask transfer me to Vegas-based guest services, they will tell you they have no way to do that and they'll put you back in the queue. I had one of them lie to me, by the way, and tell me they're transferring me to the U.S. And then I wait on a long hold and... I ended up back in the queue. So that they, they like to say that just to get rid of you. Anyway, they do actually have a way. Some of them don't realize it, but I can tell you no matter what they tell you, and I know this from experience from the past month, they do have a way to get you to 
reps in Vegas. However, they are correct that guest services, they cannot transfer you to a U.S. rep because that's all the same department. So there's guest services reps who work out of Vegas that can help you. And there's ones that work in the Philippines, which are mostly useless. Unfortunately, because they're all part of the same phone system, they have no control of where the call gets routed. So they're telling the truth about that. You can't just say, give me a U.S.-based guest services rep. So you may say, well, then sounds like we're fucked. And the answer is, well, not completely. Number one, you can try at different times of the day because if the call traffic is not as much as it was when you called earlier, you may get a U.S. rep anyway. There are some U.S. reps, actually they're based out of Vegas, that will answer the phone. Sometimes you'll just luck into one. That's actually what I did in order to reserve the specific type of real room I wanted on the day I was coming to Vegas for the main event. Uh, keep in mind, I tried a lot of times, and finally I got one that was U.S.-based, but uh, that was just kind of lucky. But there's other ways to do it. Something you can ask them to do is you can ask them to find a U.S.-based rep who is actually physically at the property and tell them that you're willing to reach one at any Caesars property in Vegas. So let's say you're calling about the Rio. Well, ideally, you would get a rep who's standing in the Rio at the moment. However, secondarily, it's okay to get a rep who is at Harris, at Caesars, at Paris, at Bally's, any of these. So you can tell them, please try to get me a U.S. rep physically at a front desk and say, I don't care if it's at this property. I'd prefer it to this property, but if you can't reach one, I'm happy to have you call around to the other properties and reach someone at the front desk there, and then they can help me. Now, the truth is, if you get someone at a different property, there's only so much they can do for you because believe it or not, the reps at physical properties, not the ones in a call center in Vegas, but the physical properties, let's say you get someone physically at the front desk at Harris and you're calling up at the Rio, Harris actually can't access the Rio's system, which is stupid, but they can't. So you may ask, well, what's the point of doing that then? Well, it's because once you get someone in the U.S. and you tell them what you need and how the Philippines couldn't solve it. And by the way, they're very aware over there what's going on with the Philippines. They're not happy about it. They don't like it. I'm talking about the employees physically at these hotels. They're very aware that the Philippines customer service is horrendous. And they will take pity on you as long as you're not an asshole to them. So don't, don't start yelling at them. I can't stand this Philippine crap. You know, you better help me here. I'm getting really pissed off. And don't, 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 don't start off that way. You have to act polite and soft-spoken and try, make sure they understand you've been going through hell trying to reach anybody without complaining, without sounding like a jerk. Just tell them, you know, I've been spending a lot of time on this. I haven't gotten anywhere. And uh, the, the Philippines, unfortunately, don't have the tools to help me. Uh, could you please help me here and help me get to the right person? I'd really appreciate it. Just say it in a very nice, soft tone that kind of shows a combination of frustration, but also like someone who's just uh, begging for their help, not someone who's demanding their help. So come to them with that sort of tone and ask them, is there anything you can do for me? Like, could you maybe reach someone at the property I really am calling about? For example, where I'm talking about, like if you're trying to get someone to help you at the Rio and they've gotten you to Harris, then ask the person at Harris, can you transfer me to someone at the Rio 
Can you have the Rio call me? Or can you ask them to do such and such for me? And I'll wait on hold. Preferably wait on hold. Don't have them call you back or you may never get the call back. But preferably wait on hold. Say you're willing to wait 15, 20 minutes, whatever it takes. You'll, you'll wait. Just put it on speaker and wait. And uh, ask them to help you. I actually achieved something this way where I reached someone at Harris who was very nice, who took pity on my situation. I won't bother to go into what the situation was, but I explained it to them. I explained why the Philippines couldn't help me. I explained what I was looking for. And I, I said, I know you can't do it here at Harris for my Rio reservation, but can you get someone at the Rio? So they very nicely uh, put me on hold and were able to reach someone at the Rio, explain what I wanted. The person at the Rio did this. They came back. They told me what the person did and uh, everything was correct. And, uh, and it saved my bacon there. So that's one trick you can use is ask them to, t- this is for matters related to reservations or something having to do with a hotel where you, uh, uh, you want to get to a front desk of any property. Because remember, once you get to an actual front desk of any property, then you can beg them to help you reach someone else at the property you're really calling about. That's one thing you can do. Okay? Now, that doesn't cover everything. What about total rewards slash Caesar's rewards issues? What about uh, booking rooms based upon uh, offers where you need them to help you with something? Like, for example, I had a problem where I had an offer and the offer showed every single date unavailable for months, which obviously was a problem. Obviously, that wasn't working properly. If It's one thing that some dates are blacked out. It's one thing if I get an offer for a few free nights and New Year's is blacked out. Okay, that understand, that's understandable. But if every single night is blacked out for the next four months, then there's something wrong with that offer. Would you agree? Well, the Philippines, I'm sorry, sir. We can only book what is available, sir. That's, that's what you get from them. And that, that's not going to help you. And you can talk to your blue in the face how it makes no sense that an offer to give you free rooms isn't available for every day for the next four months. But I'm sorry, sir. I'm sorry for the inconvenience, sir. But you can only bill you. We can only book the rooms for you that are available, sir. Like That's what you're going to get from them. So don't bother arguing. You need to get someone with common sense who has the power to override that. And they do. They do in Vegas. They have the power to look and use common sense and say, hey, this guy has an offer to stay in Vegas and it's good for the next few months. But yeah, every single day is showing blacked out. That's a little bit weird. Let's let's help out here. Let's see what's going on. That's, see, they can look into it and they can override it if there's something wrong or something that doesn't make any sense. The Philippines cannot. So who do you reach for that? Because if you just get uh, the front desk like I was describing, they, they can't. They'll tell you, I'm sorry, this isn't uh, what we do here. The front desk can fix things and modify things and, and block rooms off for you, things like that, but, but they cannot do what I'm saying here. So when it comes to something like an offer, what you really need to reach is something called VIP services. Now, the good news is that VIP services can be reached through the Philippines, though many of the reps there don't know that. So if you get one that doesn't know it, either hang up and call back and get somebody else or insist that they can and have them look into it. But they can transfer you to VIP services. Now, I think you may have to be a Diamond member to use VIP services. But even if you aren't, uh, I believe VIP services would probably still help you if you explain to them that what you're needing to do 
has to do with a Caesars Rewards offer that you simply can't redeem or there's some problem with it or some issue that the Philippines simply can't understand. Because again, at VIP services, they know very well that the Philippines are not equipped to help with these matters. So as for VIP services, the Philippines will ask for you to give your information to them. So give them whatever they ask for. It's fine. And then they will... uh, Demand they transfer you to VIP services. If they say they can't, tell them, yes, you can. Say, please get me to VIP services, and uh, I don't care what property it is. I prefer it's uh, VIP services for whatever property you're looking for. But uh, And I think VIP services really just operates in general for the Vegas market, so I don't even think it's associated with a particular property. But uh, whatever it is, just get VIP services, and they have a lot of power. And... Uh, In my experience with them, the person who helped me actually told me that what they needed to do for me was a system that the Philippines didn't have access to. This person told me right away, oh, I see why they couldn't help you. They didn't have access to this system. Here, let me do it for you. If you can't reach VIP services, then there is one other option. You can ask for the host on duty. Now, keep in mind, the host on duty is not the same as VIP services. VIP services is used to dealing with Caesar systems and their reservation system and their offer system. And they, these are experts over there dealing with that. They're, they're, they tend to be pretty competent and pretty good. But uh, hosts, their role is not really dealing with all that. They, they know how to use these systems, but they, they're not quite the experts that those at, the, at VIP services are. And what hosts really their function is to get players down to properties to gamble that's that's what hosts are there for they're not they're not there to fix offers and issues like that they'll do it for players that are very profitable for them because the the hosts will get a commission based upon how much uh money you uh theoretically lose there whatever your theoretical loss is they will get a piece of that regardless of how you actually do. That's how the hosts are compensated for the most part. So they want to get you down there and actively gambling because they get a piece of it. And that is their main function, and that's what they care about. What hosts don't care so much about is is oddities with your offers or, or your Caesars reward account. As I said, if you're important enough to them, they'll look into it and help you fix it, but th- this isn't mainly what they do. So if you get the host on duty... You're getting a host who isn't even representing you. So you will have to beg them to help you and explain the Philippines thing and be very nice about it and see if they can assist you. But they're not as likely to be helpful as VIP services is, but they are a backup if you can't reach VIP services. You might as well give it a shot with a host. Just understand that this isn't their main job, nor do they really get anything out of it personally. So they're probably not going to want to help you unless they also happen to be just nice people, which some hosts are and some hosts aren't. You'll see with hosts that there's a wide range. Some of them are very nice, some of them are kind of middle, and some of them are real assholes. So you have no choice who you reach when you ask for host on duty. And honestly, as soon as they realize that you're not really helping them achieve their goals, which is to make commission, they they don't want to waste much time with you. But sometimes not wanting to waste time with you can help you. Sometimes if it's simple what they can do, If they can force something through, they just will to get you off the phone. So that's where a host can help you. So getting the host on duty, I wouldn't suggest that. If they try to push you to the host on duty, I would push back and say, no, please transfer me to VIP services and they can help you. Now, what hours should you call? You may think nine to five weekdays. 
Well, no. Yes. Well, I should say yes and no. Yes, but also no, because you can call later than that, too. All the way up until midnight Pacific time, you should be able to get someone in VIP services. I would advise not calling between midnight and 9 a.m. Pacific time, because then you really will not reach anyone of consequence, and you'll just tend to get outsourced people who cannot transfer you anywhere because nobody in Vegas is working in these departments where you need anyone. So there may be a few people in guest services, but you just have to look into reaching them. But I don't believe there's anyone they can really transfer you to that can help you much after midnight. So I'd wait till the next morning if possible. Maybe they can get someone at the physical front desk, but uh, that's about it after midnight. Now, what about billing? What if you've already been there and there was a billing fail? Well, you don't want the Philippines solving it. They're not going to understand it. So how, how will you solve a billing fail if it's so hard to reach departments that are based out of Las Vegas? Well, I can help you with that. There actually is a billing phone number, which I'm going to give you. And you can call this number. It has pretty limited hours, so keep that in mind. But the billing phone number for the Vegas Caesars properties, and maybe even other markets too, but I know at least for the Vegas Caesars properties, is 866-209-4732. That's 866-209-4732. Let's, in fact, let's see what happens if we call it right now. Now, the hours are crappy. It's only 8 a.m. to 2 p.m. Monday through Friday. Thank you for calling Caesars Entertainment's Billing Assistance Office. Hmm. We are currently experiencing longer wait times and therefore recommend completing an online inquiry form. Yeah, sure. To complete this form, please go to www.caesars.com. Scroll to the bottom of the page, select contact, and then follow the prompts. We appreciate your patronage and look forward to servicing your request. Thank you for calling Caesars Entertainment Contact Center. Our office is currently closed. Please try again later. (laughs) <laughs> Typical seizures, they don't even tell you the hours. Our office is currently closed. Yeah, call between 8 a.m. and 2 p.m. Pacific time, Monday through Friday, and then you will reach them. As far as that contact form, it's actually better than you think. Usually contact forms on websites are terrible, but you actually will get a response from someone based in the U.S., but only sometimes it will sometimes get a response from people in foreign countries. And also... They get so many of these, they just scroll through them very quickly. So if you've got a even slightly complex billing issue, there's no chance it'll be solved that way. So you really should try to reach a human being you can talk to live. So 866-209-4732 from 8 a.m. to 2 p.m. Pacific time is a way you can reach them. And this is not a secret phone number. It's just not one that's published that readily like you if you uh get the right people and ask for it they'll give it to you but this is not something that's super available so i'm giving it to you now and uh keep it in your pocket in case you need it and you may ask well what if i just call the direct phone number for the property if you call you get the philippines operator it's the same thing so any number you've been given i'll call the property directly or call this VIP number, you're going to get the same thing. So don't bother. It's not the way it used to be. Anyway, if you got any further questions on how to possibly reach someone meaningful at a Caesars property in Vegas, please let me know. I have to imagine this advice will also work in other markets that I haven't tried. Someone suggested to me, why don't you just call security? 
I'm sure you're going to get security that's located at the property to ask them to transfer you. Well, the reason is that I don't want to bother security. You don't want to make a habit of making customer service calls to security because you can't reach anybody else. That's not their job. Security has important work to do. And honestly, I think if you made a habit out of this, they could consider banning you because you're kind of disrupting things. It's one thing to call one front desk and say, hey, can you please call the other front desk and help me? Because it's all the same thing, just the different properties that are owned by the same company. Or even to call a a department that's kind of associated with the other one and get them to either transfer you or have them get someone to call you. But, But to call security is a different story. You really shouldn't ever call security unless you have a security type concern. Otherwise, they may get pretty pissed at you. So I hope this was useful, and I hope that they hire Vegas-based employees once again. Okay, so uh, we're going to finish off with a coronavirus segment, and we're going to talk about the boosters. Now, we talked somewhat about the boosters, but I want to give a more comprehensive explanation and discussion of the boosters because I've had this same discussion over and over in different forms with people who both listen to this show and people just in my regular life outside of Poker Fraud Alert. And I think if I have this same discussion here, though it's a one-way discussion because nobody's talking to me, then maybe some things can be understood that you may not know very well. So... First of all, let's discuss the need for the booster. Because some people say, oh, come on, I, I had two shots already. I, the second shot I had was the spring. Come on, you're telling me before the year's even over I have to get a booster? Well, come on, that must mean the vaccine doesn't work. That must mean the vaccine is shit. Or maybe we don't even need this. Maybe this whole thing is just to make Pfizer and Moderna more money. Maybe this is a, a big conspiracy Maybe this is to make us perpetually fearful of COVID. I'm not falling for that. I'm not getting this booster. It sounds stupid. Well, I can understand the natural reaction to hearing you need a booster to go, ah, come on, do I really need this? Honestly, there are some shots where I need boosters and haven't gotten them yet, such as the Tdap shot, which is for uh, diphtheria, tetanus, and pertussis. I have not gotten the booster for that, even though you're supposed to get it every 10 years. And I got the last one 11 years ago. Now, 11 and 10 isn't a huge difference on a shot where you're supposed to get a booster every 10 years, but I am overdue for it. It's not urgent I go do it, but I probably should at some point uh, fairly soon. So boosters have been a part of vaccinations for a long time. And sometimes they only discover after decades that boosters are necessary. In the case of COVID, because there's so much attention being paid to it, it was learned fairly early on from the test cases they had before the vaccines were released to the general public that they were seeing a decline in efficacy with the Pfizer shot especially, but also the Johnson & Johnson shot and Moderna shots. So the booster became necessary because for whatever reason, the initial dosage, doses of the vaccine, the one Johnson & Johnson shot and the two Moderna and Pfizer shots, were quickly waning 
once you got to months away. Now, you may say, months? I thought you were just saying that the Tdap shot lasts for 10 years. What a shitty vaccine this is. Well, all vaccines are different. And this is the first mRNA vaccine, which provides excellent efficacy. But there's a lot unknown about it and a lot unknown about how it works and why it works and how long it works. And we're learning as we go along because this was an urgent matter to get because COVID came on so suddenly and we needed vaccination against it. And it's great how quickly they developed and tested this vaccine and how well it has done. However, one of the unfortunate aspects of it is that it seemed to degrade a lot faster than other vaccines do. So it was found that starting at about four months, that it was really starting to decline. At five months, there was a fairly serious decline. And by six months, there was a very serious decline in efficacy. In one Israeli study of the Pfizer vaccine, it was found that you were only getting 42% protection from symptomatic infection, whereas you had 95% about a month after the second shot. So it went from 95% a month later to five months after that, 42%. That's a tremendous difference. That means the efficacy dropped a lot more than you think. If you think about those numbers, if you reverse them, it went from 5% breakthrough to 58% breakthrough, which is almost a 12 times worse rate of breakthrough. It may even be worse than that, in that that 5% may be limited to certain people who just don't generate a good enough immune response to it. But it's very possible that those who do generate a good immune response to it, which is most of us, that it's probably very close to 100. So it goes from where you can pretty much forget COVID exists shortly after the shot to, uh-oh, I might get COVID. I might get a breakthrough case. And as we saw from the World Series of Poker main event, there were a lot of breakthrough cases. And I'm sure you know people personally that had breakthrough cases that were vaccinated. Not because the vaccines don't work, but because the vaccines degrade. And with a certain percentage of people, it probably doesn't work either. But the vast, vast majority of people, it does work and it works great. But then it degrades, especially after four months and then really after five and six months. So I actually believe that it would be best to get a booster after five months. But they're saying six, and okay, six, I, I guess that's all right too, though you're that last month there, you're not nearly as protected as you were before. Now, as I said on previous episodes of this show, if you're only concerned about the COVID-19 situation is that you don't die or end up hospitalized, then you don't need the booster at the moment because... The booster is to prevent symptomatic infection, and provided that you're not old or have other major pre-existing conditions, then if you got the initial full vaccination, then you are still protected at the moment very well from death and very, very serious illness. However, you are not well protected at the moment 
if it's been five, six, or more months, from symptomatic infection, including getting really, really sick, probably the sickest you have been in your life, and having it last weeks, and also possibly getting long or permanent symptoms, such as lung damage and other things they call long COVID. So you are not that well protected from this anymore. And that's something you really should know, especially if you're over 40, which is a lot of our listener base. So if you're over 40, and if it's been more than six months since your full vaccination, since your second shot, or your only shot with Johnson & Johnson, then you are not that well protected from anything aside from serious illness or, or death. And that can be a problem for you. And you'll regret not having protected yourself unless you get that booster. You can say, oh, look, I've, I've dealt with the flu and other times have been very sick in my life. I'll just deal with it again. I don't want to get the stupid booster. If, if I get sick, I get sick. I'll deal with it for one or two weeks. I'll be better. I'll be fine. Well, you may not be. You may have permanent lung damage. You may have other long COVID symptoms that you can't cure. So it's a really good idea, especially after six months, which right now it's available to everybody in the U.S., every vaccine you can get if it's been six months. I think the Johnson & Johnson, they're even suggesting after two months. But I know Pfizer and Moderna, after six months, you can get another shot. You don't need to be in any special category. Anybody who was able to get the second shot can now get the third shot if it's been six months. And I suggest that you go do that if you're over 40. Because what that does, and they've had other studies since then in Israel, which was ahead of us with the vaccines, they found that it pretty much presses the reset button and you go back to the 95% efficacy, which, as I said, could be more like 100 for most people. Because I really believe those other 5% are people that just are not generating a good immune response due to other conditions they have. But most healthy people just were not getting COVID after getting that second shot until some months passed by. Think about it. Think about after you got vaccinated, if you did, and even if you didn't, think about other people you know that got fully vaccinated. How many do you know that two months later got a breakthrough case? Do you know anybody? I didn't. I didn't see any breakthrough cases until three months after people got their second shot. And in most cases, more than four. And there's a reason for that. It's because you have a lot stronger protection shortly after the second shot. And then it degrades quickly once it passes four months. And by six months, it's degraded to where your protection is like 42%. Moderna is a little bit better than Pfizer because it was a higher dose, but that degrades as well. I know people who had breakthrough cases with Moderna. So you really should get a booster if you got the second shot already. Now, you may have the question of how safe is it? Well, you pretty much answered the safety yourself when you got the second shot. If you went through two shots and six months later now you're fine, you're probably going to stay fine. You've already tested it. The most dangerous thing to do is the first shot because you don't know how your body is going to react to it. Now, I'm not saying it's dangerous. It's uh, safe for the vast, vast, vast majority of people. 
But if you're going to have a problem, it's going to probably show itself on the first shot. But especially after you've had two shots and six more months have passed and nothing has happened, while it's not 100%, nothing's going to come later. First of all, if the shot is going to do any damage to you long term, it's probably already done it or going to do it from the two shots you got. And second, it's probably never going to happen if you've had two shots and six months have passed and nothing's happened to you. So you've pretty much already demonstrated to yourself that you can safely get this shot and nothing's going to happen to you. You've done it already. Been there, done that. So now you should feel confident. It's one of these things, you do it once, you're okay, you'll be fine. It's kind of like uh, with kids and peanuts, that once your kid can eat peanuts and not get an allergy, you don't worry that uh, years later they're going to have a peanut allergy. Once they eat peanuts and they're okay, they're okay. Well, similar here with the vaccine. So don't worry about a terrible thing that's going to happen to you from the third shot. It, it doesn't work that way. It's not going to be, well, your body can handle two of these. But once you get a third one, it's, your body's really going to freak out. It's not like that. They're not seeing that happen. It's, it's uncommon, very, very uncommon for the booster to do something bad to you where the second shot did not. So I wouldn't fear that. Will you get sick from the third shot? Uh, possibly. From what I've seen... Most people are doing better with the third shot than the second. It's worse than the first, but I've spoken to a lot of people who got the third shot, and a lot of them who had a bad time with the second, the third was pretty mild. The third didn't do that much to them. They didn't get sick. They, they felt fairly good after the third shot. I did not. I had it worse with the third shot. Not tremendously worse, but I had a bad second shot and a little bit worse third shot. But I was unusual. I think the stat is 12% that happens with. So it's not a super unusual occurrence, but it was uh, kind of a one in eight shot that I fell on the wrong end of. So it kind of sucks. And I do wonder what the fourth will do to me. But again, I'm not worried about it killing me or harming me long term. I'm just worried about it being unpleasant for a few days. But uh, keep in mind, most people I've spoken to and most that have been surveyed in studies have said the third shot is actually not as bad as the second and only 12% said it was worse. I happen to be in that 12%. So if you got sec- sick from the second shot, you have a higher chance of getting sick from the third shot than someone who did not get sick from the second shot. There have been cases of people who did not get sick from the first and second and got sick from the third, but it's not all that common. There have been a lot of cases of people who got sick from the second and did not get sick from the third. And there's been uh, a good number of cases of people who got sick from the second and third and where they were about equivalent, as I said, only about 12% have been people who had it worse for the third than the second. And mine was not tremendously worse, and it was actually pretty similar. The time frame was similar. The trajectory was similar. The symptoms were similar. It was just a worse version of it, but not way worse. Anyway, you pretty much know what to expect for the most part. From the second shot, just kind of, if you assume that you're going to have roughly the same from the third shot as you did from the second, but maybe you'll be pleasantly surprised it'll be better. That's a pretty good assumption because even if it's worse, it's probably not going to be way worse. But should you get it? Is it worth anything? I did worry that I was going to go through all this shit and I was going to be sick and then it's going to be useless. Well, from what we can see, that's not true. As I said, from what they have studied in Israel, it appears that this really does press the reset button and you're back to very, very good, strong protection. 
And that's what you want. Why did you get vaccinated in the first place if you're going to let it degrade and not help you that much anymore? I mean, yeah, it's going to keep you from dying probably, but do you want to get really, really, really sick if you can avoid it? Because really, if you get this booster, you're probably not going to get symptomatic COVID, at least for several months. Isn't that worth it? Isn't it nice to have the peace of mind to go outside, to go inside, to go into crowded spaces? I mean, look, I played at the freaking World Series of Poker. You know how much I don't want COVID. I went in. I had the confidence to go to the main event. I had the confidence to go to Dodger Stadium with over 50,000 people together. I had the confidence to do these things because I knew I had the booster and I knew how well it was performing in the studies that had been done in Israel of the Pfizer vaccine, which is what I got. But I'm sure you have another question. Is this going to be an every six-month ritual for the rest of my life? And in fact, it might be a bigger question for you if you're like me and you get sick from it. It's one thing if you just get the shot and your arm hurts a little bit and you do this every six months, it's a bit of a pain in the ass, but it's not that disruptive. But if this thing really knocks you out for two days and you feel terrible every, for, for two to three days and you got to go through this every six months, it sucks. And I have had to think about this, and I've talked about this on other episodes since I got this third shot. Do I want to deal with this every six months and be this sick every six months just to avoid getting symptomatic COVID? Well, there may be some good news as far as that is concerned. So recall that you had to get two shots. Why is it not just one shot? Why is it two? I don't know of any other vaccine that you have to go get one and then a second shot again. Actually, there might be some, but I'm trying to remember if there's others, but whatever. You have to get one. You have to wait a few weeks and come back and get a second one. Now, why is that? Why is the first one not good enough? Well, basically, your body has to be trained two different times how to handle it. And uh, it's seen that doing this twice with the exact same vaccine, see the first and second shot is the exact same shot. It's the exact same uh, vaccine going in you at the exact same quantity. So the only difference is how your body reacts to it. And it was found that your body generates a strong immune response on the second time. And that while the first shot itself is not useless, that you get the real benefit, the really strong benefit from getting a second shot where your body creates a very strong immune reaction and creates a lot of antibodies to where it is able to fight off COVID-19 before you even feel it. And that's what you're looking for. You're looking for your body to be ready to attack COVID-19 the second that it could possibly infect you to where you'll never even know that uh, that was even happening. And your body will suffer no damage, nor will you even feel it. That's, that's the goal here. So it takes the second shot to generate this type of uh, antibody response. I just got a reminder from someone here on Skype that said hepatitis B is two or three shots. Yeah, that's, that's true. So it, it's basically tr- getting your body to generate the antibody response that you're looking for there. What about the third shot? What does that do compared to the second? Well, just in general, you would think if the second shot is doing a lot more for you than the first one is, might the third be doing more than the second? Well, the answer actually might be yes. It's still being studied, but the answer actually might be that the third is a lot more powerful 
as far as the way your body reacts to it than the second. It was found that the antibody levels against COVID decreased by 10 times nine months after initial participants got the two doses of both the Pfizer and the Moderna vaccines. So either one of them, it was found people had only about 10% of the antibodies they had compared to the peak of when they got the second shot, which kind of sucks. Now, there is some belief that uh, your body can regenerate these antibodies as necessary and it doesn't they don't need to be sitting around there for you to have protection but there's also a belief that uh, the more antibodies the better and that uh, that's really what keeps you from having symptomatic covid is having the antibodies already to attack and having enough of them well guess what happened after the boosters after getting the booster it multiplied by 25 times What they noticed from the second shot is that it multiplied the antibodies by five times. So just to put this in numbers, let's say I'm just just making up numbers here. These don't really represent anything just to show you the factors we're dealing with here. After the first shot, say you're at level two. After the second shot, it brings you up to level 10. Then after nine months have passed, you're down to level one. And then after the booster you're up to 25. You were never at 25 before. At best, you were at 10. Now you're at 25. Two and a half times the levels of of the peak that you had when you were protected from the second shot. So what this might mean is that even with the degradation of the antibodies over time, which which is probably going to happen, that it will last longer. So maybe you won't have to get another booster for another year, maybe another 18 months, maybe another two years. It's very possible that these increased antibodies from the third shot compared to the second shot are going to last longer because there's a lot more of them. It's even possible it could last much, much longer. And we just don't know yet. We have to wait time and see what happens to people. And this is going to be studied and we will know soon enough, because remember, there are people who got this way before you did. There are people who got this on a trial basis, even as far back as August 2020. So there's some people who got this more than six months before you did. And those people are being studied ahead of you. So we'll have these answers fairly soon. And by the time it may come up for your fourth shot, six months later, you may not need it. It may be that you can wait six months after that or another six months after that. So this may not be an every six-month thing. Also, if you do get a fourth shot, it is possible that will give you even more antibodies that will last even longer to where maybe it'll be years apart between vaccinations. This is being studied, but right now the theory is that it is very possible, though not confirmed, that six months from your third shot will not be like six months from your second shot, that you'll still have a lot more protection and that every shot seems to be creating more antibodies than the previous time and that they are expected to last longer, at least at a level that would keep you from having symptomatic COVID. They're still looking into it. I'll let you know as we uh, learn more. Something else to consider is that there's this COVID pill which is coming out 
and presumably will even improve over time. And the COVID pill also might change the whole situation with the vaccine to where if the vaccine pretty much will always keep you out of the hospital and away from death, at least for most people, and the real concern is symptomatic COVID, it's possible that uh, you can supplement the vaccine with just taking a pill when you're feeling COVID symptoms, and then there's no need for further boosters. It's possible that the pill when you feel symptoms plus previously being vaccinated will be enough. And that if you jump on it fast enough, it will not progress to make you feel awful. Because it's not just preventing death and hospitalization. It's also preventing two weeks of the worst sickness of your life or even one week of the worst sickness of your life and preventing long COVID. And these are concerns too. So you can't just say if you don't die, you're fine. This is different than the flu where most people who recover from the flu are fine. It's, it's not that common for a middle-aged person to get the flu and then get better and then have uh, long flu symptoms that never go away. That, does, that doesn't happen very much. It's very, very rare. So like at my age, if I got the flu, I'd be sick for several days. I'd get better and then it'd be like I never had it. I wouldn't have any lingering effects. Whereas with COVID, uh, it, it can permanently damage things. So they're, they're very different. And that needs to be known too. So right now, the recommendations, and I, I, I agree with these for the most part, Pfizer or Moderna, six months plus, you should get the booster, and Johnson & Johnson, two months plus. Can you mix and match these? Answer, yes, you actually can. And if you had Johnson & Johnson, I would recommend getting the Pfizer or Moderna at this point. If you had Pfizer or Moderna, it's up to you if you want to mix and match them. There are some theories that that actually gives you additional protection. I'm actually not doing it because Moderna is known to give worse side effects than Pfizer. Not always, but that's what the general belief is. And I get such bad side effects with Pfizer, I don't even want to see what Moderna is going to do. So I'd rather just stick with the one I know, even though it's shitty. And... Uh, I actually have faith that the Pfizer is protecting me a lot while I have a lot of antibodies. I don't have faith in it after several months pass, but I, I will know like in April whether I need to do it again from people that were studied that had the shots well before I did. And then I can make my decision at that point of what I want to do. Now let's go back though. Let's go back a little bit in history, recent history of course, and discuss the need for the booster as told to us by the government. And this will show you why you don't just always, quote, listen to the experts or listen to Dr. Fauci or listen to what uh, President Biden is saying. And I'm not being political here. I'm just being honest. And you can go check these out for yourself by Googling and see that I'm correct. As early as the beginning of April, Pfizer came forward and said, from their studies, they see that boosters are going to be needed and that uh, it, within five or six months that it looks like people have uh, significantly less protection against symptomatic COVID, but it does keep them out of the hospital and keeps them from dying. Well, correct. That, that's what we know to be true today. 
So Pfizer came out with this. The CEO said this in early April of 2021 before most people even had their second shot. In fact, a lot of people didn't even have their first shot yet in early April of 2021. And Pfizer was already coming out and saying, hey, uh, we just noticed from our test cases that uh, we see this degradation, especially five or six months. So yeah, better get a booster if uh, once that time passes. Well, what did the U.S. government say? What, what did Fauci say? What did the CDC say? What did Biden say? They said, oh, no, not necessary. Now, you know, we're watching it, but we don't agree. We, you know what? Uh, the current vaccine's fine the way it is. You know, forget boosters. You, maybe we'll need to boost. We, we don't see evidence of that. It was bullshit. It was complete bullshit. Pfizer knew it, and they were trying to be honest about it. Now, yeah, you can say it benefited them because they get to sell more shots, but they were right. And the government knew they were right. So why wouldn't they admit that? Why would the government discourage boosters? Well, who needed a booster in early April? Anybody? Anybody? Well, really only the very few people who uh, tested it in mid-2020. Everybody else didn't need it. In fact, most people hadn't even been fully vaccinated with a second shot yet. So the government was afraid that if they told you the truth that you would need a booster six months later that you're not going to want to get vaccinated at all. So they decided to tell you what is known as a noble lie. A noble lie is something that is told to you for your own good, where you're told a lie to get you to do something responsible. And they'll worry about the consequences later for lying to you. If if caught, they'll say, hey, uh, we lied to you because we needed people to do the right thing. Or they just won't admit they lied, like in this case. They just won't address this. But they lied. They knowingly lied in April about the booster situation because they wanted everybody to have faith in the vaccine and not feel like the whole thing is going to degrade within months. They were afraid that would discourage vaccination. Well, that's, that's never good to do. You have to be honest with the people, the good and the bad. So if Pfizer came out in early April and said, hey, you may need a booster, looking like you will, be honest and tell people it's going to work great and it's going to be very protective and it's a great idea to get this, especially if you're over 40, but you probably will need a booster in six months. And maybe you won't need another one for a long time after that. But much like you needed a second shot, you probably will need a third shot, though this time it'll be six months later instead of three weeks later. They should have been honest. But they were so afraid of scaring people away from the vaccine, they lied to you. Well, then the story evolved over the summer, and over the summer they started to take the booster thing more seriously, number one, because the old people, who are, of course, much more vulnerable to the effects of COVID because they actually die from it at a much higher rate, and because the old people got their shots in January and February, so it was coming up on six months, they were starting to admit, especially with Delta rapidly spreading in the U.S. in the summer, that, yeah, we're going to need a booster, but... Don't worry, uh, eight months is fine for most people. Unless you're really, really immunocompromised or, or very, very old, uh, eight months should be fine. So it's really eight months. It's not five or six like Pfizer said. I knew as soon as they said that it was bullshit. And keep in mind, the booster wasn't open to everybody at that point. At that point in the summer, they were only allowing the booster before six months if you were uh, severely immunocompromised 
And uh, af- after six months, you had to meet one of various criteria, which, while not that strict, didn't include every American. So only a few days ago did they say, all right, everybody can have it if it's been more than six months. So they changed the criteria before it was six months only if you meet ABC to, okay, six months for everybody. Now, why do you think that happened? you think they got uh, groundbreaking data that changed the whole picture? No, they've known this for a long time. This was an attempt by the government to, number one, not discourage vaccination. They wanted at least people to think it's going to last eight months and not six. And number two, they were a little worried, what if there's a big rush on the booster? So we want to make sure the people who need it the most get it first. So instead of just admitting, hey, we're a little bit worried that there's going to be a big rush on the booster, so we're, we're going to restrict it at first to these people who need it more, and then uh, everybody else can get it after six months uh, once we've given out enough of, enough of it to these priority groups, kind of like they did with the original shot. Instead, it was bullshit. First, oh, you don't need a booster at all. We don't see a need for that, even though Pfizer, the maker of the, of the freaking vaccine itself, is saying we're going to need one. And then it changes to... Yeah, you need it, but it's only eight months. Then, well, you need it, but it's it's uh, only six plus months if you're one of these categories. Then, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Everybody should get it after six months. You're not being told the truth. Now you're being told the truth. You weren't being told the truth before. The whole time they knew. They were very aware when Pfizer came to them in early April what the true situation was, and you have been manipulated. The eight months was a manipulation. It should have been six. I, I think it should have been five, but at the very least, six. The, you don't need a booster. We don't see need for that. That was a manipula- manipulation. They're all trying to get you to think and do what they want you to think and do. They're not basing it on factual data that they know to be true. They're basing it upon how they can manipulate you. Now, that doesn't mean taking the vaccine is wrong. In fact, I'm saying the opposite. I'm saying you should get the booster, especially if you're over 40 and it's been six months. I'm saying you should get the vaccine. I'm just saying that when they weren't ready for you to know about that, they lied to you about it. And when they weren't ready for you to know it's six months instead of eight months, they lied to you and said eight. And in fact, I had this discussion with people when they were saying about the eight-month crap. And I was telling people, ignore the eight-month shit. Get it at six if you can I got it at six. I knew it was bullshit about the eight. Now, I qualified for the six because I work in an environment that's dangerous, which is poker rooms. As a professional poker player, I play poker in poker rooms, like the World Series of Poker, which is very COVID dangerous. And if you don't believe me, look what happened at the main event. But I was advising everybody, if there's a way to get at six months, then do it. Because you needed it six months, not eight. And I had people say, no, Dr. Fauci said eight. I said, I forget what Dr. Fauci said. Forget what Biden said. It's six. Trust me, it's six. Lo and behold, now it's six. What a shock. Lo and behold, we do need a booster. When in April, they said we don't need a booster. So when the CEO of Pfizer says we're going to need a booster, we're going to need a booster. So this this is where the government is not being honest with you. They're, they're trying to craft a message that they think will get you to do what they want rather than just be honest with you. So this is why it's important to look at the real data 
and act on the real data, not act on what Dr. Fauci or Biden or the CDC ever says. I acted on the real data. The real data said that the efficacy of the vaccine was very poor after six months, went down to 42%. That sucks. The efficacy rate went back up to 95% after getting the booster. That does not suck. That's great. Six months was the point where that happened. It started well before six months, but at six months, it was at that point. Therefore, the hard data says get a booster at the six-month mark. Maybe even before, but at the very least, at the six-month mark. So it was available to me at the six-month mark, and I did. See, that is acting on the data, not on BS the government tells you. Now, you also shouldn't let the other side BS you and scare you out of getting the booster or the vaccine. So do not let forces on the right, which are finding every excuse to be anti-vax, to scare you out of getting the vaccine if you are over 40 years old. Don't, because it is much more dangerous for you to have COVID than to get the vaccine. It is much more dangerous for you to get symptomatic COVID after the first two shots and after they wear off than getting a third shot. So follow the data. Follow what the hard data says and the common sense conclusions that come from the data. Do not follow Biden or Fauci or the CDC or people on the right that are opposing them that are trying to convince you to not trust the vaccine at all. They all have an agenda. They all have reasons to lie to you or to mislead you. That's why you must follow the data because no one in this situation is particularly trustworthy, at least in authority. I'd like to think that I am trustworthy. I'd like to hope that you're listening to me here. And that's the way I have handled COVID the whole way is I have drawn my own conclusions from what I have seen. See, you can tell me that my son needs to be masked in school and keep away from the other kids. And then I see nobody in school seems to be getting sick from COVID in COVID outbreaks. I see one case here, one case there that don't seem to be related to school. And I see the same thing with schools all over the country. So I'm not going to read CNN and see histrionic stories about, uh, oh, school COVID this, school COVID that, which turn out are not even really true. That the bottom line is that in the schools, COVID doesn't seem to be transmitting. So the kids don't need to be wearing masks, and they don't need to be distancing, and the kids should have a normal school experience because the data says so. Look at all the kids in school, tens of millions of kids in school, and we don't have any school outbreaks. We're months into the school year. We don't have any school outbreaks. We're three months in. We don't have any school outbreaks. By school outbreaks, I mean ones that come from the school, from student to student, not, not where students get it from their parents and a bunch of students have it at the same time. That's different. I'm talking about an outbreak in school. We haven't had any in three months with tens of millions of students in school. So when the left tries to say that uh, the kids need to wear masks and they need to distance from each other and we need to have modified uh, schooling because of COVID, we don't and the data doesn't support it. So I don't believe it. I also don't believe the right. 
or parts of the right that try to say why we shouldn't be getting the vaccine or why COVID is just the flu or that other stuff. That doesn't make any sense either. And the data doesn't support it. If you look at the people who are in the hospital right now dying of COVID, they are almost all unvaccinated people. That is not a coincidence. If you don't have the vaccine and you are over 40, your chance is overwhelmingly higher of dying of COVID than if you do have the vaccine. And you can't just say it's an old people's disease. From 45 to 54, we have had 37-something thousand people die in the past year of COVID. 37,000-something people in the past year of COVID have died between 45 and 54, which is not old. And that's the third cause of death, only a little bit behind heart disease for that age group. So it's a serious threat for 45 to 54. Not as much as when you're really old, but it's a serious threat. Yet if you are 45 to 54 and have been vaccinated, your chance of dying is almost zero. And that's what the hard data says. And that's why you should take the vaccine, no matter what people on the right say to you. And I am on the right, and I'm not saying that because it would be stupid to say that. But it's also stupid to say that COVID is transmitting in schools. It's not. Or that mandatory masking brings COVID rates down and we could have stopped COVID if we masked up. No, we couldn't. There's no evidence of that anywhere in the world. The studies that say that are very flawed. So it may feel good to wear a mask. It's not doing you very much good unless you have an N95 or KN95. That's a fact. I know the left wants you to believe otherwise so you can hate Trump and hate people like uh, DeSantis, but that's that's just not a fact of the situation. You've got to follow the actual data. So look for the data and follow it. And that's what I present on this show. And as you can hear, I am not presenting a right-wing point of view of COVID. Otherwise, I'd be telling you all the reasons that you shouldn't get the booster or why you why you shouldn't get vaccinated or why COVID isn't a big deal and it's just the flu. Notice I'm not saying these things. Notice I'm going directly against a lot of figures on the right who say these things. And in fact, I say it's stupid. But if you think the left, quote, follows the science, then you've got another thing coming. It's all some form of manipulation to achieve either what they believe is a noble goal these so-called noble lies, or just for political manipulation. So don't fall for it. Just follow your own data. And what my own data says here very clearly is the vac- the booster is necessary. And it's very safe. If you've already had the first two shots and you're fine, then the third shot, you will also be fine after the side effects in the days following. And that is overwhelmingly true for just about everybody who has gotten the booster. Even me, and by the way, I may have gotten an after effect of the booster. I got a weird elbow bursitis that came about two weeks after the booster that I think there's a good chance, let's say maybe 50-50, came from the booster. That it caused this elbow bursitis, but it went away. I had it for about two weeks after that, and then it went away. You know, that's just what can happen from any vaccine. There can be some weird side effects, but almost all of them just pass and it's done. And usually after a few days, you can't even feel you had it anymore. I actually got a much worse than average experience with uh, the vaccine. Nothing that was harmful overall, but uh, just my experience is worse than the typical person when you add it all together. But I'm not regretting it. In fact, I'm very happy I got the booster 
Otherwise, I could be telling you a very different story. I, I could be telling you now about the COVID I got at the main event. In addition to not cashing and just missing cashing, I caught COVID too. Instead, my story was I didn't catch COVID. A bunch of others did. I did not catch it. I was in the same room as them all day. Didn't catch COVID. So get the booster. It's a good idea. And it's not dangerous. You'll be fine. That is my conclusion. But always form your own conclusions and always look up the data. In fact, look up the data of the stuff I talk about. Don't just believe me. Maybe I made a mistake. Maybe I saw something wrong. Maybe I read something inaccurate. So check on my data that I give you and see if I'm telling you the truth. See if I'm giving you information that's valid. But you'll see that just about all the time I am and that what I'm saying makes sense. And the way you can tell if things make sense is if the real-world data and real-world observations match. So, for example, with the school thing, if students in school were transmitting COVID like they transmit cold and flu, and they were all giving it to each other, we would see tons of big COVID outbreaks in the schools where the kids aren't vaccinated. All these little kids aren't vaccinated, and you would be seeing kids getting sick everywhere of COVID. You'd see COVID ripping through classrooms where 20 of the 30 kids get it. We don't see that. I'm sure in your town you don't see it. I don't see it in my town. I don't see it in the neighboring towns. I don't see any news stories about it. Why not? Aren't we supposed to believe this is so dangerous to schools? How come we're not seeing this three months into the freaking school year? Maybe because you're not being told the truth about kids and their transmission level of COVID to each other. It's probably very, very low but they don't want to say that. That's what I mean by following the data. If you're not observing massive school outbreaks, you're not observing school outbreaks at all, and there's tens of millions of kids who aren't vaccinated, then maybe it isn't the way they're telling you that it is. You should be seeing this, and you're not seeing this. But at the same time, if everybody in the hospital dying of COVID, if just about everybody is unvaccinated, what does that mean? What does that mean? Come on, use your head. That's all I'm asking. Just use your head, forget the politics. That's what I've done the whole way here. And that's why my view of COVID doesn't match that of the right or the left. And while most of my politics does match the right, not here, but it doesn't match the left either. And sadly, there aren't that many like me. Sadly, People who have political opinions, strong political opinions, they feel the need to blindly follow and repeat things said by their side. So you have people on the right that want to keep pushing anti-vax stuff, and you have people on the left who want to push false COVID narratives and say, follow the science when they're really not following the science. Beat to your own drum on this. Sometimes you have to. Okay, next scheduled show will be on December 1st, the last show of November. If you are hearing this before Thanksgiving, happy Thanksgiving. If you're hearing this after Thanksgiving, then happy Thanksgiving 2022. And if you're hearing this on Thanksgiving, turn off the damn show and go be with your family. You shouldn't be listening to me, unless you're in traffic. If you're in traffic driving there, I forgive you. You know, uh, speaking of Thanksgiving, about 30 years ago, 
I actually broke up with somebody on Thanksgiving. My family was away, and I had no one to spend Thanksgiving with. But uh, my then-girlfriend, who I'd only been with about uh, two and a half months, invited me to Thanksgiving with her family, which I thought was very nice, and I accepted the invitation. So I went to Thanksgiving dinner with her family, and she treated me really, really badly and disrespectfully there. And I, I had that problem with her in general prior to that, that she just would make a lot of... Uh, nasty comments to me a lot and I got tired of it. She just had an issue with this. She just wasn't very nice. So I was already getting irritated with this and I was considering dumping her anyway. And then she invited me to Thanksgiving and I thought, oh, that's so nice. That's so sweet. She felt bad that I had no one to spend Thanksgiving with and invited me to be with her family there. And I said to myself, I'm going to use this as a test. I'm not going to tell her, but I'm going to go to Thanksgiving and I'm just going to watch closely. If she mistreats me in front of her family, I'm just going to dump her. So she she mistreated me in front of her family. And I decided I had enough. And I actually broke up with her during Thanksgiving. I actually had her come outside with me. And I said, you know what? I'm leaving. I'm going home. And uh, I don't want to see you anymore. I can't stand this. I, she uh, dumped someone on Thanksgiving. And I actually did the right thing. You know, she wasn't treating me well on Thanksgiving with her family. Big red flag there. Almost 30 years ago, but, you know, it's about to be Thanksgiving, so it came to mind again. Well, I hope your Thanksgiving's better than that. December 1st is the next projected date of this show. Get your booster and be safe from COVID, especially if you're older. Good night, good morning, good afternoon, and shalom.